Welcome everyone and welcome to Between the Sheets, episode number 340. I'm your host, Chris Zona. Joined as always by my co-host, David Bix, and and Bix. I am extremely excited about this week's show. Yep, me too. Got a good first-time guest. Oh, wait, shit, hold on. I have to cover up my reptile face real quick. <laughs> oh, well, you know, we're recording this show on uh, February 2nd. Well, at least this is, part of the show. Yeah, the, the, this part of the show. And, uh, yeah, Bix is making the reference to uh, Brian Kendrick and his uh, unfortunate history of comments that uh, basically has cost him work in AEW. But, uh, yeah. Well, the sad and the sad thing is, is there's a lot of other people that believe just like he does, which is insanity. But, who, but anyway, that's that's a whole bunch of garbage. That luckily we don't have to talk about this week. We'll talk about some fine, upstanding citizens like Cowboy Bill Watts this week. And but anyway, Alan Rogowski, yes. <laughs> but anyway, yes, we are joined by a first-time guest, someone that we've been wanting to have on for a while. Waited for the right week to come up, and this seemed like the right week, considering some of the parties involved. And um, someone who's just who's basically resurfaced in the past couple of years or so online, you know, after being a, one of the more notable newsletter uh, personalities, readers, yes. uh, what had better writers. I would even say the most popular guest relative to name value in the history of Wrestling Observer Live as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, a, uh, a key guest on the uh, Iyata days of Wrestling Observer Live. And uh, yeah, we're definitely excited to have him on as we are joined by John Muse. John, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I've got a lot to live up to now. I'm, I'm kind of worried. <laughs> you just you put me over better than I think anybody ever has. So. <laughs> well, believe me, you're worth it. And uh, we, we, we will definitely have a lot to talk about in this show. As, yes, we are discussing the week that was February the 2nd through the 8th of 1993. Now, we did February 9th through the 15th on show number 30 a long time ago which is the aftermath of what we're going to talk about. So, yes, we will talk about this, you know, some of the stuff that happened during that week, but we covered it more thoroughly on that. Plus, we did it one of our other Patreon shows is uh, basically on this subject, where uh, Bix even talked to Wade Keller. So uh, definitely go back and find that on patreon.com slash between the sheets, $5 a month. Gets you access to listen to that and all the other audio that we have done in our five years of the Patreon. But anyway... So let's begin with, yes, World Championship Wrestling and Dave Meltzer. The expected major bloodletting at World Championship Wrestling took place at a meeting on February the 2nd, resulting in a significant changing in the corporate hierarchy, including a loss of power for both Bill Watts and, more particularly, Jim Ross. Bill Shaw and Bob Dew, who were put in charge of the company nearly one year ago from the now-retired Chet Petrick, has taken more of a hands-on approach in recent weeks rather than leaving much of decision-making to Watts. They divided up the company in three categories. A pay-per-view division, headed up by Sharon Sodello. A television division, headed up by as yet unnamed individual, who's expected to be named this week. And a wrestling product division, headed by Watts. Sodello and a television division head, whose title will be executive producer of WCW, where the final say-so on all matters relating to their divisions, including the matches that are on television and on pay-per-view shows. Since in reality, television is the most important facet of a wrestling company. The new executive producer may wind up as the most powerful front office employee. 
Executive producer will apparently either be Keith Mitchell, David Crockett, Tony Schiavone, Eric Bischoff, or someone not currently working in the company at the present. Speculation within the company over the weekend is that Mitchell or Bischoff had the best shot at the position. In addition, a larger speaking committee in recorded history was put together to put together storylines and decide on who gets pushed. The official corporate ladder shows that Bill Shaw is the top man as WCA president. Underneath him and answered to him are Bob Dew, Sharon Sodello, the new executive producer, and Rob Garner, who head the syndication division. Answering to Dew will be Watts, Brian Mitchells, the comptroller, and Dusty Rhodes, head booker. Jim Barnett, Jim Ross, and Tim Willett, recently hired from WF, will work underneath Rob Garner, while the announcers and television show producers, Tony Schiavone, Eric Bischoff, Keith Mitchell, and Greg Gagne, will answer to the new executive producer. Well, one of them won't. The event coordinators, a.k.a. local promoters, will report to Sharon Sadello. Jim Ross, whose official title had been vice president in charge of television, took the biggest fall of anyone. Ross will be removed as a personality from all TBS shows affected March the 1st, and will no longer be part of the announcement team on clashes and pay-per-views, with his final major assignments being the February 21st Super Bowl three show from Asheville, North Carolina, and the March 7th pay-per-view air date of the January 4th Tokyo Dome card. Ross had been the lead announcer in every class since the series began in 1988, and had been part of the announcement team for every pay-per-view event in the company's history. In addition to being voted announcer of the year in the Wrestling Observer newsletter poll by a wide margin the past five years, most sources seem to believe that Watts and Ross took tremendous heat from management because of criticism that all the television shows continue to have a similar look. The decision to replace Ross as lead announcer and, in fact, eliminate him from all TBS broadcasts appears to be related to his falling star in, front, in the front office. And the two d- different demotions should have been, probably been judged on each's individual merit rather than collectively. They suppose that those who look at a wrestling show like the 6 p.m. news may not Ross because of his accent or because he doesn't like Eric Bischoff. But that would be missing the point that the stars of a wrestling show are supposed to be the performers. The announcer is not akin to a news anchorman, unless Shivani, and in particular Bischoff, are as adept at announcing wrestling matches and getting the points that need to be gotten across the audience better. This decision makes little sense. Shivani does come across as less offensive than Ross to those who don't like Ross, and there's an argument can be made that he would fit in better in the number one slot, which he occupied on TBS from 1985 to 89. Ross trusted people the wrong way with what many felt was excessive self-promotion on television. But it appears his being replaced may have had more to do with upper management unhappiness regarding the similar looks to all the shows. You would argue that when it comes down to announcing a key match, Ross may be the best of the business. The only possible session being Vincent Mann and those who speak his language, and McMahon comes across on television as more abrasive than Ross. This is definitely the best in the company. Ross being taken off completely and Bischoff's role being expanded is a little harder to justify. In addition, Ross's decision-making position was eliminated, and he was reassigned into becoming a syndicated television salesman, a position which will entail spending most of his time going around the country making sales calls to local stations to pitch to two syndicated shows. WCA released a revised partial list of announcement assignments starting in March, and Ross's name was listed with Jesse Ventura as the host of Worldwide Wrestling. But Dan's told us it's far from a definite, and if it does materialize, it will initially only be a trial run. Tony Schiavone and Larry Zabisco will become hosts Saturday night. Shivani Ventura will become the lead announcer on the Clash of Pairview shows. Eric Bischoff and Michael Hayes will take over the Sunday main event show. And also the signs for WCW Pro and Power Hour have yet to be officially announced. Now, real quick, 
Joe Pedicino's name, according to the torch, has been mentioned along with Tony Schiavone and Keith Mitchell as being the top candidates for executive producer for TV position. But Eric Bischoff has apparently edged all of them out for the position. All right. Eric Bischoff. John, you know him pretty well. Um, this is when he begins to ascend to power in WCW. Now, you started to, uh, you know, communicate with Bischoff years later. But what was it about Eric Bischoff that struck you when you first started having conversations with him uh, regarding his business prowess and how he uh, he could just work the room, so to speak? Well, I mean, he, he definitely had, a you know, the right personality for that. I'm sure he knows how to read people pretty well, um, probably tell them what they want to hear. But, I mean, he comes across as a TV personality in that regard, right? And that's not necessarily a knock on him. It obviously worked out for him where he was, um, especially if they're, if one of their complaints was the look of the TV and how they felt they came across on TV. I can see where he might, he might've been able to use that a little bit and, and present himself in such a way where people thought, yeah, he kind of has the answers for what we need to do. Uh, you know, he, um, he was very personable when I, when I did meet him and talk to him. Oh, absolutely. And he, uh, and as Dave alluded to here, he had the look, yeah, he had the, the hair and he had, the, you know, the face and he just had that look of a guy who should be in front of a television screen. Well, isn't there that story that when Heard met him, that he exclaimed something like, you look like a movie star or something like that? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think you're right. Yeah. Well, the, the joke was he looked like John Davidson. Yes. You know, the guy. Well, who, the, uh, the singer, actor, game show host, not the wrestler. Or the hockey, the hockey uh, 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 coach, announcer, player, John Davison. But yeah, I mean, he looked like John Davison, guy used to that was hosted Hollywood Squares in the late eighties and did other, a lot of other things. But yeah, he just had the, and, and you know that's what you know Kevin Nash and Scott Hall would joke about him when they came in WCW. Kendall, he looked like Kendall. <laughs> you know, he just had that look. While Jim Ross, you know, Jim Ross was Jim Ross, but Jim Ross was at this point in time, still the best announcer in the business. And here's the thing, though. They are right. Dave is right, and, and they were right. The, the people in WCW were right in that all the shows at this point in time looked exactly the same. There, I mean, once they took the mats off the floors, you know, you had the concrete floors, the WCW ring. I mean, yeah, it was that they were in different venues. I mean, center stage had a different look in that regard, but it's still the same thing. You know, you, you, you're watching the, the same stuff go. And, and it just, it had been uninspired for a while, you know? So you, you were watching this stuff in real time, John, what were your thoughts on how late 92 WCW was coming across? Well, it, it it came across the same way it generally came across for years, which is kind of basically behind. Um, it always seemed like they were a step behind WWF in production values. Things generally looked the same. Um, it was a constant knock with them until they started changing things under Bischoff. And, you know, and, and going back to the point earlier, too, with Bischoff is, you know, when people meet him, or at least back then probably met him, they probably thought, well, if, if we're looking to change our television and have that that person who would almost come across like a Vince, Eric would almost fit into that mold. Absolutely. And Bix, I mean, here's the thing. 
What had WWF done in January? Two things. What did they do? Let's see if you can, if you'll catch me on this. Fix. Sorry, I was muted. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure where you're going with this, actually. Okay, there's two there's two big television things that WWF did in January '93. One was they created Mania, a Saturday morning show, totally different than they, what they've done. Yeah, they're playing. You know, matches that had been airing on the syndicate shows, but it's got, you know, Todd Pettengill. And some you exclusive gotta, matches. And yes, some exclusive matches. Directly got, for kids. and Yeah, yeah it's Todd Pettengill in the studio. He's a young guy, new face. And, of course, Monday Night Raw. You know, a brand new show in, you know, New York City, Manhattan Center, you know, crazy environment. You know, they brought in Rob Bartlett, a totally different guy, you know, who had been around. So they're changing their look and adapting and doing something different while WCW was still doing the same old, same old. You know, so I, I, I'm thinking that, you know, Bob Dew and Bill Shaw were probably looking at that and like, wait a minute. We need to try to do some stuff like this. We need to we need to start being different. The way we present ourselves. So I, I, now here's the thing, though. <laughs> it took it took a while for that to happen. That was to say you should have happened five years earlier, right? Yeah. Well, what I'm saying is they wanted all these changes made, and, and there was stuff that looked. But throughout 1993, WCW still looks a lot like the same thing. I mean, there's some different things that they add to it. You know, they add. You know, when Flair comes in and do Flair for the gold. They have, you know, they they try to, you know, get a little bit fancier on some of their pay-per-view setups and stuff like that, clashes. But, you know, they there's some minor things, but it's still nothing dynamic. There's not they're not doing anything that's changing the game like WF had done in January '93. So, yeah, it's that it's that little brother syndrome, John. You know, they're they're, oh, yeah. they're the little brother. Yeah, and and they were always playing a game, and and I mean these happened with almost all the territories anyway, they play the game of trying to keep up or catch up or do the same thing. And, and WCW was always behind trying to react to WWF instead of um, trying to compete. And Eric brought this, right? Eric, this is how Eric ended up rising and doing, doing what he did is that instead of trying to play catch up, he tried to, to directly battle. Yes. It wasn't always a chase game, chase the tail. Like you said, little brother thing. They're like, okay, well, you know, you have to change. And this this is kind of consistent anyway in wrestling when you have these sort of situations is you have to change the formula. You have to change your approach. You can't try to emulate somebody who who's already kind of established in what it is you're trying to do. You've got to take the next – you've got to go forward, not try to catch up. Absolutely. Now, wh wh where do you stand on how this is being done where – we ha we go from having the one guy basically in charge, Cowboy Bill Watts, to having it broken up into these sections. Are you a are you a, a fan of the one guy says everything, or are you a fan of all right? We have sections. Let's you know do it like this, and then they report to somebody, and then we'll come to an agreement or whatever. Um, it, the breakup makes sense in some ways and not sense in others. Uh, you know, obviously with, 
syndicated, you know, programming and, and things like that, you're going to have to kind of let them do their thing. But you want to do, you do want to have a singular creative vision, in my opinion. Um, and, and that vision kind of does have to over, you know, overlook and oversee and, and dictate maybe the other areas. Um, it, it really depends, but you've got to have that singular decision point that guides you. Cause if you don't, you run the risk of people doing things that work against you. And even if they don't, even if yeah. they don't mean to, sorry for interrupting, but even no, if they good, don't good, mean yeah. to, yeah, even if they don't mean to do things that hurt you, um, it can happen if they don't understand what you are trying to do. Well, think about how this, I mean, and you look at how this is supposed to work. Okay. So you have the pay-per-view division head and the television head having final say so on the matters that relate to their divisions, including the matches that air. So basically they're overseeing creative themselves in a way, because yeah. if you're, if you're, you know, Bill Watts and you, 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 you want to run these matches and angles, and then you have Sharon Sadello and Eric Bischoff going like, well, we don't like this. <laughs> yeah. You well, can't have that. <laughs> that's that, that's a problem because then and, and then you know you can see where you know cowboy bill watts good lord you know he couldn't handle this so oh, no. and, he wanted to move backward in time well yeah wanna... <laughs> we should also point out though because i think this is something we talked about on the show but way back when but i'm not sure if it gets into it here i think it came up more with the watts your fired i quit situation a week later that the impression that Watt and others were under was that it was being set up so that Sidello and the executive producer would generally be agreeing and thus have the final say over Watts. Yeah, but you know how that's going to go. I mean, you know that there's going to be conflict. I mean, there's oh, just I'm no sure way. there that, would be some, no but... You're not going to have Kumbaya where everybody, you know, is in full agreement on everything. There's going to – Eric Bischoff or Sharon Sadello is going to look at something that would have been put out in front of him and say, well, we don't want to do this. Then what? You know, then you're back to the drawing board all over again. Right. But you, even though you're supposed to be equals, <laughs> you're supposed to be the equal department heads, but that's not the, that's not the case. All right, well, let's talk about creative, and we'll get more into the Bill Watts side of things here. In addition, a huge booking committee was put together, <laughs> sort of a steering committee. Moo! Officially on the committee are Bill Watts. Look, listen, this cast of characters: <laughs> Bill Watts, Dusty Rhodes, Greg Gagne, Bill Dundee, Jim Barnett, Keith Mitchell, Ole Anderson, Jim Ross, Larry Zbysko, Sharon Sadello, Mike Graham, Eric Bischoff, and Michael Hayes. And a partridge in a pear tree. In addition, yeah. it's suspected that if the Ric Flair deal doesn't fall through, that Flair will be added to the committee. Sid Vicious was also promised a spot in the booking committee should he sign with the company. Vicious I, wish that I almost wish that would have happened, by the way, just <laughs> yeah. to hear stories. I don't think it did, did it? Well, no, 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 yeah. no. Vicious and WC officials have spoken numerous times, although no official deal has been reached as far as we know. No word yet if Lord Littlebrook, Eddie Gilbert, Cowboy Bradley, Happy, Grumpy, Dopey, well, I guess he's already in there somewhere, Sleepy, Sneezy, Dancer France, or anyone else was promised a spot, they would have come in as well. And the Torch said, one WCW insider told the Torch that if Sid Udy becomes a member of the Putin Committee, then we're not going to listen to a word he says. He'd just be on the committee to appease his demands. That's always a good way to go. 
Oh my God. I mean, John, <laughs> you know about booking. This is a recipe for disaster. Uh, yeah, usually when you hear the word booking committee, it's a recipe for disaster. Yeah. <laughs> you don't even have to hear the names necessarily. Because um, they did this, what, in 88, was it? WCW did it from the beginning. Yeah. I mean, it's, just, it's it's been that way off and on from the entire run up until this point. Yeah, and, and when you look at the list, I mean, uh, Greg Gagne jumped out at me when it, when I saw it again. And I had forgotten about that one. I'm like, Greg Gagne, okay. Um, you know, it's, it's it's mostly a list of people who Vince has somehow bested one way or the other, right? Well, John, D- Dundee's a, a, a different name, but you know, he has he has the gravitas to be on yes. here. I mean, but yeah, I mean, look who I mean, look at Ole. Of course, never worked for Vince, but you got I mean, Dusty been with Vince. You know, uh, Greg you know, Vince had their problems. Uh, Barnett had been there. Keith Barnett, Mitchell yeah. been there. Um, you know, there, there's people that have been there, but there's also, you know, there's just other people like, uh, I mean, Oli, of course, had been in and out off and on with, you know, running the show in 90, and we saw how well that went. Um, you know, and then you got Sadella and Bischoff on here, which, you know, I guess they're on the list because of being creative heads. I mean, yeah. the heads of their divisions. But Michael Hayes, Michael Hayes had booked. Um, right. Mike Graham. I, I had booking experience in Florida. So you have people here that's had experience, but you got three, six, nine, 13 names here. Yeah, with potentially, you know, one or two more. Yes. I mean, it's, it's a, I know you, you, you don't like committees and, and rightfully so, but I mean, it's okay to have other voices around. Yes. But there needs to be that, that one person that's the, be all end all when it comes to creative though. Right. And let me, let me, let me go into it a little bit. Cause you, you touched a little bit on, on one point with, with that whole idea, what you want when you have a group of people like that is you want to have that singular decision-making power. Yes. No. Um, here's this, what I want here. Here's what I want there. Um, the other people there, if you put the word committee around it, it gives more power to the people there. It mm-hmm. really needs to be, they're there for ideas. That's what they need to be there for. Ideas and ideas alone. And if I don't like your idea as the top guy, I'm telling you no, and we're moving on to the other ideas, and you're going to be okay with that. That's kind of what it needs to be, because you know when when I've when I've booked in in Bennett shows and and stuff like this, I love hearing ideas from people, but I don't want anybody coming in and trying to change what I want if I want it. Exactly. And and that's what those people needed to be there for. I don't. Maybe it was the structure. I don't know, but. When you say committee, it gives some sort of thing like there can be a vote or there could be some sort of, you know, the guy at the top is not happy about something, but he's being outweighed by other people in the committee or majority or whatever. That's not going to work. No. Bix, it's kind of like when you have a situation on like a TV show where you have a, a, a team of writers that are, you know, sending suggestions in or whatever. And but you have the head writer who is the number one alpha of the group. And they're the ones that make the final decisions on what, like a SNL, what gets on the show, you know, yeah, they'll take, they'll take somebody's, you know, suggestions, but then, you know, if they don't like it, they won't run with it. You know, I mean, there's a hierarchy in that regard. Right. It also kind of reminds me of it. Not the best example to use in February 22, but it reminds me of late in the run, I guess the last season of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. There was this new writer who got brought on, Drew Goddard, 
and the episodes that were credited as his in that last season were generally considered far and away the best episodes of that last season and probably of the last two seasons of Buffy. But, you know, as time goes on in the next couple of years, he and others would, he being Drew Goddard and others would do interviews and be like, oh, a lot of that stuff you liked in the episode was Josh Sweden. That was not me. Because whoever has that final say, even if they are not the one credited or the one necessarily taking the most active hand per se, they're still going to be putting in all their stuff to the best of their ability as much as they have the chance to. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the term uh, showrunner, right? I think that's the showrunner. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, and and within that, you even need other roles too, like continuity and things like that. People are going to make sure that you're, and believe me, we, we, have promotions now that need some help oh, with continuity no. quality control the, yes I think, I think quality control is the most important thing in, in basically any anything any company you need to yes. have quality control especially oh, yeah. uh, especially entertainment it needs to be that quality control somebody to sit there and go wait a minute okay this is you know we need we need to change this because this doesn't make sense with what we've already done blah 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 you know, you yeah. need that quality control person in there, and it's sorely, sorely lacking in wrestling, in, yeah. in, in any company. Yes, and, and the other two with that is, is along with that quality control and making sure that you're not violating something you did or something you're doing now doesn't make sense with what you did, you know, three weeks ago. Um, you want to make sure whoever that person is or however your approach is that you know where you're going, so that what you're doing now doesn't make where you're going to land bad. Exactly, and that it works forward and backward. Exactly, and that and that you know that's a big problem in WWE right now is they don't. I mean, nobody knows what's going to happen because it changes by the damn day. Yeah, because yeah. Vince McMahon, you know, will change things on a whim. You know, it's what, what, what the problem with WCW, you know, in the in the late nineties with Nitro, where Eric's rewriting Nitro while the show's on the air. I mean, what good does that do? What good yeah. does that do when you're rewriting the television show as you're live? Right. It just you're, you're guaranteed. Yes, you're guaranteed to fail creatively when you do that. Guaranteed. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about chaos. <laughs> on, the, on the surface, this all seems like a recipe for total chaos in a company in which chaos and not championship has been the real C in the WCW name almost since the inception of the company. Based on conversations with many wrestlers and officials, by and large, the moves were popular because both Watts and Ross were extremely unpopular personally by many within the organization. Actually, in the case of Watts, by most everyone. However, what glee there is in seeing Watts and Ross taken down a peg by these changes needs to be thought about more carefully because the current structure with nobody in charge and everyone in charge at the same time may result in a more disorganized company. (laughs) In addition, management laid down a new doctrine, aimed mainly at Watts, but also Dusty Rhodes. There could be no yelling or swearing at employees or overall bombastic behavior within the office. And that executives, i.e. Watts and Rhodes, can no longer wear jeans, Zubaz pants, sweatpants, or T-shirts to work and must wear suits and ties. Watts is still technically in charge of contract negotiations, at least in theory, although going over his head and have him overruled doesn't seem to be unusual. For instance, Watts and Bob Dew's apparent decision regarding wanting Bill Rick Rude to apply for Workman's Comp while injured, rather than receive his wrestling salary while injured, seemingly was overruled by Bill Shaw. Since Rude received the check for all the money he would have earned this past month, the past month while he was mending his neck injury. 
So all negatives regarding Rue's return have been settled, and Rue returned the U.S. title belt, which Dustin Rhodes is now wearing. And we'll be back in action when the injury heals in a few weeks. In addition, Shaw was involved in negotiations in some fashion with Johnny B. Bad, who now appears likely to be staying one, one week ago, seeing better in 50-50 that he was going to the WWF when his contract expired in a few weeks. We'll have more on that later. In Dave's opinion, for a wrestling company to have a true sense of direction, it needs one person who knows exactly where he's taking the product long-term and has a focused idea of how to get there, like John's talking about. While the Saturday television show has been very good for the past five or six weeks, and there have been some solid talent acquisitions, none of which have been put over in a manner that could create them as new faces on top, overall, based on the eight-month period Watts has been in charge of the company, the results, when it comes to television ratings, house shows, and preview buy rates have not been there. Recognizing the positives of Watts, it was painfully obvious from, almost from the start that his motivational methods, dealing with personnel both in and in the office, and talent and overall old-time wrestling double talk, Carney's strategy, came off as behind the times. He seemingly had no inclination to adapt, rather wanted both companies, employees, and the world to adapt to him. Nevertheless, if Watts isn't the person, and one way or another, things not related to the wrestling product decisions themselves are going to tell him most likely anyway, Dave's own opinion is that he needed to bring in another person, not put several different people, all of whom are going to have their own specific ideas, agendas, and friends, and relatives to push, and own perception of what pro wrestling should be in 1993, and how to get to that point in charge. In this case, too many decisions will be those of political compromise. There will be far too much second-guessing too early in the game. It would be next to impossible to establish a long-term direction. The fast moving committee only makes the unwieldy decision-making process that much worse. Maybe that won't be the case, but after speaking with many who have been involved in the hierarchy of successful organizations in the past, none believe this is a viable solution. Real quick, uh, before I go to John about more about this, Bix, me and you have talked about this before, and Dave touches on it. The last month or so of Watts' run of WCW, it seemed like things were trying to turn the corner. I would say even a little bit longer, as far as at least his talent decisions with who he was bringing in and stuff. Like, you know, as he talks about later in, I think, the Wrestling Flyer interview with John Clark in a few months from this, like, he had been trying to get Benoit in for a while as far as, like, working on getting his visa and stuff. You know, brings in Two Cold Scorpio, Rob Van Dam, uh, Davey Boy Smith— you know, makes the Smoky Mountain deal. I feel like I'm forgetting people, too. Well, he's a linchpin for Flair. Yeah. Yep. I mean, there, there's other, there's, there's other, Orndorff. Orndorff coming back in, rejuvenated, from, you know, in the Smoky Mountain run. Um, you know, there's other people that, you know, start coming in. You know, uh, Max Payne. Cactus Jack. Cactus Jack, turn, baby, the turn, you know, turn him baby face and everything. Yeah, it seemed like on creative side of things, yeah, things were starting to get better. The aesthetic's still the same, but it seemed like creatively things were starting to change and we're starting to get a turnaround, but the damage had already been done. Now, yes. and since we didn't really talk about it, though, we do need to say, too, like the Jim Ross demotion was completely ridiculous. Like, yeah. He's yeah, a Watts it's guy. Pers- but it's personal. Clearly, like, yes, he's a Watts guy, but he was. Watts has been there less than a year. Jim Ross has been there the entire time Turner was on the company. But Jim Ross didn't have Bill Watts. You know, that's the thing. Jim Ross, I mean, basically, you know, what it is is that you bring in. It's like, you know, everybody, everybody loves the movie A Christmas Story. When you have the bully and you got the little kid with him, 
that because that's Jim Ross when Bill Watts comes in. You know, he's the he, he's the, the the little guy with the bully. Wait, are you tell, are you saying that he's like oh, uh, what's the name of the cartoon dogs? Yes, yeah, Spike. Yes, yeah, Spike. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah, he's he's. I he's wouldn't go like, that far, but I get what you're saying. Well, no, he, well, I mean, he's basically. It, when the guy it, when 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 the guy in charge is your mentor, yes, you know you pretty much feel like you have free reign and you know you can develop an attitude and and that's where a lot a lot of this is coming in. You re- read what Dave is saying here. People have started to dislike Ross personally because of how he was carrying himself, self promotion, you know, all this other and another thing. 1992, a, a big year for Watts. I mean, he, I mean Ross. You know, Watts is coming in. He starts working as an announcer for the Atlanta Falcons radio team. He's got his big WSB radio show. So he's got a lot going on. And knowing how Jim Ross is, I'm definitely sure that he wasn't afraid to brag about what he had going on. And people get rubbed the wrong way. So you have you. And, you, you know, you have guilty by association with Watts. If Watts is not light, then Ross is his right-hand man. Ross is not going to be liked. So that's part of it. But anyway, all right. So, yeah, Dave mentions here, John, about the attire that, like, Watts and Rhodes are wearing to the office. I mean, their office is in CNN Center in, uh, you know, in Atlanta, where you have all these big executives coming in, Dressed, to, you know, dressed like professionals to work. I'm sure that there were conversations among the Turner brass that look at these guys, oh. you know, <laughs> look at these wrestling guys, you know, coming in, in their jeans and sweatpants. Right. Not a good, not a good look. Well, the corporate pop in. Right. So, you know, yeah. you know, Dusty or Watts could have been in there with their, uh, you know, T-shirt and jeans or, you know, their their sweatpants and all of a sudden a higher up pops in. They're going to wonder what, like you said, what's going on. And that's going to be an email behind the scenes. Absolutely. What are they doing over there? And then next thing you know, you've got people popping in. And I can imagine that wouldn't have went well with Watts or Rhodes. And, 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 and no matter what you say about Jim Hurd, I can guarantee you that Jim Hurd went to work every day in a shirt and tie and slacks. Guarantee. Yeah. yeah. And I'm pretty sure Jack Peacher did the same thing. So because they were guys who had been corporate guys, you know, and now you have these two who, you know, Dusty knows the game. But Watts had never been involved in corporate. He'd always been the, his own boss. So now you have bosses. So and you're in this corporate structure. Yep. So I mean, and he and Bill Watts did not want to adapt. He was Bill Watts. You know what he said goes. And, and like I told me with, with this whole thing with Rick Rude and Workman's Comp. I mean, that's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When I read that, I'm like, oh yeah. So Shaw was the people person. Yes. He was the one who identified, look, we can't really treat Rick Rude this way. Or, you know, if we're going to negotiate with Johnny Bad, we've got to do so in, in such a way where it makes sense and, and handle people the right way. And Watts doesn't necessarily fly that way. Oh, he's, God. Yeah, he's the opposite. He's like, I'm going to save money or you need to prove to me you you draw it for me to pay you. Um, It's just it's a different structure. And like going back to the point on Eric Bischoff, you know, Eric Bischoff was probably showing up every day suit tie the whole thing he fit into the structure exactly yeah you gotta play the game all right let's talk about why it says a creative guy i mean 
John, you were around the newsletter scene in the early '90s. You know, I mean, people when? were, cr- <laughs> yeah, no, cr- people were crying about Bill Watts wanting him. Bill Watts with WCW. We want Bill Watts with WCW. Bill Watts could save WCW. And then he finally shows up at WCW, and then this happens. So, what, what are your thoughts on how everything played out in that regard? Well, I'll I'll start off by admitting guilt and wanting Bill Watts. Yes. Uh, I was one of the people who was like, yeah, we want that. We want that kind of thing. Um, it's well, the problem was that nobody knew he stopped watching wrestling entirely. Um, you know, we didn't know that we thought he would have been paying attention to the product and know where to go with things and, and bring that kind of, you know, bring what he did in mid South and, and, you know, UWF and, and we would have that. And it just didn't work out. He wanted to take his idea. And if I don't if you remember, there was a torch interview he did, too, where he talked about having this grand idea mm-hmm. for what you know he could do if he were given the chance again. And, and I think that built into a lot of the hype because everybody's like, wow, Watts is this great creative person. If he's got this idea, it must be fantastic. We didn't know the idea was I want to go back in time. Yeah. And by the way, okay. so since you brought up the torch interview and, you know, this is that blowing up isn't necessarily in this week. We obviously are going to have to talk about it some. I want to get your impressions on something. I don't remember which episode it was we figured it out. I don't think it was either the the one from the week after this or the Patreon show. I think it was something we figured out just during some other show. The story when he got hired was that everyone had read the interview at TBS and been impressed by his plans for WCW and – as far as, you know, the more bigoted comments that, you know, later, you know, people at TBS would claim that they never saw that. But, you know, Mark Mann especially refused to believe that because of the story about that they had read the interview, which Watts insists they did. However, the whole interview that includes the comments that became infamous, that ran in the Torch Summer Annual in 91. Wade had run a preview in the actual Torch Weekly newsletter that was just the, like, here's what I would do with WCW stuff. Are you yeah, under there the impression— two, right? Well, it was the same interview, but are okay, you but under the— up in pieces. Yeah, so yeah. are you under the impression where under that it was probably that both were kind of true, that the brass had seen the Torch Weekly version but not the whole thing? It's entirely possible, yeah, because, I mean, you know, you never know who's, who's seen what or what excerpts because I remember seeing it in, you know, two pieces. Yeah. You know, I remember one where he was promising this great idea that he had because everybody's trying to do, you know, do something different than what Vince is doing and, and all this other stuff. But I don't think that piece that I saw at least contained the part that, you know, all the bigoted stuff. So, you know, maybe that's part of it. I, I don't entirely – I could never piece that together either. You know, I just knew that we were all excited about this idea. You know, you have Bill Watts. You wanted him in general because of the good stuff he did. But then you're thinking, okay, well, now he's saying I've got the recipe. I've got the idea. And then it just never come to fruition. Yeah. And contrary to popular belief, it did come up in the newsletters, but briefly. There was something I saw recently. I think it was maybe that someone wrote a letter to the Torch about it, but didn't get too specific, but was talking about that, about the discrimination comments and stuff. So, like, it did come up, and maybe it came up in one of the other newsletters besides the big three, you know, more, you know, in more detail. But, like, it's not that it didn't come up. It's not that everyone reading the sheets completely ignored it for a year and a half. Yeah. And the thing about and the thing about Watts is, 
for people that I mean there are people that listen to our show that are you know weren't even alive when this was going on. So to basically you know give you the thoughts on what, how Bill Watts was at that time and and the fans' mind, especially the newsletter fans, is you know for years everybody was like if Paul Heyman had full control of, of WWE. I mean, if Paul Heyman, Paul Heyman, Paul Heyman, Paul Heyman, Paul Heyman, you know, if Paul Heyman had control. That's basically yeah. what Watts was back then. He was the original of that of that thing where the Paul Heyman thing, you know, Bill Watts had. Look what, God, look what we'd be doing here, you know, and all this other stuff. So that that's what Bill Watts was to that fan base at that time. Like Heyman has been for all these years to different to, to the internet fans and stuff. Yeah. The that's hope. What Watts was. It's the hope. Yeah, the hope. We saw Mid South. We saw we saw what he could do in Mid South, you know. Even though he had other people booking, but still he was the guy, the be all end all. But we saw what he could do. We know he could do it here if, if given the chance. Well, not necessarily, because Mid South was a regional territory, not corporate, you know, not you know nationally televised other than that short stint on TBS. And this is a this is a whole different story here in WCW owned by. Turner Broadcasting, you have all these different people you have to answer to, you have to work within a corporate structure. It's totally foreign to somebody like Cowboy Bill Watts. So, yeah, I mean, it's something that he would have had to change with, but he's the guy, like we said, that just will not, wouldn't change. He wouldn't do it. And so, you have to adapt in wrestling. Yeah. So, all right, so let's talk about what happens after our week, Bill Watts removed altogether from WCW after the Mark Madden thing with, you know, talking about Hank Aaron and all the other stuff that went on. Of course, the torch stuff coming out after that, the homophobic remarks, the racial remarks, all that stuff. At the time, when you when you saw that for the first time, what were your thoughts on that? Well, you always have, you know, that that shock of, you know, geez. Okay. You know, cause you didn't, I didn't realize at the time, all the things that he had said when you read it, it's just, okay, well that's, that's it. You got to go. Um, it's just, I don't know. It's, it's hard to, it's, it's hard to understand where those thoughts come from, I guess is the best way to say it. I, I mean, I, I, I saw where, you know, there was some reaction at the time where people were like, well, I'm not surprised. I mean, and, and I, I, you kind of understand that that thought process too with Watts or how he was, that you might not be surprised. But I mean, still, that, that is a big thing. And yeah, no matter what happened, he had to go. I yeah. mean, even even and, and here's the thing, you know, we got this going on this time. Next, do we? I'm trying to remember. Did they even know yet on this meeting by February the second what? what was coming up in the next week oh you mean when according to the torch stuff is madden sending the letter or the fax me faxing the interview to hank aaron hank aaron yeah let me see because i do think it gives i think it gave some of the dates right because i gotta think if they knew but by february the 2nd they wouldn't even got rid of of what they, they would have got rid of Watts completely. Yeah, I mean, they wouldn't I, have set a new orch chart. They wouldn't have set up exactly. a new organization. Yeah, exactly. I would I would have thought they would have pulled the trigger then. Yeah, I mean, because of that, 
it's not like Watts is necessarily lying when he claims that he had already at least decided to resign by the time all that happened. Yeah, because we have this here. Yeah. And, of course, none of this stuff is mentioned. None of the Hank Aaron stuff is mentioned here because it's not reported yet. So he was stripped of his power before that is out there. So that get that, like you said, it gives credence to what Watts has said that he was already on his way out. Yeah, he may have decided he was finished with all that based on the orge chart and just knowing that you know it wasn't going to work. You know, with his, with his type of you know ego and controlling nature, he probably like if this is going to work. I already know. Why am I going to bother? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know okay. I, mean? I found I, it. I need you to pull up a, a February 1993 calendar, though. Well. I do it because I don't think we get specific dates per se. Well, um, wait, I got a calendar. I mean, you tell me because I, I know I know what's going on. Okay, so the thing. Okay, this is. So I'm looking at the Mark Madden how it happened thing. So this is the tort dated February fifteenth. Cover dated. I think it mm-hmm. at, is this at the point where they're still giving the same cover dates as the Observer. Uh, no. So this is, so what, what was the 15th? What day of the week was that? That would have been on a Monday. So he is doing the same cover dates as the torch then. I mean, as the observer, because the observer is Monday. Uh, let me check. Cause I don't think so, it was the 15th. I think torch goes to press in this era, the previous, the Tuesday or Wednesday before the cover date. So what? Yeah, you're right. Observer was the 15th. And Dave mailed on Wednesday back then, if I recall. Yeah, and and the 22nd is the Watts resignation newsletter. So Madden says last Tuesday about when this started. So, okay, so if we're assuming this went out around, so let's say five days, around the 10th. So we we think he's talking about the 9th or the 1st or the 2nd? If it would have been the 10th, then... So that would have been on Wednesday. Well, wait, I'm coming up. Sorry, I'm doing it wrong. Yeah, so wait a second. So, right, the 6th. So, yeah, the 9th would have been a Tuesday. So it's either the 2nd or the 9th, which, given what happened on the 2nd, makes a lot of difference. So so it's, so it's possible, it's possible then, that the Hank Aaron stuff came across either the same day or the day after this. Yeah, I hate that the newsletters do the, all this last Tuesday stuff so often in this era. Oh, God, yes. It, it's, yeah. Dave was worse at that, yes. But, uh, yeah, so it's, it's entirely possible that this day that this decision's made is when that hits Hank Aaron's desk. <laughs> yeah, no one makes if sense he, from a timing perspective. Well, yeah. and yeah. he probably wouldn't be saying last Tuesday in something that had a deadline Probably, if it was the ninth, he probably wouldn't be saying last Tuesday for something that he had a deadline on of the eighth or ninth. So he probably is talking about the second. Yeah. So th- yeah, that, that, <laughs> that explains that? a lot. And how is it that no one ever pointed that out? <laughs> I know. So it's very possible, like I said, and they, and this prop, like I said, it would have hit Hank's desk. He probably wouldn't have read it that day. He probably would have read it when he went back into the office, whether it was day to day after. I mean, I don't. Who knows how? I mean, you know what Hank Aaron's office schedule was because Hank was a very busy man in that era. He he had a lot of businesses. He did a lot of things with the Braves, so he might not have been in the office for a couple of days or so. It may be sitting there, you know. 
Actually, wait, no, he says when he called him back. Let me scroll back up. Uh, all right, uh, I called Aaron. So wait, this is the... I wish this wasn't divided up between so many pages. But, okay, so... Let me just... Okay, so... Let me just read from it then, okay? Might as well, huh? right? All right, yeah. so this is you know, from the February 15th Torch. Special Torch feature, How It Happened, by Mark Madden, staff writer. Move over, Baba. Hank, hit another. A great philosopher... Okay, I'll skip through that, the flowery bullshit. Okay. Uh, okay, so last Tuesday, Hank Aaron did something about the racial climate at World Championship Wrestling and at the whole TBS conglomerate when he forced the resignation of Cowboy Bill Watts. Your humble scribe, suspecting that TBS Vice President Aaron had never seen Watts' racist and homophobic statements in the Torch's 1991 Summer Annual, faxed him said interview, uh, blah, 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 jumped all over it. He spoke to TBS mega executive Terry McGurk, who spoke to Bill Shaw. Okay. Hold on, hold on, hold on. All right, so Dave and Dave said that Watts resigned on the tenth, so maybe it was the ninth. Yeah, for all we know, that could also be Wade's editing saying last Tuesday or whatever. Yeah, so yeah, so Dave said Watts resigned on the morning of February tenth. That would be the next day after the ninth. Yeah, so it probably so that'd the be the, that'd be the Wednesday. So it had to be the ninth. So so it was the day after our week. So it was a week after. It was all when the all this stuff went e- down. when all this news hit. Oh, this would have been in the in the newsletter. Yes, yeah, because Dave, Dave's um, the story on the the bloodletting on uh, February second was on the the fifteenth. Yeah, and the next so, one was the twenty second. Absolutely. So yeah, so when he was writing that on the ninth or tenth was when this occurred with with Watts as far as the Aaron stuff, right? And you know, and you know, and you and you know, Madden and Wade are talking. Oh, and okay, and here we go. This this makes it perfectly clear. So if he was. If he was officially gone on the 10th, what Madden writes later on is, that was Tuesday, referring to his conversation with Aaron. Wednesday, Bill Watts was gone. And then he talked to Hank Aaron again on Wednesday after Watts was gone. There you go. Yep. So, yeah. So, he gets this demotion. The Okay, so wait, when was the clash, though, that sparked the Madden to send it to him? January 93 clash? Was it the January 93 clash where he ha- he was shown on camera with bots? I mean... Separate, separate from no, the no, clash no, 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 stuff. No, 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 The on-camera was in Macon, November 18th. So why... Okay, so why did he wait? I mean, not that it matters, but I'm, I wonder why he didn't do it until... Oh, no, no, no. Wait, I'm an idiot. No, we know. Because of the March shot publicity is why he did it when he did. Yeah, March... Because Aaron had been very outspoken about that, and yeah, remember. You know, oh no, it wasn't about... a class mix; it was Starcade. That's right. Okay, but remember, he went into it thinking that Aaron knew about it and was a hypocrite. Starcade '92 was December twenty eighth. But but remember, like Madden swore, and I do believe him on this, that he was not trying to get Watts. He was thinking that it was going to turn out that Hank Aaron had. Like, quote-unquote, everyone else in TBS Brass read the whole interview and knew about it. He thought that this was about, you know, his childhood hero being a hypocrite, and then turned out, oh, no, he had no idea. The bigger name. He was going for the bigger name. Yep. Absolutely. But anyway, that's the the situation in the creative and the uh, structural hierarchy at WCW. No, so one, one point, if I could jump in. Sure, um, jump, this is it. about Ross. Um, yeah. 
and it kind of illustrates a problem that WCW always had was that if they want to take Ross down a peg or change or do whatever they need to do with Ross, they didn't still think about the fact of, well, what is his best contribution to our product? What does he do best that would serve us the best? And that is the commentary end of things on big matches, pay-per-views, clashes, etc. So they're willing to hurt themselves because they don't know how to understand or evaluate talent. Well, I, I, well, here's something too. I wonder real quick before Bix jumps in. Yeah. I wonder how much Jesse Ventura played a role in all this. Interesting. Because Jesse Ventura did, and Jim Ross did not get along, and Jesse and Tony got along greatly. So it makes you wonder. And Jesse's a big money player. He's getting paid a big contract. Of course, guys like Bob Dew and Bill Shaw are going to look at that like, wait a minute. You know, we're paying Jesse this money. We need to make him happy. You know, kind of, yeah. kind of wonder there. Go ahead, Bix. Plus, Watts had things too. Sorry, Bix. Uh, Watts also what he sent memos to Ventura too, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So because they didn't go on. But if we're being realistic, it's twofold. If it's not for Bischoff coming in as EP and well, and or at least all the other stuff associated with that. The logical thing to do, even if you don't want Watts' protege to have power anymore, is to just take JR out of power and keep him as an announcer. Which, but, as, as is said here, he was still going to be an announcer on a trial run with Oh, Jesse so it's the following week. It, the following well, no, week he, is when yeah. the other stuff goes through. Okay. Yeah, he, he was still going to announce worldwide. He, they just wanted him off TBS. Okay. And then it so, turned well, and then Bischoff didn't want the TV to well, come off as Southern anyway, as I mean, he says. So. It, yeah, but Jesse probably had something to do with that too. You know, Jesse's like, I already worked with this guy on pay per view. You know, I mean, yeah. I, 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 I can see Jesse having a voice in all this. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah, it's interesting. All right, let's talk about Ric Flair. We may have been hanging up on Ric Flair coming to WCW surface this past week. According to several WCW officials, it confirmed on the Jim Ross 900 line on Saturday, Flair has yet to receive official written contract release from Vince McMahon. Even though reportedly McMahon gave him a verbal okay months back. WCW received a release from Titan. However, the release wasn't signed. Going under the assumption that it was an honest error, it was sent back, but this time the release that came back wasn't notarized. Apparently, this second miscue happened early this past week and caused several of those officials to reevaluate the situation and wonder if someone wasn't dealing in good faith. Huh. No. Word was given to the PR department to eliminate all references to Flair, all advertising of Flair, or talk of Flair beginning a Super Bowl until the situation was settled. While this was going on, Flair was in Europe finishing up his commitments with WF, but his final date being on February the 10th. Originally, the announcement of Flair's return to Super Brawl was scheduled for the February 13th TBS show, but everything is now on hold until a league release from Titan is received. Since the final two Saturday TBS shows were taped before Super Brawl were taped on February the 8th, it would require late additions if Flair could appear in Super Brawl, which would be in a non-wrestling role. That wouldn't air until the day before the show. If things aren't straight up this week, that appearance would be in serious doubt. And then we get into this. The reason Lex Luger, whose contract at WCW didn't expire until March the 1st, 1993, was able to start with Titan on January 24th was because Watts released him from the last five weeks of his contract period. Luger had appeared on a few WF telecasts as part of WBF immediately after jumping from WCW. 
However, then WCW Vice President Kip Fry filed suit against Luger, which prevented him from appearing on any wrestling telecast until March 1st. Due to the release, Fry had signed with Luger, allowing him to leave WCW one year early. And I'm guessing that Watts thought that being nice in that case might have gotten WWF to be better about Flair's release than they actually ended up being. Because Watts had zero incentive to do that otherwise. But and we we've had that theory we put on this show about the trade, so right. we'll let you we'll let you have Luger early if you let us have Flair. But you know the, the release comes in the next week, and Flair's eventually you know able to be billed for Super Bowl and stuff like that. But John, what about this political gamesmanship here by uh, Vincent Mann towards WCW with Flair? Huh? Yeah, it's it's all what he does. It's what they do. You know, it's it. I didn't. You know, I wasn't surprised by any of that. And you know, oh yeah, here's our release. Oh, we didn't sign. Sorry. Well, we'll we'll get it to you. Then they don't notarize. You know, yeah. It's just WWF games. Yeah. They they still play them. Oh, of <laughs> course. Yeah. Just ask Mustafa Ali. But uh, I, I mean, well. <laughs> The thing it's uh, sorry, I didn't have my volume all the way up. The thing it seems like they don't do as much anymore, but they used to do a lot, as we've talked about on these shows, is say they're giving you the release and then slow foot it for weeks. That it doesn't seem like they're doing anymore. They're just not giving you a release, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's like I, I saw uh, somebody say the best way to guarantee job security in WWE is ask for your release. <laughs> <laughs> Probably true. In some cases, yes. But, uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's like I said here, Flair was still in Europe, so he couldn't have been a center stage on the 8th because he's still in Europe on WF. So they would have had had to do some type of pre-tape announcement no matter what. So he wouldn't have been, you know, in in center stage or anything like that for any type of live appearance. Well, wait a second, Chris. You're expecting WCW Bryce in 1993 to know how space and time work? Well, yeah, yeah, you're right. What am I thinking? But uh, we all know how this turns out. Flair does come in. Now, now Luger, yeah, I mean, again, that's all part of the game. All part of the game that's played. And Luger's able to be the Royal Rumble, and the rest is history there. All right, let's go to WCW Saturday night, February the 6th. Although it was one of the hottest television angles in a long time, and the match was great, the Rock and Roll Heavy Bodies deal on television was somewhat marred because the people who had the show cut out about four sentences by Jim Cornette, which is why when watching the show, it appeared the mic kept going out. What they did was muted Cornette's lines because certain people felt they didn't want someone who doesn't work for the company going on television and knocking the company, not understanding that was part of the reason why the angle was so good. Now... We're going to play this before I get into what Dave talks about was cut out. Now, this, what we have here is the version that aired on Smoky Mountain Wrestling, which is the unedited version. But the unedited version did appear on TBS. Not on Saturday night, though. It appeared on, I think, the main event. Either the main event or one of the the other shows on TBS. Power Hour. Something like that. It was Power Hour main event for sure, though. So they did air it on TBS, not on the Saturday night show. So, well, in that case, seemingly by mistake, too. Yeah, of course, WC, everybody. So let's go to the clip, and let's hear Jim Cornette go scorched earth on Cowboy Bill Watts. One sec, I was trying to do this screen share, and it wasn't popping up the right thing. There we go. All right. 
Executive, huh? Big man, big vice president, big cowboy, Bill Watson. And just for the setup, since this doesn't have it, um, the bodies and Cornette all in street clothes, though Cornette in one of his usual types of suits, had come in through the crowd with their Smoky Mountain tag titles. And yes. then Watts comes out to confront them. Although, I forget, does Cornette demand Watts come out? Uh, yes. And, and what's Bill Watts wearing? He's wearing a jeans. dress shirt, tie, suit, a sports coat, and jeans, yes. Yes, jeans. I'd love to know how much uh, the, whatchamacallit, the CBS Saturday Night version that Bischoff or whoever edited, I'd like to know how many shots of his jeans we get in that. Yeah, I'd be curious, too. You got a problem with the phones, huh, at CNN, huh? Got a problem with the telephones? You don't want to talk to Jim Cornette? I walked out on this stinking company for less than you. Let me tell you something. I got a problem, and I'm going to explain this. Matter of fact, I'll tie one half of my brain behind my back where it will be even, okay? I walked out of here, and so did Stan Lane two years ago, because the people that run this crummy, stinking company tried to make the Midnight Express look like a bunch of idiots. I hated Jim Hurd with a pea purple passion, and I ain't too warm on you. We left. We took, and we found Dr. Tom Pritchard, and we formed another tag team, the Heavenly Bodies, and we went to Smoky Mountain Wrestling, where they appreciate wrestling talent, and we became the tag team champions of Smoky Mountain Wrestling. And then all of a sudden, like some kind of cancer, the Rock and Roll Express reoccurs, and they come, and they steal our tag team belts. And before we can do anything about that, I'm sitting at home in Knoxville, Tennessee. I'm watching television, and I turn on in front of God and everybody on national TV. You're showing a bunch of videotapes of the Rock and Roll Express beating our brains out. Well, let me tell you, shut up. Let me tell you something right now, Bill Watts. I ain't going to stand for it. I broke up the Midnight Express because I didn't want TBS to make them look like idiots. And I'll be damned if I'll let you do it to Heavenly Bodies and we don't even work here. So I called beautiful Bobby and brought him back to the phone, a man you've misused and abused for two years here. And we got our tag team belts back. And now what I want from you is a public apology, Watts, to all those people that you showed that videotape to. I want a public apology trying to embarrass us, make us look like clowns. And if I don't get it, then brother, I'm going to file suit. I'm going to sue you. I'm going to sue TBS. I'm going to sue WCW. I'm going to sue Tim Turner if I've got to. But I'll raise such a big stink about this that before it's over with, you're going to be swabbing out toilets at CNN and popping popcorn at TBS. First of all, sissy, keep your hands off of me because I don't want to have to have my foot tested. <sighs> now, did that make it into the TBS version? Yes. I think it did. Yeah, it did. That's what I thought. Yeah, it did. Yeah. Maybe this is the, uh, the fallout of what you mentioned earlier, Chris, about the divisions. You know, you had a syndicated that did their thing. <clears throat> You know, and then, you know, you have different divisions doing their own thing. Maybe somebody in syndication didn't realize, oh, I got to let this go. I got to let this air as it is. Well, you know what? Try to play games with it. That makes me think that you brought that up. It was probably main event because, though not identical, the bulk of the TBS and syndicated versions of main event were the same each week. Mm -hmm. There was like an extra match in syndication or something 
because of the differences in commercial time. But that could explain that. Because yep. as we've talked about many times, it's changed, you know, it changed under Watts, really, I would say. But for a long time in WCW, the syndicated shows, especially pro, felt like it took place in a different universe than the TBS shows. Mm-hmm. Yep. Absolutely. Anyway, back to uh, 1993 Bill Watts that thinking that HIV can be transmitted by touch. Now let's straighten one thing out. You've run your mouth. There's a lot of people I'd apologize to, but you're not one of them. Everything we showed on this program, we had all the releases and all the clearances, and we've been working hand in glove with Bob Armstrong, who's the commissioner of Smoky Mountain Wrestling. You're the biggest mouth there, but you don't carry a lot of weight. Boy, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You do carry a lot of weight. The next time you butt in on our show, I'll have Doug Dillinger and Atlanta's finest walk your little, your big butt right down to the Crossbar Hotel, and we'll put you in jail. I'll tell you who you ought to put in jail. You ought to have the Rock and Roll Express arrested for murder. They came out here last week and killed your ratings. You bring them out here like Henry Kissinger at a state dinner, send them there, slapping us in the face, they're losers. We beat them. And rock and roll. That ring right out there is neutral ground. And I'll tell you, if you guys want to get your tails out there, we'll let you settle. Why don't you get that ring and hook them so what we have here is they're in their street clothes and they get into an impromptu match so this is the uh, clips of the match now so let's watch this between two great teams currently campaigning in the smoky mountain area side rushing left sweep by lane and ricky morton may be may be just moments away from defeat here on wcw saturday night by the way Seeing Stan wrestling in, you know, his Zubaz-ish pants and his, you know, his tennis shoes and his no shirt, boy, uh, is does it sure seem obvious that there might have been something to what Lauren Boebert's mother said about him having been on steroids for the previous several years. Because <laughs> he looks very different. <laughs> yes, he does. Yes, he does. It's not nearly as noticeable in his gear, though. No, but in his normal street clothes, yes, you see it. Yes, which is, you know, whatever, good for, you know, good for him if he felt like he didn't need to be on the gas anymore or whatever, you know? Yeah. But, yeah, well, especially if you're in Smoky Mountain Wrestling, but, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Obviously, the chamber of the heavenly bodies is being effective. It's got Morton in trouble. Bobby Eaton is at ringside and has taken off his shirt for no apparent reason. Why not? Okay, so just to summarize everyone's fits here. <laughs> Stan is wearing white Zubaz-style gym pants. Yes. Um, Tom is wearing... what? What is that? Like a... Like a, almost like a dark, like a magenta uh, yeah, Zubaz-type pants. Yes. I can't quite tell what Robert is wearing. It looks... 
It's something that looks nicer than everyone else's pants, but it's still clearly something he can be physical in. Yeah. It, but it's some kind of gray pants. And Ricky's just wearing red sweatpants. Of course. He's letting it air out. Yeah. Yeah. Sold the whole place out, Bubba. See? Okay, I'd be very curious to see how this was edited on WCW TV because even though it's not like a side on camera angle or that close, it's very obvious that Robert's half of the double dropkick misses. <laughs> Which happened sometimes. It's going to be a kind of margin for error that's there with that move, yes. Yeah, it happens. <laughs> it happens. But right. I, I mention it because this is like semi-raw footage. In a way. is also more obvious with the street clothes. Wait, is this Mike Atkinson's last appearance on TV? Jesus! That was hard. Who is that? That he hit the... Job. Well, at this down. time, he's technically a participant in the underdog challenge. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I've seen him. Uh, and that guy looks like he's legit fucked up. From how hard he got hit with the racket in the head. Wow. All right, let's close out what Dave said, and then we'll talk about this. All right, so what was cut out from TBS was Cornette saying he hated Jim Hurd. Uh, how he broke up the Midnight Express because the company was trying to turn him into something they weren't. Threatened to sue Watts, TBS, and everyone else. That Dave says that suing is someone every, something everyone is a bit touchy about nowadays. And they also cut a line where Cornette was yelling at Morton and Gibson and said they'll sell it on February 19th in Knoxville, which is a Smoky Mountain card. Oh, that made no sense when Watts came back and told him not to be talking about something our fans don't know or care anything about. Watts had okayed all those lines beforehand. Cornette ended up going on Jim Ross's radio show the next night and got his digs in on Jim Hearn and got to plug all of the Smoky Mountain days in February. <laughs> <laughs> That's the, this the one one of the big things about the whole Watts thing falling apart, John, is this whole Smoky Mountain thing seemed fresh. You know, it really did. Yeah, it gave them life, you know, and and That's how the fans were for all that. Oh yeah, they were hot, you know, and and I always like the value of good promos. You know, established oh, history. Uh, you, you had the history there, and Cornette was on fire. Yeah, and Cornette, yeah, because he, he was he he does literally hate her. At least he did yes. then. Um, so I, you know, when when Cornette's on fire and he's talking from his heart, he's 
he's on. Um, I like that promo too. I don't know if you noticed, everybody's really focused on what Cornette has to say. And, and then you have behind Cornette, Tom Pritchard playing with his hair constantly. <laughs> yeah. Shining the belt, unzipping, <laughs> zipping his coat. Had everybody side conversations whispering with Stan Lane. <laughs> yeah. It's like, everybody's really into it, but, but Pritchard's in another universe. Um, but anyway, yeah, I mean, it was, it was, a, it was good stuff. You know, and then I think Watts and Cornette have a good chemistry, you know. Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it hit the right it hit the right feels, you know, for people who did want to see Watts back. You know, that was one of those things that you're like, yes. But, yeah, it was good stuff. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Go ahead. Also, I do wonder with all of the baggage coming out of this and knowing that Watts basically signed the developmental deal with Cornette as his last act to make sure that Cornette got the money he was going to be promised, even if nothing comes of it. It sure is interesting that it's after all that that WCW suddenly starts running a lot of TV tapings with a lot of papering with tickets available at stores throughout the markets in Knoxville and the Tri-Cities. Yes. Yeah. for some reason, I had never heard brought up before until Bo James brought it up to us, but it was absolutely right. Like, D- Smoky Mountain has some real momentum at this time, and boy, does it come grinding to a halt as the year goes on. In a way, yeah, absolutely. And But, but yeah, I mean... It, Could it have been it, by it design? Just, I don't know. It's like, yeah, it's possible, but, I mean, just like, I just remember watching this television going like, man, this is, this is fantastic. You know, seeing the seeing Cornette back in WCW, we got this, you know, the three heavenly bodies thing. Rock and rolls are motivated again because, I mean, the last time they were in WCW, Morton was fucking York Foundation. Richard Morton, you know, yeah, and him and Robert hadn't been together since 1990. You know, you know when they're feuding with each other in '91, and the fans always on the Rock and Roll Express. So, I mean. You got you get you got there there and it's different than what's you know going on in WCW at the time. It's just different feel. You got you got this guy from outside company. You're getting footage from another company's television on the air. Bob Armstrong showing up, cutting promos. It's just it, yeah, it just it felt like it was something that was desperately needed. But I can also see where somebody like Eric Bischoff's like, this isn't national television. You know, this is regional. This is true. And I could see him. I could see him in the ears of Bob Du and Bill Shaw. Like, this is not the direction we need to be going in. Yeah, we don't we shouldn't be associating with a lower level promotion, et cetera. Exactly. We shouldn't be we shouldn't be regional. We should be national. And and Bischoff, he preaches that, you know, every interview he does, when he talks about, you know, this first year making the deal with Disney, you know, getting yourself into that stratosphere where you're seen as a national wrestling promotion. Your, yes. your, your, your Q rating is changing from being just where we're Southern wrestling to being sports entertainment to, that appeals to a broader audience. He, he was one of the first people there that got into power that understood the idea of perception. Absolutely. Yep. And that was something Vince was always a master with, you know, Oh God, is the, is the perception. I mean, that's everything to them. And Eric was the first guy to come in and go, we've got to change our perception. And that was always the key. Whenever they even got into trouble, 
the problem was they had been too far to the bad perception. They needed to correct themselves. But he understood perception was important. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, this show drew a 2.6 rating. Sting and Wyndham was the main event on the show. Of course, you had the Rock and Roll Heavy Bodies. Main event did a 2.4. Power Hour, 1.5. So, I mean, Big Stacks, I mean, good ratings, you know? I mean, they pretty much always had good ratings. Even when ratings were down, they had good ratings. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Rock and Roll Express was killing the ratings, as Cornette said. Good bit of murder. <laughs> but here's one department they're struggling in. House shows. Well, oh, actually, I should say real quick, that's probably yeah. also a bit of Cornette making an inside joke because he knows because he was booking the TV at the time. He knows that the record high watermark of the last few years for TBS wrestling was a Rock and Roll Express match. Yeah. <laughs> Them against Flair, Flair and Arn on yep. the February 18th, 1990 uh, main event. Yeah. House show, Huntsville, Alabama, Madison County Coliseum, 800 fans on February the 5th for this lineup. Opening match, Sergeant Buddy Lee Parker over Mustafa Saeed. Yes, Mustafa the Gangsters. Yeah, that's right. Chris Benoit over Conan Chris Walker. Or Steve, well, not nor Stephen Regal, Steve Regal over Tony Atlas. The Wrecking Crew over Tom Zink and Johnny Gunn. That jobber Tom Brandy. Katniss Jack over Paul Orndorff, and then Dustin Rhodes retained U.S. title over Barry Windham. 800 fans. Oof. Omni on the, on the 7th, 4,600 fans. But that's with $2 kids' prices, and the gate was only $22,000. Not good. It's afternoon show, too. When Vinny Vegas came out for his match, Van Hammer, still injured, got on the house, might to challenge it to a left-handed arm wrestling match. Hammer was booed out of the building so vociferously and by a crowd that was mainly kids, he quit his interview in mid-sentence and went back to the dressing room. <laughs> Yikes. I wish it was a tape of that. <laughs> yeah, I know. Sting and Vader had a new Screwjob finish. Sting had Vader in a Scorpion. Harley Race rang the, be- rang the bell. Sting got up thinking he won. When the Rev told him the match was still going on, Sting grabbed the belt, hit Vader with it, and got DQ'd. All right, here's the results of this show. Steven Regal over Tex Slasinger in your opening match. The Wrecking Crew over Joey Mag, someone for Brad Armstrong, who's in Japan, and Marcus Alexander Bagwell. Tuco Scorpio over Scotty Flamingo. Chris Benoit over Tom Zink. Vinny Vegas over Johnny Gunn, subbing for Van Hammer. He walked out, so Johnny Gunn <laughs> took his spot. Amazing. Fallen over Cactus Jack. Vader over Sting by DQ. And in your main event, an elimination match, Dustin Rhodes and Ricky Steamboat and Shane Douglas beat Barry Windham, Steve Austin, and Brian Pillman in 25 minutes, where um, Douglas was pinned, Pillman was pinned four seconds later, Windham and Rhodes were counted out, Steamboat pinned Austin, when a moment across the body by Austin put Steamboat on top, and then after the match, Austin and Pillman attacked Steamboat, and others made the save. So, hell of a main event there, but not good. Not good house show stuff, and this was a major problem for WCW for many years, John. They could not, they could not uh, have a find a way to have a successful house show department. Yeah, it's, you know, I saw some of it here in Detroit when it played out. You know, they would they would come in with a loaded show, then chain, you know, do some bad finishes, come back with a less loaded show. They they never could hit a stride of how to book. And then satisfy people at the end of the show to where they, you know, are intrigued again to come back. Um, and it, it, 
you know, if you went through it, you'd, you'd have multiple reasons. But yeah, it's just it's disappointing how that went. And it comes down to just not understanding how to deliver a, a good show that made people want to come back. Yeah. And whatever went on with TV, too, you know, obviously whatever was going on with TV would influence that stuff, too. Yeah, absolutely. Oof. Bix, any thoughts on these house shows? Um, not really, because I feel like the 93 stuff, at least from the handhelds we have, it's like stuff that, I mean, not all of it, but a lot of it looks good on paper, at least the matches, and then you see them and they're not quite as good as you expected them to be. That happens a lot. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. the, the Dustin Windham matches that we have are, I would say, if not outright live up to the expectations, are pretty close. But otherwise, like, they're just dull and they generally have lineups that you can see why they didn't draw on top of WCW's live event incompetence. So yeah. it's just whatever, you know, you know, at least the Omni drew decently. Well, not the decent gate, 22,000. No, decent <laughs> number of people. Yeah. I was center stage on the 8th, besides taping the shows for the 13 and 20, I've included three matches from the TV tournament and two tryouts. Getting tryouts were Big Sky, Fullman Nitron, real name Daryl Carolette, who was wearing his boots with a big lift, so he looked these seven feet tall and looked terrible pinning Shanghai Pierce. Both was working as heels in this match. Also getting a tryout was the Tasmaniac, who pinned Joey Max. Taz didn't look good as usual, but was a lot better than Nitron. Well, imagine you know, if he would have got work here. <laughs> what I like the idea is if, I, if I'm going to have a trial for somebody, don't you want to have them in a situation where they can really show you what they what they can do and then you're going to have two heels? Yeah, that was, yeah, that's ridiculous. I mean, the the Taz match, you put him against Joey Maggs. Joey Maggs is you know, a good worker. It's a guy who can make you look good. But, I mean, and, not, and Shanghai Pierce is a good worker too. But to have two heels against each other, I mean, that's – at this time, that's illogical, you know, to try to showcase, you know, try to showcase somebody. But it is WCW, so what we <laughs> The TV title tournament, which starts this coming weekend, was announced as being split into two divisions. The Anderson Conference, in which all the matches were on worldwide. They have a first round of Eric Watts against Johnny Gunn, Max Payne against Marcus Bagwell, Robbie V, Rob Van Dam against Shanghai Pierce, and Vinny Vegas against Van Hammer. And the Wrestling 2 Conference, where those matches will air on the main event, we'll have Paul Orndorff against Tuco Scorpio, Cactus against Tom Sink, Regal against Barbarian, and Chris Wong against Johnny B. Bad. Just like the U.S. title tournament that seemingly just ended, this once again shows the lack of talent depth in this company. And by the way, they never say which Anderson it's named for. <laughs> uh, no, they don't, but I'm guessing the inference is it's Oli. I would guess. I don't think it's going to be Gene, but who knows? It could be Gene. You know, could be. Lars. It ain't Lars, I tell you that. <laughs> All right, so... Um, I can only imagine what Bill Watts would have thought of uh, Lars Anderson in this era. <laughs> Matches taped on the eighth and the two conference. Saw Orndorff over Scorpio when Scorpio went to the top for his finisher. Slipped, crotched himself, and fell in to be pinned. Well, that would Cat certainly finish him off. <laughs> yeah. Cactus over Tom Zink with a Kabashi DDT. And Johnny B. Bad over Chris Benoit when Benoit had to drink a suplex, but pinned himself since Bad got his shoulder up. Then I guess that's first sign of booking by an extended committee. So taking this a step far, there is Katniss against Paul Orndorff in one semifinal. 
and Johnny Bad against Re uh, the Regal or the Barbarian. And to be clear, yeah. this is babyface Steve Regal. This is not Lord Stephen. Yes. The 13th is headlined by Win the Minordorf against Rhodes and Cactus, which ends when Cactus hits order for the shovel for disqualification. Shane Douglas appeared to have a bad knee since he never tagged in during his tag match Ricky Steamboat was limping badly when the cameras were off. Shane Douglas is injured? Can't believe that. <laughs> Rick James? Well, wait, 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 wait a second, though. I thought the Douglas injury here was his shoulder. Yeah, I think he had both. Uh, oh, oh, oh <laughs> Shane Douglas having multiple serious injuries at the same time? Yes, shocking. It's a miracle that he, Jesus, it's a miracle he got through the next three years then. That's crazy. Rick James. Rick James, bitch, was destroyed by Vader, including having his nose busted with blood pouring everywhere. After winning, Vader put face paint on James like Sting and started whipping him with a belt until the referee reversed the decision. Wait, is this probably Rick Thames? It's gotta be Rick Thames. I would think. Oh no! Um WCW has some interesting jobber names in this era. Let me see. So this was the thirteenth. Uh, let's see here. Thirteen. WCW thirteen. Uh, Vader against Rick Thames. Yep, Rick Thames. Ding ding, okay. ding ding ding. Good call. Yes. Oh God! Uh, now someone's gonna come up with a, a Rick Thames <laughs> bitch uh, bit or something. Yeah. Also, Austin claimed Bagwell couldn't last ten minutes with him, so of course he did. I heard Bagwell couldn't last 10 minutes with a lot of people, but there you go. On February 20th, day for the pay-per-view, Watts announced the Heavenly Bodies versus the Rock and Roll match. It said any two of the three bodies could wrestle in the match. This is the day before Super Brawl that this was announced. Max Payne said he was going to debut Norma Jean in the pay-per-view. Jobber Chris Sullivan got the same treatment from Vader. Vader also destroyed several other jobbers to try to make the save until Sting came in. TV main event was still Steamboat and Pillman in a Lumberjack match, ending when Austin held Steamboat. Pillman for a clothesline. Steamboat moved. Pillman hit Austin. Steamboat school boarded from the win. There were tons of We Want Flair chants throughout the taping. Of course. They, they know what's going on. So, this is the build-up for Super Brawl, the TV here. And, John, what's your thoughts on the lay of the land at the time? The Sting Vader stuff, uh, Pillman and Austin against uh, Douglas uh, Steamboat. What, what, what are your thoughts on how everything's going on here? I, I like those programs. I mean, that that was all fine with me. Um, you know, it had some focus at least. Uh, you know, in, in the Vader stuff, I was a you know I was a fan of Vader too. So, you know, I enjoyed it at the time. And anytime Ricky Steamboat's there, you're good. And I you know it helped for Austin and Pillman to be working you know with those guys. Um, so yeah, I, I liked it. I enjoyed that little window, those matches at least. They had a lot of the. If you look at it, you've got Cactus Jack there. You've got Benoit there, Pillman Austin. You had building blocks. Yeah, absolutely. It's just a matter of, you know, they weren't necessarily being positioned properly. I think they liked Benoit from the um, Japan tour in 92 in August, and that's why he ended up there. Yes, well, um, Watts wanted to bring him in that we talked about earlier. He was trying to get him in. Yeah. Yeah, um, and that's where at because Watts was there in Japan in August 92. Yeah, well, and, and and let's go back, you know, 85, Watts wanted to bring in Dynamite and David to Mid-South. Right. Never happened, but he wanted, he wanted to bring them in. Yeah, so, well, you know, Joel, Joel wanted to bring them in, and he had to convince Bill, and eventually did, and by the time he did, they had signed with Vince. So, you know, they, I like what they had. They had the building blocks there, and they, they had some talent. Too Cold Scorpio. Um, you know, it's... It's a shame they had Van Dam early on, and and you want to be early on talent, 
not late. It just they they didn't put it together. I mean, they got a lot of young talent here. I mean, Sting is still not you know Sting is still in his prime. You got young Benoit. You got young Regal. You got you know Cactus is Cactus, fr- yeah, fresh as a baby face. Dustin's starting to ascend as a singles guy. Wyndham is you know becoming one you know a tremendous heel and becoming you know really probably the peak of his work in some ways. Pillman was red hot as a heel. Austin had turned the corner and was now becoming, you know, red hot. You got, you got these guys, you, Vinny Vegas, you got Vinny Vegas here. You got, you know, um, Scotty Flamingo is here. Yeah. Vader, of course, is on top of his game at this point in time. There's things, there's people, there's pieces that could be put in place and if done right and with the proper patience. Yes. Could be, that's the thing, John, you know, that, when, when you have this, when you have this, you got to have somebody that has patience that see that could see this through. Yeah, and, and you want you want that patience, and you also have that you know I'm not gonna I'm gonna expect bumps in the road. Um, so you're you're riding that out, and you have to have faith in the talent. And I know at the time from talking to people and, and just in general wrestling conversations, the names we're going through here, people believed in then. Yep. But for whatever reason. They didn't put it together here. You know, they didn't put them in the right spots. They didn't feature them the right way. They didn't come up with something compelling to make people get, get on board earlier. You know, it's, it was all there. Or not all necessarily, but definitely enough. You, you had enough there to where if you just not held on to some of the past maybe as much. Yeah, and, 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 and look, that's what you mentioned. Rude is, is around. He's coming yep. up from his injury. Davey's coming in. Johnny B. Bass here. I mean – there, there, there are, are so many pieces that would become players as time goes on. Yes, and here they are here. Yes, younger Ron Simmons. Ron, Ron Simmons, Simmons. Yes. Yeah, I mean, Steamboat for God's sakes. Flair's coming in. Yeah, I, I, I mean, there's so much. Yeah, they they could have they could have ran Flair against any number of people through there. Benoit, you know, at that point in time. Yeah, if they had elevated him through time or just given him the time to be seasoned, right? I mean, you had yeah. all you had a lot of good pieces here to use. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and you had a deal in place with Smoky Mountain that you could, you know, you could work around with that. I mean, there's stuff that you could that could be done here that has the look, okay, if they put it together, they're gonna have something. Yep. But it doesn't happen. And, and then they put the TV title was on Orndorff, right? They put the the title on Orndorff, yeah. yeah. Which you know that would have been a time to put it on somebody younger. Not that I don't like Orndorff. It's just that if if you're going to be moving towards the future, you need to start finding those little spotlight moments for the the people who are going to be your future. Yeah, because Orndorff's a guy who you use him to get people over at this point in time. You know, even though he's having a hell of a run. You still use him in that way because he's Paul Orndorff. You know, he can right. afford to do that. He's at that point in his career. He's got the cachet. Yeah. And, and you know, if you run a term like that, the idea of somebody newer or younger coming out of that as the winner, not that you couldn't wrap around with Orndorff and have him feud with whoever had won. Um, you know, you, you could have used a younger talent there to give the tournament win to be the champion and then do some different things. But, you know. I would, I, yeah, I would have went with either Scorpio or Cactus. Yeah. 
they were the two hottest cactus, but yeah, Scorpio. Yeah, they were the two. They were the two hottest guys as far as baby faces. Yeah. Absolutely. All right, Bob Armstrong, Jim Cornette, Henley Bodies are scheduled for the February 19th TV taping in Gainesville, Georgia. They were at their February 1st show to an angle, but couldn't appear when the taping was stopped early because of a flood backstage. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dave Boy Smith's photo for the pay-per-view has yet to be decided, but it'll be someone from another office with one name bounced around being Killer Kyle. It was Wild Bill Irwin, <laughs> <laughs> which was an odd, odd move there, but whatever. Davey and Sting are in the UK this week for a promotional tour. So there's that. Torch has born Johnny Bad. Johnny Bad's contract expires this month and must be WF bound. He was earning 156000 guaranteed, and the offer was dropped to a 70000 guaranteed. Yikes. With potential for 180 if he worked every night of the year and earned all of his <laughs> bonuses. <laughs> just, just every night. Jesus. Well, hey, this is WCW, though. They weren't working a lot of house shows. True. So there is that, Bix. I mean, well, you're saying it's no, they are not. running a decent number at this time, though. They're just not drawing, even by WCW, early 90s standards. They're running more than what they were in, as 93 goes along, but they're not running every night. No, but still, like, I mean, is there I'm any indication, our, though, looking, that they I'm thought they were making week. money? Go ahead. I'm looking at Wait, they take TV in Columbus on the 2nd. Then they had Huntsville on the 5th. They had a uh, spot show at Carrollton on the 6th, Omni on the 7th, Center Stage on the 8th, Gainesville on the 9th. So that was, you know, in that week. So they were working, I mean, that's just what we had results for. So they had a couple of days off. Okay, I'm going to Mark Marrow's cage match and putting in 1993, okay, on the right. search to see how many matches he worked that year. And it's WCW, so we can assume, even if we don't have everything, we have... What would you say? 90% of the results? Um, probably. I think that's a decent guess. He still has 110 matches that year. Yeah, we well, got TV too, where he's working, you know, a couple of times maybe still, on the show. Oh, that is, that is, uh, that is a pretty sizable schedule. Yeah. But anyway. What, John, what do you think Johnny B. Bass prospects in 1993 would have been though, if he would have went there? Probably not good. <laughs> not good at all um because they were getting they were starting to head downward more drastically right so yeah they would they wouldn't have they wouldn't have uh probably treated him well with whatever gimmick they threw at him that's yeah that's the thing what what kind of gimmick would he have gotten in 93 you know that would have been because we yeah. see what happens in 96 he, you know wild man marmero you, you gotta think in 93 they would have been more cartoony oh for sure yeah, it would have it would have been some insane. And at that point, they were they were at the you know, we're at the bottom level of our gimmicks, at least in most cases, we're at the bottom level of whatever gimmicks we've came up with over the years. Not right? yet. They'd like not, run not out yet. of things. The, the, ne the next year, 94, <laughs> the bottom. That's wrong. <laughs> the bottom. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I knew it was coming. Yeah, it's coming. Yeah, we, we haven't got there yet. We're getting there. 94 is the, the worst. But uh, yeah, it would have been interesting to see him there. Just like this. Torch also said Dime Nails Page's contract expired. He was on offer to guarantee and listen to be Smoky Mountain bound. Oh yeah, they had DDP then. Yeah. And he doesn't go to Smoky Mountain, but he would have been an interesting fit there. Got a talk. He could have been, you know, in some decent views. Put him in good workers, got better in the ring. Oh, for sure. It it, it makes you wonder what happened here and why, you know, because he's not in WCW, he leaves. 
but it makes you wonder what happens if he does go to Smokey, you know, and how he fits in in 93 Smokey as well. Been, I think it would have been pretty good for him. But it worked out anyway. Yeah. Jason Ventura was sent a memo from Watts reprimanding him for not being serious enough as an analyst. That goes back to what we were talking about. I tell you, Ventura probably had a lot of opinions on all this. Don't you think now? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and especially knowing if they were going to pair him up with Ross, he's probably thinking, oh, great. Here we go. Well, who do you, who do you think is probably in Bill Watts' ear? Yeah. Where Jim the memo Ross. Come from, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. There you go, Bix. That sounds like Jim Ross all in Watts' face. You know? This is what it feels like to me. Yeah. Which, you know, and as we've said, though, too, a, a bunch of times when their issues come up, like, for as much as JR doesn't think they had good chemistry, they had a less friendly version of his chemistry with Heyman. Like, they weren't as smooth together, obviously, as Jesse and Tony, because they enjoyed each other's company. But as a TV product, the announcing was good, and the antagonism, at least as it projected on screen... It did not feel as shooty as it actually was. Yeah. It's it just weird, but also not being serious enough as an analyst. He's been there for a year. Did any... Did, what changed in early 1993? Like, what? Like, I, I don't see why that would even be a thing to suddenly send him a memo over. Right. And, I mean, he was Jesse, right? Part of Jesse was not being too serious. Yeah, in a way, but... Is it a prep they're talking about or something? But by the standards of, like, witty heel commentators, he does much more straight analysis and color commentary than the others at the time. Well, with Ross, he does. Tony, not so much. Tony Tony is two guys at the bar. Basically, what him and Tony is, and this is going to go over your head, Bix, but Tony, Tony and Jesse is like Tom Brookshire and Pat Summerall in the 70s doing NFL on CBS. Well, no. Two guys... I can say even more simple than that, though. Well, two guys at a bar... I mean, they're they're talking like they're hanging out at the bar drinking, you know? But but, but John Madden comes up at Summerall, and John's doing his deal, and it changes changes the game because it's a totally different dynamic, and, you know, it's it's just totally different. But Tony and Jesse are making inside comments to each other. Oh, yeah. so Jesse's talking about Tony's family. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on there. Yes. It's a good time, good time versus serious time. Yes. And But also, it's really what it is. It's their WWF dynamic just without Jesse being an outright heel. Well, yeah, I mean, as much of a heel, at least. I mean, think yeah. about it. I mean, this is we're we're getting we're not too far away from Fall Brawl 93 where they have to mute themselves because they're laughing at each other's jokes so much while a match is going on. Stuff like that happened on multiple shows. Weren't they, uh, didn't they have to mute their mics because they were, la- well, they had to mute their mics because they were laughing at Shockmaster, right? Yeah. Well, that's a, that's different. That's a skit. No, but they also... an actual wrestling match. Oh, dirt, well, calling a match. Calling sure. the action. Yeah, the other yeah. incidents are that and... When they do that Rick Watts arrest angle and they crack up the daddy's boy chants. Like, the, right. That's the only one I would think of where it actually happens during a match. Yeah. Which is funny because, I mean, it's entertaining to us. But if you're somebody that's on, on the 
the side of things are supposed to be worried about how this is presented, then yeah, you know, it's a little bit different. All right, Ron Simmons underwent a minor shoulder operation for rotator cuff problems, so he's out of action right now, but it's better back for the pay-per-view. The injuries play again throughout 1993, so that's why he doesn't have as good of a year as he could have had. I mean, it, it plagues him for pretty much the rest of his WCW run. Like, even when he's pushed in in a program, when he turns heel and feuds with Ice Train, it's just, it, it's very nothing. Yeah. There's a 300-pound ex-University of Miami lineman who's being trained, pay, being paid to train at Jody Hamilton's camp. So expect a book, big push for him when he's ready. Who would that be? I think it's Ice Train, but I don't think he played at University of Miami. I tried to find it. I didn't have any luck. Yeah. You searched Harold Hogue, University of Miami. I just started looking through, uh, you know, linemen in that general frame of time when they would have maybe gotten out of you know college i couldn't i couldn't locate it yeah i, I don't think it was him so i don't know is who it knows someone who that it? doesn't end up wrestling possibly well wait a second let's think about it let's think about who shows up on the crystal chandelier shows that doesn't that either gets a name change or doesn't show up later big bad john's max muscle right yeah is, oh, who else was there wasn't there like a gambler partner that we don't know who it was um, there was a bunch of different people going on. Let me see. Uh, yeah, Jungle Jim Steele, The Gambler, Thunder and Lightning, Big Bad John, The Ace, uh, could it be the Ace, who, whoever that could have been. Um, those look to be about the the guys that uh, guys that you know could could be. Yeah, the ace is the only one that we don't have an ID for at all, I believe. Yeah. Although so there is that. the result from October that, and I believe this is because this is how it was reported in the newsletters, a member of Harlem Heat defeated Tom Zank. <laughs> WC, I, mean, I know it's the fan, but still, well, in fairness, though. Kennesaw, George, everybody. That's well, all I got to say about that. It's October. No, it's October. They did not do a good job of distinguishing which was Kane and which was Cole before they became Booker and Stevie. Because they, they looked exactly the same in their gear. No, but also they didn't, like, I. how often were they even saying, that's Kane, that's Cole? I'm sure they were. And their uh, brothers. I mean, they, they, they looked alike and everything, you know, so for that regard. It, but it, re it reads funny and questionable, uh, but, but there is there are legit reasons in there. Um and again, it is Kennesaw, Georgia in 1993. So that's well, all I guess. That. That, yes. Also, early Bobby Walker on some of those shows. It definitely wasn't him in Miami, I'll tell you that. No. Uh -oh. um, but uh -oh. yeah, the ace is the only yeah. one who we can't ID. So who knows? Oh, excuse me. Here's... Some of the results say Robbie Walker. So who knows? Yeah. Oh, wait, Christ. there's a Don Sanders I just found. That's the old school guy. That's the old, I... that's, that's the indie guy, Don Sanders. Okay. Yeah. C.M. Christ, the guy we talked about recently, was rehired as promoter for the events of Florida. How about that, Bix? Okay, let me see. <laughs> there was something... Okay, what was it that Ian Riccoboni put in the uh, Patreon Discord? The yeah, we, yeah, we just talked about C.M. Christ. Uh, which show was it that we talked about him? Two shows ago? Yeah, two shows ago. Two or you know, being a from the circus that was uh, brought in by WCW to be uh, a house show promoter, and here he is... Uh, Rehired in 93 oh. to do Florida. Apparently a real character, according to uh, 
Yeah, well, he's a circus, <laughs> he's he's a circus guy. And side with shoes and all that. Christ. Yes. And then to close out from the torch, Dusty Rhodes placed himself on TV again as soon as the front office changes took place. He accompanied Dustin the ringside of the Worldwide Tapings on February the 2nd in Columbus. So there you go. God forbid Dusty put himself on television. No, it's John, not like he's John, one of the biggest legends in the history of wrestling on TBS or anything. But yes, I, I, I think I know where you're going with this. Go ahead. John, I'm curious. I mean, like we talked about, you were around the scene at this time in the newsletters. What, what was... What do you think about the big infatuation over Dusty and Dustin and and how Dustin was treated in the newsletters at this time? Uh, it's it's almost like any time, you know, somebody's son comes into play in wrestling is that they're going to already be against, you know, the wall. They're going to already have people against them. Um, I don't recall my feelings at the time. I just thought, you know, he's he's young. You're not going to know what you have yet. You got to give it time. Um, but yeah, he took, he took a lot of heat for that stuff. Just the same as like Eric Watts did, but of course, obviously different situations. Um, yeah, it, it, he took a lot of, uh, grief, I think. Unnecessary. Unnecessary, because, for sure. Because as we talked about, you know, there was always, if talk about Dustin being overpushed, Dustin was never overpushed in the early, when he first came into WCW, he was in working mid card, you know, for, right. working his way up the card. He wasn't brought in. And immediately put as a main event guy. Correct. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I thought I thought the way his push went was, you know, nothing, nothing that you'd go, oh, my God. And he went out there and he he was working hard. So, you know, it it just one of those things of where I thought, you know, you give him the time you'd give anybody else. He's he's coming along. You, You let it take it take its course. But I didn't I didn't see like the anything negative towards him in there. You know, as far as like how he did, he did fine. It just he 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 got the you're the son of a Booker, exactly. And Dusty Rhodes, yeah, Dusty Rhodes already a polarizing personality anyway. And in newsletters, yeah. is you know Crockett days. So yes. yeah, D- D- Dustin was just he, he just he he couldn't help who his father was. You know, I mean, I, or I, I would, I wonder how much different that reaction is if he's not doing the dusty voice on his promos when he goes to WCW and earlier in his career too. I don't sure. remember if he did in WWF. He didn't do WWF. Okay. That's what no. I thought. That's where he, I wasn't he, sure did, he did. He did it in WCW or in the early days a little bit. He was not as, you know, overt as USWA. No, <laughs> but he still does it pretty strongly for the first, yeah, what, like eight months. I wouldn't say eight months. I'd say, Less than that, I'd say probably the first four, maybe. I think he's still doing it around he's the, time not, of the bash, he's, though. No, he's not. Well, he's not doing it when Dangerous Alliance era. That's no, 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 no. By the by, the time that all happens, no, he's done with it. Exactly. It, it's so. so kind of yeah. I guess maybe 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 the Barry turn is kind of when things shift. I think so. Yeah, that's how it makes sense. WCW, everybody. What a sense. <laughs> All right, let's go international now. Once again, no one of those shows where everything in, outside the U.S. is going to be in one segment because there's not a whole lot in Japan going on, and Mexico is not too hefty. So we're going to put it in one big old section here, and we'll start in Japan with New Japan Pro Wrestling, and uh, they're expressing interest in using Hulk Hogan once again. There's been talking in Japan trying to get Hogan for the May 3rd Fukuoka Dome card. 
Unlike the Tokyo Dome, which sold out well ahead of time without Hogan, the Fukuoka show can use Hogan's box office power. Because they have 68,000 seats in our mid-sized city nine hours to Tokyo, rather than one of the largest and most wrestling-mad cities in the world. Even more interesting is the talk of a double main event, which is yet to be announced, nor is anything even close to the point where it be announced, of Antonio Noki against Tanuganichiro and Hogan against Big Van Vader. The latter match is incredibly politically sensitive because it will result in the name most associated with WWF facing the WCW World Heavyweight Champion. One would suspect Hogan would have to go over, which if Vader is still WWE champion at that point would cause a lot of political problems to the point Dave can't envision it happening, which it won't. Another political headache is to deal with man and Tenru reach for WF town to work only for war. Although since war and New Japan are working closely together, maybe that's a minor hurdle. Yet another hurdle in putting together the match is that Vader reportedly has received a huge money offer from UWFI in Japan to work just eight dates. If he takes that deal, then anywhere from New Japan is out of the question. However, New Japan has a talent trade agreement with WCW. With Vader being on a contract at WCW, if he indeed renews his current deal that expires just a few weeks, and considering how much WCW is built around him, one would think they're going to do everything they can do to ensure that happens. How will that affect trying to sign a limited date independent contract? Now, apparently what's a related deal. New Japan signed Horace Boulder, Hulk's nephew Mike, who was also working regularly for WF under the hood as The Predator, to debut on the March tour. Boulder has been a regular for FMW. Both all Japan and New Japan have shied away from using FMW regulars, in particular Big Titan and a gladiator Mike Awesome, who have lots of potential to be superstars in either group because they are with the lower-rated FMW group. Hulk has turned down a reported $250,000 offer to work three days for New Japan in 1993. Had turned down. January 4, Tokyo Dome, May 3rd, Fukuoka Dome, and September indoor show in Yokohama Arena. At that point, it appeared New Japan had lost interest in booking Hogan, but coming to the Fukuoka show with all those tickets to sell, interest seems to have picked up. Here's the interesting thing about this coming out, John. This comes out the week before Hogan gets back with World Wrestling Federation. Right. So that's going to change the game. But, of course, he ends up in New Japan in 1993 working some dates, including that September 23rd Yokohama Arena show and some other dates. So he does end up eventually there, but... I mean, you can see why if if Hulk is available and wants to work in Japan, then, I mean, New Japan is obviously the most logical place because that was his home. Yeah. Yes, he he had that tie always with, with, you know, Inoki and and New Japan. So it made a logical, logical progression for him. And at the time, you know, Vince wanted Hogan back. Yeah, because it, for WrestleMania, it's time to, uh, you know, we're going to have WrestleMania. We've got to have Hulk Hogan on the show. Yeah, so you he know? was going to get what he wants out of that. Absolutely. What were your thoughts on, how, on Hogan in Japan and how he seemed like a different person in Japan compared to the United States as far as in-ring work? Well, he, he knew, you know, Hogan always knew the audience, right, what he could get away with and what he couldn't. So when he'd go to Japan, he knew he'd have to work harder and and do things there and he understood from being there what he had to do so you know usually his matches were always a little better um put forth the effort it's too bad he didn't do it here yeah <laughs> you know would have been nice yeah but yeah you know he 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 usually i remember some of his matches that he had there even later um different guy he's going to put the effort forward he was going to work try and do some submissions even sometimes here and there too Cross arm breakers, yeah. He was uh 
He was a mat work Hogan in New Japan. What what about the mentality that Dave talks about here with All Japan and New Japan at this time about not sh- you know staying away from guys who have been working FMW because they were low rate? Yeah, it's yeah that that was always the the, the stigma there, right? Because they were just the the blood, the gimmicks, um, and they just didn't want to. You know, New Japan, All Japan were at that high level. They didn't have to look lower. So they just didn't want to. They didn't want to associate with that level of thing. It just that was how they always were, you know, in that time. But but what's funny is is that FMW was drawing tremendously well at this point in time with no television. Yeah. Um, because they were offering an alternative. You know, yeah. they, they were gonna give you what you couldn't see elsewhere. Um and it makes sense. And they had, you know, for a while Anita and then Matsunaga got over big. Um so, yeah, yeah, they they satisfied that that niche, you know, that yeah. little, the different thing that you can provide. And, and Japan's always been good for that too, right? You know, it, they were more accepting of different types of product. Yeah, and and, and another thing too is that business is so strong in Japan at this point in time that oh, they, yeah. they don't they don't need to go that you know outside of New Japan deal with war. But they're still a traditional type group. But to go outside of your comfort zone to bring in what could be considered a novelty act, they don't—they're not that stage where we need to use that to draw a house, you know? Right. Oh yeah, for sure. They yeah, they didn't have a business driver that was kind of nudging them in the direction of opening their minds to that sort of thing yet. Absolutely. All right. Well, the biggest show of the past week was February fifth in Sapporo, drawing a standing room only crowd of seven thousand fans. With the major attraction being the first ever meeting of Tenuga Nichiro against Keiji Muto. Tenuga team with war members Takashi Shikawa and Ashurahara to beat Muto, Shinyashimoto, and Akira Nagami in the main event. So my main saw the first singles match involving longtime veterans, Tatsumi Fujinami against the Great Kabuki, which Fujinami won. This all leads to a 10-man tag with War New Japan headlined the February 16th Sumo Hall show. And some of New Japan wrestlers working in key spots on the February 14th War show at Tokyo Gym. Right, full results. Hiroshi Yamamoto, Tenzan, over Asama Nishimura in your opener. El Samurai over Satoshi Rambo, Luke Poirier, and Tony Holmey, the future Ludwig Borga, beat Masa Saito and Perry Saturn. Perry Saturn. What? Yeah. He toured New Japan yeah. as a singles? He sure did. <sighs> okay. Who would have even gotten him the gig you know fujinami did those northeast tour deals so he had contacts in new so, england though well, Is... well he probably sure, well, yeah he was in northeast so i'm pretty sure he probably yeah, he got a hookup somewhere and there He's like pre-eliminators in the uswa like saturn was not exactly a known quantity no he was not but anyway Oh, that is delightful. That is a Phil Schneider special right there. And this is a Chris Zellner special. Juice is under Lago over Brad Armstrong. Yes. I know that had to be good. Hellraisers, Hawk Warrior and Power Warrior over Hiroshi Hase and Masahiro Chono. ICH against King Okamura and Shiro Koshinako, Riki Choshu and Takuki Yazuka. Tetsuki Fujinami and Greg Kabuki. And then Shirohara, Tanuka Nichiro and Takashi Chikawa. Defeating Akira Nagami, Keiji Muto, and Shin Yashimoto in your main event. Bix, you know, 1993 in New Japan. Um, this 
going on all cylinders. Me and me and John was just talking about the business at the time in Japan being as strong as it was. I mean, here you are, standing room only, seven thousand fans, working with war. What are your thoughts on New Japan at this time? They had been I mean, they had been putting on quality shows and stuff, but the increase of I think going back to more like heat type storylines with the New Japan versus war versus uh Isaiah and Gun feud, I think. It, it it put a spark in there that they, I don't know if I'd say they needed, but really livened up everything from top to bottom. Yeah. So, yeah, and it made the most of War, because War was really kind of struggling. Um, I saw them in August of 92 when I went there, and, and it was just a bad show. All they really had was Tenru. And, you know, you could see where they needed to do this, and this this allowed them to make something important and do some good business in new Japan. You're right. Does did kind of need it. Cause I, at the time it was, they were there, but not, and they were still selling out, but it didn't seem like the, they had a direction. And this gave them that. They, what, what they had was the, they had a lot of guys against each other. Like, I mean, they had the, the isolation gun stuff, which was starting in this era, before that, you had Rage's staff, who we'll talk about in a minute. I mean, you had these these little factions, but you know, New Japan was that you know heavyweights is mix and match, yeah. total mix and match. Whereas in all Japan, you had the core four, you know, the yes. pillars, and then they were heavily pushed. The focus was on them. Everything was built around them, and your, of course, your foreigners like Hanson, Doctor Def, so on and so forth. New Japan is you got all this mix match, but the juniors. Yes, you know, right there with Liger, Samurai, uh, Nagami, you know, Hanaga, all those guys and the young guys. You got that crew going on and they're like the work, the heavy work rate part while the heavyweights, you know, like I said, you got strong heavyweight action. But it's mainly, you know, when they're in big matches. Right. And, And I looked at it that for that way, like New Japan to me was I'm looking for the juniors. And then every once in a while, you'd get the Mudo Chono, Mudo Hashimoto, some mix of that where it's like, okay, I'm there for that too. But yeah, it was, it was mainly juniors, but all Japan was, you know, the main event guys. And it was good. Oh, yeah. I was an all Japan, I was an all Japan freak. Yeah. And I mean, like you said, you were over there. You went, <laughs> you know, so you, yeah. you got the vibe of the scene at the time in person of, of how everything was. So, I mean, yeah, it was a, a great era. In Japanese wrestling, absolutely. And another small angle saw the. Well, wait a second! Stack. I just realized something. Is the August '92 trip the one where you, Meltzer, and Sean Waltman go to watch a JWP show at a TV studio in the middle of the night? Yes. Okay. That was it. Yeah. <laughs> that was that was after Dis- that was after Disneyland too. Well, tell that story. Tell that story real quick while while, while this, this subject come up. Okay. Um, yeah, we we went to Tokyo Disneyland. It was uh, Waltman, Dave, myself, Jerry Lynn, uh, Bruce Kreitzman, I think his name was. Um, a that's, referee. A, that's a name from the past. Yes. <laughs> um, and we just went to Disneyland, saw bears talking in Japanese. Um, and, and that was a fun time. And then somewhere along the way, I, I don't know if we knew it before, we found out, we're like, oh, yeah, there's a show. So all we had was a general direction of where we thought it would be. And then we went in that direction and then started wandering around a building in Tokyo. till we found it. We, we 
we got stopped by security. So we were concerned about being arrested, but we were able to talk our way out of that one. Um, and then we ended up at this taping and here we are at one thirty in the morning. They wouldn't let you leave. They were like, you're in, you're staying, you're going to go to your seats. Um, and you were there for a long time, but it was a great show. All submission battle Royal, uh, <laughs> devil Masami was going crazy, dropped, uh, who was that? Was that Ozaki or Suzuki? Uh, Devil Masami took somebody over, almost like you know, bringing a present to Chagusa Nagayo, who was on commentary, and just dumped somebody right on a table in front of her. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was like you would almost think you might be dreaming, but the show exists. It's out there; you can find it. I yeah. think. Um, but it was, a, it was a fun time. It was, it was a weird, weird show. And then Waltman had a six thirty bus. Yes. So he went to work. Jerry the Lynn, Universal yeah. show. Yes, it was for Universal. Yeah. Um, Lynn, Lynn and Bruce bailed. They didn't want to do it. Waltman <laughs> was all for it. So he went, then we went from there and he had to go get a bus and he probably slept the entire way. <laughs> Amazing. It was, and, it was a fun. I'm okay. sure it was. But, no, I'll say it was a fun time. For yeah. those who don't know, we've never attended like a, a sitcom taping or something in a traditional studio though. Like that is how those work. Oh, they hold you? Yeah, like I remember I I had maybe heard of it. I wasn't super familiar with it. And uh, several years back when uh, they were shooting the short-lived Triumph and Jack show for Comedy Central, um, my sister somehow got tickets to an episode taping. And yeah, like unless they are in a break, like clearly, and this is for like, I forget, was this televised live, the JWP show or was it? Yes. Okay. This yeah. is different because it's a taping, but still like. They basically say you cannot leave all the cameras running. Like okay. once it started getting late, they would like tell people, if you want to leave, like do it now before we start shooting again. Okay. Yeah. They told us going in, you know, you're not going to leave. And and we had, you can see us on camera because they put us almost near center, a couple rows back and, and it was a great show. Oh, it was I'm actually, sure, I'm really, sure y'all really stood great. out. <laughs> yeah, we, we did. Um, but it was a really good show. It was it was oh, fantastic. I'm sure, it I loved was. It. I'm sure it was. All right. Another small angle saw Raiden staff, Super Strong Machine, Tester Shigoto, Norionaga, and Hiro Saido go on strike and miss the big Sapporo show, saying they wanted to join with the war group. So there's that. Kuna Kobayashi returned to action after being out of action for many months with an intestinal problem. He joined the skinheads, I say gun, is in Sapporo during a match with the skinhead Shiroko Shinaka, King of Kimura. Against Riki Choshu and Takagiyazuka, Kobayashi at ringside tripped Choshu. He debuted on February the 6th in Shitose in front of 3,050, an eight man tag on a losing team with Koshinaka, Kabuki, and Saito against Choshu, Hase, Azuka, and Asama Kido. All right, your results Yuji Nagata over Shinjiro Otani, Satoshi Kojima over Hiroshi Yamoto, El Samurai and Justin Alaya over Brad Armstrong and Perry Saturn. That's a Rambo and Tony Holmey over Masahiro Chono and Takuyuki Yazuka. Mid-card match, too. Uh, Masashi Oyagi and Great Kabuki over Shirohara and Masaorihara. That's a match. Uh, Hawk and Power Warrior over Kiranagami and Keiji Mudo. Kido, Choshu and Azuka over Akutar Saido, Kunakobayashi, Shirokoshinaka and Great Kabuki. Chanashimoto and Tetsumi Fujinami over Kukirohara and Takashi Shikawa. And in your main event, Tenugurichiro over Kengo Kimura. Quite the, the match there. So, stack. I mean, these cards are stacked, man. With the war, with the war crew added in with the, the regular New Japan guys, and you know, as we talked about with New Japan, 
in fact, how they were different from all Japan with the heavyweights. So one thing you can say about New Japan and their heavyweight scene at this time is their multi-man matches are always really fun. They, they're six-man heavyweights and stuff like that. Always fun, always heated. Oh, yeah. They, they, they had good heat and all those things. And, you know, you had – and they mixed them up in the right way, too, to where they didn't – you didn't get too tired of them. Mm-hmm. So you had a good mix. They moved guys in and out. And they, they handled that, that feud really well. They knew to put over, you know, Tenru early on and make war look good and make war look as close to equal as you can. Because believe me, going into that, it was not that way. Yeah, exactly. All right, let's go to NOW. The working relationship between Wing and Now seems to have disintegrated since Now signed the Sushionita of Wing rival FNW to boost attendance on two upcoming shows. Ah, yes, the era of the Japanese indie boom is beginning here where we have all these indies popping up. Mm-hmm. And the, you know, as FMW was showing that, hey, you know, indies can be successful here if done right. So here we go. Wing, now, we have Tokyo Pro, IWA Japan. Of course, the the uh, Lucha-inspired groups are coming. So, yeah, a great time for Japanese wrestling with the variety that you're about to get. Yes, although uh, now is such a weird promotion, though, because it was basically, at least initially, I don't know if he funded all the way through, like it was uh, 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 Tanaka, the Megami Super you know, billionaire or whatever, who funded SWS, he basically started now just to have a promotion with the guys who were not getting along with Tenru anymore. Yeah, pretty much. Which is bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's Japan. And, good Lord, the political maneuvering. That's what, you know, we really didn't touch on it with the Hogan deal. How about all the political plays that, that was going on at one time with that Hogan deal where you got – you know, Vader's WCW champion possibly against Hogan as a WWF guy. And then you got Vader hook, uh, in the midst of leaving New Japan to hook up with UWFI and how that was going to affect that. And, yeah, I mean, a lot of political maneuvering at this time, trying to make stuff work. There's even more that comes, though, because, you know, going by Howard Brody's book and there is other stuff that backs him up. And he's always been a pretty honest guy anyway. Hogan also tried to use the attempt at a Ring Warriors project with a toy license and stuff because Hiro Matsuda was who was doing that with Howard Brody and Hiro Matsuda, of course, trained Hogan. He tried using that as leverage in the middle of all that. And of course, at least, you know, in the format it existed in and that they thought they'd be transitioning away from, Ring Warriors was reliant on New Japan footage. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, by the way, right. like I, I forget if I ever mentioned this on here, like even though I always believed the story, I did recently find pr- more proof that it's true because there was an article I think in Media Week about um it was about some syndicated stuff, but it mentioned Ring Warriors coming soon as a spin-off to be aired alongside WMAC Masters. Mm-hmm. And WMAC Masters was from Summit Media, you know, Four Kids Entertainment. Leisure concept, etc. Alcon, who was who was working with uh, with Ring Warriors, you know, as their licensing agent. Yeah, yeah. So right. that's clearly all trying, true. all trying to get in. Yeah, all trying to get in at the wrong time. Yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Well, then there was also to bring it back to Japan too. The reason it went sideways, according to Howard, is that at I think it was I forget if it was NAP or a different event. It might have been. Oh no, I think it was toy, the New York Toy Fair. You know, Bandai had said they join up as the toy licensee to provide a lot of funding. And then they're like, wait, is Anoki involved? And they're like, no, he's not involved. All right, like, are you sure? It's like, no, I mean, we don't even work with New Japan. We work with TVSI. But it ended up giving Bandai cold feet because they felt that Anoki was too uh, Yakuza'd up for them. <laughs> of course. <laughs> All right, let's go to Wing. Speaking of Yakuza, Hiroshi Takura won the WWC Junior Heavyweight title from Mas- Masashi Motegi on the February 5th Wing show at Corican Hall. Wing drew a legit 2,200 sell off for that show, billed as the party is over. <laughs> because the main event was an elimination loser leave town match where you could hear Kanamura, Mr. Takuda, and Mr. Pogo team with Mr. Danger, Mr. Matanaga, going up against Kim Duck. El Vigilante, Jose Estrada Jr., Jose Estrada, and Miguelito Perez. Match went 31 minutes. It came down to Matsunaga pinning Perez. Rules were that Pogo's team lost. He would have to retire, and the other three would have to leave town for certainly at the time. If Kim Duck's team lost, of course, Tiger Jung Lee, which it did, Duck had to retire, and the other three had to leave town. After losing the fall, Perez was attacked by manager Peter Quinones, and the other members, when the time of suspension expires, he'll return as babyface. Full results. The winger over Hideo Takayama, future bad boy Hido in your opener. Ryo Miyaki and Shoji Nakamaki over Katsumi Rano and Kazuko Matsuzaki. New Jason the Terrible over Nobutaka Araya. Leatherface over Crush the Terminator. He morphs. Then Itakura over Motegi for the WC Junior title. And any elimination match in the main event. Okay. Now, well, well, I have a question not, before we get to that, though. Unless it's I'm not here. Oh, wait, it. it is here. Okay, never mind. It's here. Yeah, let me continue. Perez actually turned Bayface on the next night, where he teamed with the new Jason the Terrible, Tracy Smothers. In the same building at Cork and Hall, he did a double shot, losing to wing tag champions Crash Terminator and Mr. Pogo. The finish saw Quinones trying to give Perez for an object. He wouldn't take it to argue, which enabled the champs to pin Perez. But it's also this. Katsuko Matsuzaki went to a 15-minute draw with Ryomiyaki. Masayoshi Motegi in the winger over Hiroshi Nakura and Nobutaka Araya. Jose Estrada over Mitsutura Takuda. Kim Duck and Leatherface over Hiroshi Shimada and Mitsuru Matsunaga. Mr. Danger. Different style fight. Kickboxer versus wrestler. Jun Kikawada over Shoji Nakamaki by knockout in round three. <laughs> you can hear Kanemuro beat Vigilante to retain his WC Caribbean heavyweight title. And then Crush the Terminator and Mr. Pogo retained their wing world tag titles over Miguel Perez Jr. and new Jason the Terrible, Tracy Smothers. Wait, who's Crush the Terminator? That would be Hugh Morris. Because this appears to be... T- Wait, did you take these from Cage Match? I took these from Cage Match, yes. So why is he Crush and not Crash, though? Was he actually called Crush it, at one point? It went, bo- it, it went both. Both ways. Okay, because that's what the thing. I was trying to figure out if it was PCO or a third guy or what. No, it's no, it's Hugh Morris. Okay, PCO was Bash, right? Yes, he was Bash, Crash and Bash. Yes, (laughs) I, you know, especially for that era and the way they would have matched up, whether it was Victor or whoever, you know, kudos to whoever came up with the idea of putting those two guys together as a tag team. But the thing is, here, John, as we're talking about, twenty-two hundred fans, legit sellout for Wing at Cork and Hall, man. I mean, 
business is going. Oh, yeah. Kraken Hall was just, I know at the time when we were there in August, all Japan had had 100 sellouts or something in Tokyo in a row or consecutive. Everything was selling out when we were there. It's just nuts. The business was hot. It was running. And, and, and people, again, it's that niche, right? And Wing had a little bit of everything if you look through there. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So, you know, it's, it, it's, a, it's a good time. It's a good time to be in Japan running a promotion. Absolutely. So, yeah, interesting shows here with the, the different crew, the Puerto Rican guys and your Japanese hardcore guys working together. Just a totally different scene. So, yeah. Well, you have to you have to offer that, right? Because you're, oh, you're not going to be you're not going to be able to compete with the main events of all Japan, New Japan. Um, you've got to throw something different at people. Well, I'm a firm believer in that anyway, John. I mean, oh yeah. If if I, if I was in charge of a of creative for any type of wrestling promotion, I would definitely be looking at all all types of variety to try to hook as many fans as I could. You know. Yeah, you want to you want to you want to pick the right mix. You want to have obviously your strengths, and then you want to see where you can pull in somebody new, something gets interesting or hot, and and make your promotion kind of satisfy. As many people as possible, you just got to make sure you 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 have the right focus with it. But yeah, that it, it's that's why Wing did well in that window of time. Absolutely, and they don't get enough credit for that either. That it's not just the deathmatch stuff. That it's also Memphis guys and luchadors, and they do your different style fights from time to time. Like, yes, is what's drawing, with the exception of when they bring in like the really big name luchadors, like. Mil Moscaris or Kanak or whoever, with the exception of that, but yeah, the draws generally the deathmatch type stuff, but they probably had more variety than any other promotion in Japan at the time. Yeah, and, and they understood too is that they they couldn't they couldn't just focus only on the deathmatch or the really big things. They had they would have the focus, but they couldn't just constantly run that. They had to mix in some shows where it didn't have something big exploding, whatever it would be. They they knew how to build it right and make do enough different things in the middle, but still have that one really big, unique thing that would come along once in a while, too, if that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Oh, so by the way, with Smothers, the thing that any I think he's told the story other times, too, but the the story Hero told at the in the Hall of Fame where Tracy does an angle with original Jason the Terrible, well, original Wing, or original Japanese Jason the Terrible. Uh, oh, what's his name? The Puerto Rican wrestler. I always forget his name. But that they did this angle where new Jason comes out and beats the hell out of him with a chair, and Tracy accidentally injured his arm with it, and there may have been also some, like, uh, either Victor or Mickey Ibaragi or someone riling him up to make sure he heard him or something. But anyway, once it was all straightened out, Every single time Tracy went back to Japan, he always brought homemade cookies and stuff for original Jason to apologize. But was that was <laughs> that or IWA though? Well, original Jason was the Estrada Jr. Then who's the other Puerto Rican Jason? Who's the one that worked the ECW date? Uh, it might have been him. <laughs> I don't think it's Jose Estrada Jr. That could have been. Yeah, he was working in the United States. He was one of the Barricuas. Uh. Who knows? Anyway, all right. Apparently, Moscow's Funaki Minoru Suzuki got a major sign-in bonus from Megami Super when they signed a five-year deal some 18 months back. Since they've jumped from PWFG 
owned by Megami Super. Yes, the other promotion owned by them. To a new group, which is supposed to start around September, October, they have to pay back the bonus money to get released to start their new office. That's how that works in Japan. (laughs) And that's that's Pancrase. Yep. And yes, to add to our conversation earlier, yes, Megami Super funded three separate promotions at the same time. (laughs) <laughs> I couldn't get any help when I wanted to run shows, but they got just throwing money around. Yeah, you, you needed the uh, you, you needed the American version of them, Bausch and Lom to uh, somebody. Yeah, just give me just give me one or something. Lenscrafters. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so they're Funaki and Suzuki getting ready to do their thing. Which, by the All way, right. as I learned a few yeah. weeks ago when I lost my glasses um, and didn't have a good backup hair. Not every LensCrafters has a lab anymore. Like, I don't get what the point of going to a LensCrafters compared to any other optometrist is if they can't serve you quickly. But anyway. Yeah. All right, and let's go to Zenja, All Japan Women. And their biggest show of the week was in Tahara on February 2nd for a 12-20. Bat Yoshinaga over Saki Ashigawa. Terry Power over Mima Shimoda. Suzuka Manami and Etsuko Mita over Double In Away, Kyoko and Takako. Manami Toyota over Demi Malenko, and Yumiko Hota and Toshio Yamada over Jungle Jack, Carl Ito, and Asha Kong. Now, John, me and Bix have talked about the Joshi scene, you know, these shows a lot. You were, I mean, like you just talked about it. You were there. You went to, you know, JWP, and you know how, you know, the scene at the time. It, is it, I mean, I think it's safe to say that 1993, that, you know, all Japan women. I mean, he's right there is best one of the best promotions in the world, if not the best promotion in the world for wrestling action. Would you agree with that? Oh, for sure. Um, All Japan Women, just awesome. If you look at like the best matches that year, you had All Japan and and All Japan Women, but All Japan Women, I think, had just a ton of great matches that year. And they were they were great in '92. You know, I just I loved that era. Toyota was fantastic. Um, you, you had uh, Akira Hokuta, right? You know, so you had. Just so many in, in Aja in Bull. It's I saw two shows while we were there. Um, we saw the Toyota Yamada hair match, which was fantastic. Oh, oh God. <laughs> yeah. Just you know, you watch a match and you're blown away by the end of the match, and then the aftermatch has people crying over it, and the scene that they did there was tremendous. You know, we probably should have broke the five star skill then, but whatever. Um it was it was great, right? And then yeah. we saw them on a Higashi Yamato, I think was the city. It was outside Tokyo. It was a little bit of a drive outside Tokyo. One of the, I think it might have been the last show we saw. Um, it was outside on blacktop, and they were doing dives. Oh, it was insane. And they were working just as hard as they were if they were at Karakin on blacktop in front of you know less people, but just the work rate was insane just nuts and, and it was top to bottom on that yeah that, that sounds like the time i saw chris hamrick do the hamrick bump onto linoleum <laughs> oh I'm, I'm sure that felt good yeah oh um but i would i would say you know they're already putting on all these great matches and stuff in 92 but i think it's the start of the interpromotional stuff in december 92 that goes on for the next two years or so that really just completely like breaks through just all this insane, amazing stuff happening all the time. And, 
You've got more heated matches because you have the interpromotional stuff. You know, they'll do the shows where you have the separate All Japan Women and JWP fan sections and all that. You know, like, it just... The energy of it and then also the dynamic in the interpromotional matches, just, like, it... It brings everything to a level it hadn't even been at earlier in 92 when you still had stuff like, you know, the, you know, that first big uh, Toyota Kyoko Inoue match and stuff like that. Yeah. Go ahead. I think they identified, you know, in in 92 that not that they're running out of things. Right. But I mean, you know, you can only have the same combination of matches so many times when they didn't have as many people rising up through the ranks. Um, at the time, you know, to be as good as the other one. So you have JWP, which had come on the scene, you know, or gotten more popular, right, through the time. And, and it just made sense. You have Devil, Devil Masami over there. You've got, you know, Ozaki, Dynamite Can't. You know, you've got all these different, all the different talent in JWP, and they recognized at the right time, now we can do this. And and it became like the end thing, too. She had War in New Japan doing their thing, and they they seized. They seized at the right time on the whole thing. Which is tremendous. Yeah. All right, let's go to Mexico now in Triple R. They take TV on February the 6th in Tokoko. And I'll do a bull rain before of 10,000 fans in a rainstorm. The rematch of the prior week's five-star class who went winners, Super Cologne, Jorge Mysterio Jr. against Bakudo, Sikosa, and Metal was only four and a half stars this time, <laughs> featuring more of the world's most incredible moves. Mysterio did two new versions of the Frankensteiner. The first is as he was crisscrossing ropes, he jumped off the middle rope, caught heavy metal in the Frankensteiner when the first fall. And third fall, he did an air pillman into a Frank- Frankensteiner. The match ended with four incredible dives off the top rope over the ring post to the floor. First, Sikosis did a Randy Savage double sledge, but he came down several feet higher than Savage has ever done. Kolo then leaped over the post with a regular crossbody. Pakuto then leaped over the post to get Kolo a death press. And it was Winner's turn next. He did a Liger flip a minute over the post. Missed and caught his throat a la Brian Pillman on the guardrail. Matal did a final one. A simple moonsault over the post. <laughs> Matal, a.k.a. Eric Costas, brother Negro Costas, was so far past incredible in this match that words haven't been invented to describe his performance. He pinned Ray for the final fall. And appears to have built towards a Ray Matal feud for the welterweight title, which produced more matches of this caliber. Even though the Rudos won when they raised their hands and the music was playing after the match, the crowd gave them a huge ovation because quality of the match. Man, Vest saw the rain fall heavily to the point the ring was drenched and guys were slipping and sliding all over while doing their high spots. Probably the most amazing part is that no fans left their seats while this downpour was going on. And right, well, uh, just in case anyone might be confused, the famous AAA show in the downpour is not this one. The one that people remember because of... Uh... What is it, Gran Apache, Oscar Sevilla? That's 99, I think. Oh, yeah, 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 way later. Yeah. Yes, but I, I mention it because if it's a pretty famous thing that someone actually had a great match in the middle of a rainstorm in AAA. So just wanted to get that out there. One the first time. All right, full results before we talk about the, the big one. Katana, Kendo Star, and Tiger Man beat Fantasma de Cuarbrada and Gallego and Mr. Condor by count out two and a half stars. La Briosa, La Monster, Nep- Neptali, over Montevideo Lobos, Petero Cervenia, and Wendy, two and a half stars. Heavy Metal, Picudo, Sicosis, or Ray Jr., Supercolo, and Winners. Steve Sims only gave this three and a half stars, by the way, so that's interesting. Well, Mr. you know, it's Steve, so at least he didn't give it three and a third stars. <laughs> Mr. Maldad, Rocca Valente, and Tony Arce, over Misterioso, Solar, and Volador. 
where Maldad replaced the injured Volcano and randomly channeled Solara to the match. Then our main event, Eddie Guerrero, Yoda Santo, and Conan, that's a team, over Los Hermanos Dinamitas y Encaras, Moscato y Dosmil, and Universo Dosmil, also three stars. John, I mean, at the, at, to be around the scene at this time when Ray Jr. is just, you know, on the horizon, innovating and changing the game. How exciting was it to watch somebody like this just come out of nowhere and put on these performances? Um, you knew you were watching the future, kind of. That's why I look at it. Um, all those guys, psychosis, uh, you know, you had heavy metal. All those guys, you're just sitting there going, okay, this is the next thing. And if, and if you think about the business in general, too, and this is why Japan sends people there to, to learn, too, you're going to – whatever you're going to down the road is going to start a little bit in Lucha – and into Japan, and then independence here. That's what's going to be the future. And and you saw it right there with Ray. I remember at the time it was, you know, I wasn't big into lucha, but I watched enough of it to kind of be familiar. But when when you started reading about Ray, it's like, okay, I got to get the tapes and see this. And and I know uh, what Steve gave it three stars or whatever. Go watch the match. Go watch yeah. the match. <laughs> it's good. <laughs> You know, that's not even the best one. <laughs> week before yeah, was. Exactly. the week before. Yeah, watch them both. Um, <laughs> because yeah, Ray was was innovating, and you knew that that was going to be where things were going. Really? Oh yeah. And, 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 just... and heavy metal. Good lord, that guy. Yes. If, if he didn't have his problems, he would be. You know, he could have been on that same stratosphere as Ray and supposed yeah. were. You know, as far as getting work in America and becoming a star over here, you know? Yes. God almighty. Well, yeah, he was, he was the one that was talked about as possibly being the best of them all at the time, too. Well, yes. he, I know in I some mean, circles. Think about it this way. He, he did not end up being the best, but he was absolutely the most talented wrestler in his family. Absolutely. Talent-wise, yeah, absolutely. Which is a distinction I feel like wrestling fans often miss, is that talent... Talent is innate. Talent is talent, skill, and output are all different things. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, and he like really watch the really early stuff, like when he's working on those Universal shows in Japan, and he looks and he looks like I think he was a little older than that, but he looks like like a young teenager, and he's incredible. And you know he, you know, thankfully it seems like he's been clean for an extended period of time now but he I mean, he was in a bad state for a while and you know it it's weird because it didn't derail his career though it just it kept him from having much of a shot outside of triple a where Pena had a soft spot for him until he got uh until he cleaned himself up i guess would be the best way to put it yeah it kind of limited it limited where he could, what he could do and where he could go. And yeah, but yeah, he was fantastic. And, and, and that era was, was fun too. In, in it's almost a missed opportunity. Cause you know, WCW had, uh, <laughs> I know, I know. I mean, it's just, it's hard to, it's hard to, it's hard to put in the words how, you know, we, we really don't have this anymore where you basically have, a new style that comes into people's, you know, comes in their radar. I mean, because everything's been done pretty much in wrestling now that, you know, this, this nobody was doing this on, on this scale 
at this point in time that people over here could see in right. America. And it's like, ooh, you know, you see, <laughs> it's, it's like it's like that's wow, this is this is insane, you know. We, We've never seen stuff like this before. We've seen, you know, Mexican wrestlers over here, but good lord, this is just out of this world. Yes, and for the record, too, yeah. Ray just turned eighteen. Yes, <laughs> on top of everything else, yeah. uh, the, exactly. but the style thing. I think the only comparison recently, and it's old stuff because that style died off, and just people didn't really discover the video here until now. Would be, you know, the Segunda Caída guys finding the French stuff. Yeah, that's the only real comparison I can think of. Like, you know, like if the Brazilian stuff, which seems like it was kind of similar, you know, if that showed up, maybe that too. But that's about but yeah, it. That's, that's all old stuff. stuff. It's not current. It's old right? stuff. Yeah. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, it's old stuff. Yeah, like even now, like someone who you know just breaks out is really impressive, like a Nick Wayne or even a Ninja Mac or someone like that. Like, it's all if, spot. It's spots you haven't seen, maybe. But not an entire style. Right. And, right. you know, and, right. you know, Nick is more well-rounded than that. But still, like, it's yes, it's spots more so than the style. And also, I should add, too, before I forget, I guess I'll ask Chris, like, I don't know if he had injuries or whatever. Why does Pacuto fall off so much after, like, 93, 94? Um, I think, I think, I think injuries is part injuries. of it. That's part of it, yeah. I think, and I think he was just happy to do, uh, you know, the bottle Slucko's gimmick after that, pretty much. You know, I mean, he, he just he, he he had steady work, and he was he was happy, he was content, you know. And he, st- I mean, he worked he worked for many, 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 many years. Yes, but, doing, yeah. doing that stuff. But I say that because, like, I don't remember if it was this match or the one from the week before. It was one of those big '93 trios matches with the same basic group of guys. Like, I just remember thinking. When I first saw some of that stuff, but knew him more as the Vados Locos guy, like, he's every bit as good as those other Rudos on his team here. Yes. He is a tremendously underrated worker, historically. I just think he, I think that he decided to slow it down and just, you know, concentrate on being a gimmick guy. And, and, you know, it, it, it made for longevity in his career. Yeah, and that's probably it, you know, good for him. Like, you know, when, you know, I always point out to people, like, Conan, especially when people talk about Conan, and, you know, Conan was open about this, like, in the Torch talk, he does in 94. Once he was over, he toned down how much he did in a given promotion to preserve his body, and he's absolutely right to do that. Yeah, the work smarter approach. Yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, once you get to a point where you feel like you're a made man— and you're good no matter what, then, I mean, you don't have to go full on crazy, you know, with doing stuff. Yeah, you still want to have good matches, but you don't, you don't have to go, you know, buck wild, you know, in your spots. Yeah, you learn to pick. Exactly. Make it important. Exactly. And and there's an element, too, of of aspirations, right? So, you know, Pacuto might have been like, okay, well, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm doing well here now, and I don't have aspirations to go elsewhere, so he's going to settle into his spot, whereas, you know, Conan was, I want to go someplace else and I want to expand and I want to get bigger here and bigger there. So, you know, you're going to, there's an ele- there's an element of you have to, if you want to go elsewhere, you're going to have to keep stepping up at times. Mm-hmm. And and some people pick the path of I'm comfortable, I'm happy here. Yep, absolutely. 
All right, let's go to the other side of things, CMLL. Uh, February the 2nd in Real Coliseo. We have America 2 in Guerrero de la Muerte, team with El Marnaca Javier Cruz, beating Huracan Sevilla, Metallico, and Moguer. And then our main event, we had Lasertron. Yes, Hector doing Lasertron. Ringo Mendoza and Triton over Arcana de la Muerte, Il de Solitario, and La Fiera. By disqualification, when Fiera pulled off Lasertron's mask. On the fifth at Coliseo, they started building to a Caballero Contra Caballero match with El Brazo and Fabuloso Blondi. Ken Thames, Mono Negro, and Oro. Oro wrestling on an injured arm, courtesy of Negro, continuing to work on it during the trios match. Upon Dante's defending the NWA light heavyweight title against Titan, who scored two straight fall wins on Dante's during the trios match. And a heel turn by Moguer, who went and helped his teammates, Plata and Aguila Solitaria. So, on this show, we have La Garra and Panico over Aguila de Plata and El Moro by disqualification, two and a half stars. Esther Moreno and Sociamada over La Diabolica and Maria de Angel. That match didn't air on TV. Damiano Guerrero, Guerrero de Futuro, and Guerrero Maya over Aguila Solitaria, Moguer, and Plata in the turn, two and three quarter stars. Bestia Savaje, Mano Negra, and Titan over Paul Dantes, Lasertron, and Oro. That's a team. Paul Dantes, Etigredo, and Oro. Two stars, straight falls. Then talk about the stuff we had there. And El Brazo, El Dandi, and Peroff defeated Emilio Chavez Jr., Fabuloso Blondi, and Kejos in three-star match. Straight falls. Brazo surprised Blondi with power center on the first fall. He mostly losing. Brazo stuck a second fall win on him inside cradle. Kejos ripped off Peroff's match second fall, though no disqualification. And the biggest news in this promotion is Negro Casas turned technical on February 7th for Coliseo. He teamed up with Sangre Chicana and Grand Marcus Jr. against Apollo Dates, Triton, and Boot Damon Jr. in the main event, which drew a surprising sellout crowd for a, paper, or a card on paper, which looked like luster. Marcus and Casas got into it during the first fall. Chicana joined in, and he joined in with Marcus and destroyed Casas until he was easily pinned in the second fall, giving the Technico a straight fall. We have Brasito and Platita over Gacarito El Sultan and Pequeño America. Over Ofaciones said Platita fractured his ankle in this match, but he did not take time off. <laughs> Welcome to Lucha. Then we had uh, we have unknowns beating El Vencedor and Hawkon de Plata. Aguila de Plata, Metallico, and Talisman Jr. over Io de Gladiador, Panico, and Ponzonia. Cro-Magnon, Popitecas, and Troglodita over Cachorro Mendoza, Sicono Ramirez, and Moguer. Straight falls for the cavemen. Moguerra refused to help his teammates. And then the Negro Casas turn match. So, yeah, CMLL at this point in time is uh, definitely not AAA as far as star power. Um, they're doing what they can. But, yeah, a marked difference between the two promotions at this time, John. Yeah, I, you know, I didn't have a lot of interest in CMLL. I did like, you know, I do like Negro Casas. But, yeah, it was hard for CMLL, especially once you got – you know, Ray and those guys over in AAA doing what they're doing. It's hard. Hard to oh. keep up. Yeah, if you're new yeah. to the style, especially since it's such a cold promotion at the time, it it just not, it comes off as this, as slow old people wrestling. Even when younger yeah. people are wrestling, it just, if, yeah, for, you know, even if you were someone who had watched Lucha longer, you know, you like your Kirk Browns and the like, I think they liked AAA more at the time, but they were able to more appreciate the CMLL stuff. It's because it's not like it's not like it's a bad. The, it, the the bad stuff, what did I say, come more in uh, more in '94, like when you have Tiger Chung Lee in main events and stuff. Yeah, exactly. 
All right. So the cost sales shows on Friday nights during this tour have been drawn between four and five thousand per week. That's actually not bad. Yeah, that's not bad. Very good for cost sale, absolutely. And of course, this is during the circus, so that's why they're running cost sale on Friday. Exactly. UWA, which is starting their downward spiral. Uh, February 5th at Arena Neza, we have an interesting card here. We have uh, in front of 3,000 fans, so we have Cachorro Mendoza and Enrico Mendoza beating Villanos 4 and 5, setting up a tag title match next week. Then we have Dr. Wagner Jr., Eddie Watson, Goliath El Gigante over Dos Caras, Enrique Vera, and Gran Amada. Should I remind everyone who Goliath El Gigante is? Yes. That would be Kurgan the Interrogator. <laughs> so we have the team of Dr. Wagner Jr., Eddie Watts and Kurgan defeating <laughs> Dos Caras, Enrique Vera, and El Gran Hamada. Mm-hmm. I, I wonder if uh, Hamada and Kurgan paired off at all. Oh, I hope so. <laughs> all right, the crowd El Torreo on February 7th fell from 14,000 fans for the Vampiro, or excuse me, Canadian Vampire Connect title yes. change before. To about 3,800 for a lackluster car minus Connect and Vampire, who took their feud in Monterey. Which you don't have results for that, sadly. But you know what? It shows they're capable of drawing still. Well, that's that Canadian Vampire, Bix. He was a hell of a draw. What can well, you say? Well, you mean Canadian Vampire Casanova. Correct. Uh, Rudos El Engendro, Scorpio Sr., and Sua Guerrero won a non title match for the Trios champions. Los Missionarios de la Muerte on that car, where the main event saw Goliath Eligante from Canada be put over a strong team with Eddie Watts and Scorpio Jr. to be Gran Hamada in the Vianos, one and four. Besides, there's some fun seeing Hamada, who is about five foot five, against Goliath, who's about six foot ten. <laughs> and by the way, before we get to the actual results, I guess it's not just a WWE thing to give people whose real names would be amazing wrestling names bullshit fake names, since Eddie Watts is Gregory Leonardo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, where do you where do you come up with that, right? Yeah. You know, right. especially yeah. if, you know, like WWE wasn't gonna let Gianna Daddio be Gianna Daddio. But dude, you're an indie wrestler. <laughs> like, why are you not gonna yeah. be Gregory Leonardo? That's fantastic. I know. Alright, results. Oriental, Rakesatana, and Sato de Togo. Over Apollo de Oro, Prince Maya, and Ray Richard. El Coloso, Nuevo Adaz, and The King. The King! Over El Titere, Espantos, 4 and 5. Then King Lee! Transformer and Viano 1 over Cassandro, Calafagardi Jr., and Pipinello Escalata. Pippi was DQ'd for fouling. And Gendro Scorpio Jr., not Senior, says here. And Shua Guerrero over Black Power, Signo, and Negro Navarro. And Eddie Watts and Goliath and Scorpio Jr. Well, it's got one of them senior over Grand Hamada Vianos one and five, one and four. And yes, Goliath beat Hamada clean and both. Awesome. <laughs> oh, I want to see those spots. How, oh. did, how did he not end up on WWF's radar sooner anyway? It's, yeah, you would think he would be a natural fit. So, what year did he start? 89? He started. Maybe ninety, ninety one. Well, maybe he's No, he's in USWA, and I think Maritimes too in ninety, for sure. So not ninety, yeah. As a Cadian giant. Mm-hmm. Let me yeah. let me see what let me see what's on Cage Match at least. I mean, you uh, would have thought they would bring him in for sure, because I mean, this is you know big man era WF, you know. 
Oh yeah, six yeah. ten. Yeah, yeah, always need some natural size too. Yeah, like that's about if you were Hogan. A cage match. Okay, cage match has nothing before the UWA run, at least. Well, so I, I, you know what? I wonder if I looked up Acadian Giant if there would be other results, but he probably doesn't have a profile since they. You get what I'm saying, but anyway. Okay, I well the TV is already gone by '93, right? I uh, pretty much so. Or yeah. if it's if it's if it's on, we have no idea who has tapes of it. At least, yeah, it's, it's I, not a. I really want to. See, I really want to see Kurgan Grandma. Ask Roy Lucia, right? He, yeah, and the earliest that wrestling data has is '91 on Acadian Giant, and that and even then, that's still later than when we know he was wrestling. Yeah, they got him working Maritimes in 91. He beat Rico Frederico on that. Oh. oh. And then, uh... And it's not like he's just working in these, though. This is a guy who's getting experience. Like, he didn't end up being any good, although, you know, his facial expressions and all that were always good. He just right, wasn't... Uh, the good Bobby Blake. Bobby Blaze was in the Maritimes as Rico Frederico's tag partner. Oh, my goodness. Wow, I didn't know about that. Yeah. But yeah, UWA is like I said, they're starting their downward spiral. They will become non-existent in the next few years. So, yep, times they are changing in Mexico. And on that note, it's time to go to break. So after some great 1993 commercials, we'll pivot to the halftime where me and Bix will come back. We'll uh, talk about our Patreon. We'll hit the plugs, and then we'll come back where John's going to rejoin with us, and we'll hit the U.S. indie scene. Featuring uh, lots of interesting indie results, including from my neck of the woods. We got Jim Cornette going wild on Smoky Mountain Wrestling. And then Doink the Clown in the, <laughs> on, in the studio. We, and he is all over the show. Believe me, we got a lot of clips from this. All that more after the break. Let's go racing! It's Super Mario Kart Funny Car Madness! Only on Super NES! Turn the track into a giant mud pit! Or burn rubber on ice, wood, or asphalt! Oh, Mix it up for the big boys! See Bowser and his Bigfoot dropping trucks! See Yoshi's go-kart really good! Go! Mushrooms, banana peels, turtle shells! Dino White! Check your rear view and make a mean test! Or go into battle mode and ruin his day! Two speeds! Fast and way too fast! It's two-player fun on the split screen! Only for the Super Nintendo Entertainment System! Now you're playing with power! Super power! You've got a bad cough, but you've also got a sore throat and a stuffy nose. Put yourself in one place where you'll get help for all three symptoms, the Halls of Medicine, where you'll find the vapor action formula of Halls Mentholiptus. Real medicine to make you feel better fast. Three symptoms, one place, the Halls of Medicine.
even look in the mirror at myself anymore. I was ashamed of myself. Each day was just about how was I going to get high this particular day. Nothing else really seemed to matter. I'm Roger Cohn of the National Recovery Institute's group. If drugs and alcohol are destroying you, our program can help you rebuild your life. Call us now, toll-free, at 1-800-442-7623. They gave me my start. Sunday, primetime begins at 7, 6 central. First, Batman and Robin, Gotham's legendary crime fighters. See how they became the dynamic duo. Time to kick some butt. An all-new Batman, the series. Then, can a family of five survive two weeks in a trailer? It's like living in the Tin Man's colon. Shaky ground. I'd ask you to sit down, but the only seat left flushes. Sunday, beginning at 7 on Fox 5. Columbia Pictures presents I may be having a problem Bill Murray I'm reliving the same day over and over in a story about a weatherman who's living life what? like there's no tomorrow Don't drive angry because there isn't I am an immortal I have been stabbed, shot, frozen, electrocuted You're God I'm a God, I'm not the God Groundhog Day, rated PG at Theaters Friday Education got you down? Well, snap into it. Hip into a Slim Jim. Tear into the spice, that beefy, juicy taste. What is the meaning of this? Feel a little excitement? Snap into a Slim Jim. Respect yourself. For only $24 a month, pay as you go. Call 1-800-WORKOUT. Elizabeth Machado said, goodbye acne. Thank you, Dr. Zismore. Bernice Palmer said, no more dark spots. Thanks, Dr. Zismore. Now you can have beautiful, clear skin. I'm Dr. Zismore, and I can help you look your best. My office provides great skin care at a fair price. Call me for an appointment at 212-594-SKIN, and you can start on the road to beautiful, clear skin now. Joan Getz said, hello, beautiful, clear skin. Thank, Thank you, Dr. Zismore. Call 212-594-SKIN for an appointment. After most meals and snacks, plaque pH can fall to levels where acid starts attacking teeth. These attacks can last up to two hours, increasing the risk of damage to your tooth enamel. That's when chewing can help. When you chew for 20 minutes, the chewing action produces and distributes more of your mouth's natural defense, saliva, which helps neutralize acid within minutes. So in addition to regular dental care, after eating, chew Wrigley's Extra Sugar-Free Gum, because chewing helps nature fight the acid attack. Now, when you buy the Sega Genesis that comes with Sonic 1, you'll get Sonic 2 absolutely free. Sonic 2 handles stubborn stains, embarrassing bald spots, no problem. It even slices and dices, makes thousands of julienne fries. But wait, you can play it too. This free Sonic 2 is a $54.99 value. You get two Sonics for the price of one. Sonic 2 fits easily into any tackle box. Made from a space-age polymer plastic for years of family fun. And pets love it too. Buy the Sega Genesis that comes with Sonic 1 and get Sonic 2 free. Act now. Wiener Dog Sweater sold separately. 
All right, we're back. I hope you enjoyed all those great 1993 commercials as we pivot to the halftime seven of the show. We're beginning to talk about our Patreon, patreon.com slash between the sheets, where we had our latest show go up in the past week and a half or so. Uh, Joel Goodhart's TWA, the original super indie in Philadelphia. And uh, we had a really great show there. Hope everybody has checked that out. And if you haven't, you need to do that at patreon.com slash between the sheets. Five dollars a month gets you access to listen to that audio, and uh, yeah, we so you know we talked a lot about ECW over the past few years. So now we go to the precursor to ECW on this show, go in depth about everything that went on there, and on the next month's show we'll go to the aftermath of ECW, Ring of Honor, twenty years, the twentieth anniversary of the debut of Ring of Honor, and we'll get into uh, how Ring of Honor came to be. And what the mission of Ring of Honor was, and a whole lot more. We haven't started recording it yet, but we will be soon. So uh, it should be a very interesting show. Uh, I know a lot of you people that are, you know, patrons and stuff like that. I mean, you're all in the same age range as me and Bix are, a lot of you. So Ring of Honor came along at a time when you were in your teenage years, early 20s, you know, mid, late 20s, whatever. So, uh, yeah, it was a big deal at the time, and we'll talk about that and everything going on there. So it should be quite the show on this month on Between the Sheets at the end of the month on our next show. Like I said, five dollars a month gives you access to listen to that. Plus all the other Patreon shows that we've done in our five-plus years of the Patreon. Dollar a month gives you access to the Discord thanks in this segment, which we'll do in just a minute. $25 allows you to pick a show for the week. Now, uh, have two choices, have two shows handy just in case, because you may pick a show that we've done already, or you may pick a show that uh, somebody else may have that week uh, locked up on the calendar. We have some weeks um, coming up we're going to be doing. So, uh, yeah, always have uh, two shows in your mind just in case. And um, if there's any questions, then uh, you follow the protocol on the Patreon website, or you just get in touch with us directly, and we'll try to get you uh, straightened out. Of course, there's the 30-day rules in effect. Get that before 30 days. Then you got your 10-year rule, Wednesday to Tuesday, this, that, and the other. So just go to the Patreon website, follow all the protocol there, and you should be good to go. $50, I just send it for a segment of the show, and 100 for the whole show, if you choose. That's it, patreon.com slash between the sheets. And also the yearly rate picks. Go ahead and tell them about that. Yes, uh, we have annual options available where you get 16% off, uh, mainly for obvious reasons, people using it, for the $5 tier, which would come out to uh, $50.40 a year. So that's available as well. And of course, all the benefits from each tier stay that way. You just get the discount by doing it as an annual billing option. And uh, I haven't checked yet, but I believe also they have set up hybrid billing in the stuff we talked about several weeks back. Because I think that was coming for the new year. I'm not 100% sure, but I believe that that has either started or should be starting soon. Is that like hybrid fighting? Hybrid billing? No, it's the thing we talked about where, like, they'll do prorating if you join in the middle of the month. And you can set a specific billing day for all your, you know, subscriptions that aren't just the first. You know, stuff like that. There you go. All right. So, uh... All right, so there's that. So let's thank our new and or returning patrons now, Bix. And we got a bunch of them. Good. You would like to thank 
Adam and Neary of Twitter fame. Thanks, Adam. Ricky Schmidt with a annual subscription. Thanks, Ricky. Leroy Price. Thanks, Leroy. The Academic Agent. Thanks, Academic Agent. George Steele coming back from the dead. He was an academic and a road agent. Yeah, I guess. Uh, Chris Tunstall. Thanks, Chris. Stephen Corbin. No idea if he's happy. <laughs> Thanks, Stephen. Mike. Thanks, Mike. Annual subscription from Cushed God. Cushed? K-U-S-H-E-D. Oh, okay. Well, I'm guessing Kush, as in marijuana, is involved there, too. But thanks, Kush to God. Yes, as in the stickiest of the icky. Um, an uh, annual uh, subscription from Blue Meanie Mike. Thanks, Blue Meanie Mike. Anthony Hagen. Thanks, Anthony. Brian Fowler. Thanks, Brian. Some guy named Case Lowe. <laughs> Thanks, last week's guest, Case Lowe. He, I think he did tell us after we finished recording that he was going to subscribe to the Patreon, didn't he? He did, yeah. So, thank you, Case. Uh, William Lanham. Thanks, William. Annual subscription from Paul Keedy. Thanks, Paul. William Chandler. Thanks, William Chandler. Marcus Padilla. Thanks, Marcus. Uh... A $5 a month subscription was edited to an annual subscription by Michael Martinez. Thanks, Michael. And, of course, uh, one of the most frequently returning champions, Big J. Sampson. Big J. Sampson, thank you, as always, for uh, being a part of the Patreon, the patreon.com slash 20 sheets. Thank all you other new patrons, returning patrons. Patrons have been there from the beginning, never left. Patrons that have been there and came back. We thank all of you for your patronage at patreon.com slash between the sheets. All right, IWTV Bix, what's caught your eye this week? Okay, let's see. As I go from the tab I was in, um, pretty decent amount of archival stuff has gone up on On Demand the last week or so. Um, I know that episode two of Masked Wrestler has gone up as well. I've not, uh, not started watching that yet. We'll probably try to do so later this weekend. But uh, a lot of archival CZW, some archival AIW. So, okay, where should we start? As I look at some of these CZW shows that are up from 04, 07, just pick a random one. We, we've got, uh, let's see. Uh, let's go with the first CZW one that's here, Aftershock. March 27th, 04. We've got, let's see. Got a show that includes... Uh, India Hall of Famer Ruckus versus uh, someone who was in attendance at the India Hall of Fame and also uh, was on the Hammerstein show the next night, B-Boy. And by the way, this is a show in Italy. This is one of the Italy CCW shows. Yes, I remember that. Uh, Jimmy Rave versus Sunday Dutt versus Nick Perk. Yeah. A main event of... Uh, an ultra-violent death match where Sabu the Messiah and Adam Flash took on Zandig, Wifebeater, and Ian Knox. Oh, also, the opener uh, included uh, the hate club of Nick Age and Nate Hatred taking on what appears to be mainly uh, some European tag teams. And uh, also, Nate Hatred took on Steve Torres, who I believe was an Italian wrestler. That's an interesting one that's up there now. 
Uh, let me pick one more from CZW, and then we'll look at some of the AIW stuff. So what do we got here? Uh, let's go with Lights, Camera, CZW for March 2008. Anything interesting we've got here? This is not a match I necessarily would have expected in CZW, but it still kind of makes sense. Vordell Walker versus Ricky Reyes. Vordell's getting around that era, yeah. Yeah, that's a really interesting one on paper, too. Um, let's see what else do we have here. Team Andrew of Andy Sumner and Drew Gulak versus the Naptown Dragons of Die Hard Dustin Lee and Scotty Vortex. Die Hard Dustin Lee is, of course, num not anyone we've ever told a story about on this podcast while omitting his name for potential legal reasons. Um, barbed Wire Weapons Match, Mickey Knuckles versus Insane Lane, uh, Drake Younger versus Ruckus versus Nick Gage. Uh, I feel like I missed something here. Uh, I forgot that uh, Greg Excellent and Beef Wellington were known as Two Girls, One Cup. Mm-hmm. Well, that was that era. And they took on 2.0 and Teaching Cloudy in a three-way. So, some interesting-looking stuff here. Oh, and an ultra-violent gauntlet with uh, Danny Havoc, Shane Storm. I forgot Shane Storm did deathmatch stuff. Freak Show, Ian Run, and Necro Butcher. Plus, oh, plus Drake. Well, wait, I said that already. Never mind. So, some interesting looking stuff here. And then also from our friends at Absolute Intense Wrestling, we've got. Wait, were there two here? Okay, no, it's Gauntlet for the Gold 9. I think there's more, but I couldn't tell if there were a few next to each other. And that is March 2014. Uh, let's see what we got here. We got ACA versus Lewis Linden, Eddie Kingston versus Tim Donst. Uh, Bobby Beverly versus Ethan Page, the Bateri versus the Jollyville Fuckets, uh, Davey Vega versus Shane Hollister versus Trevor Lee versus Tyson Dukes, uh, Flip Kendrick, and I don't remember Ty Colton versus uh, Josh Prohibition and Matt Cross. So nice looking AIW show with some of the mainstays like Kingston and Donst. So also their Battle Bowl from 2011. Um, <laughs> Would you like to hear what a Thorn and Biggins uh, Lethal Lottery sounded like in 2011? Sure. Let's see. Uh, I won't read all of them. Let's see what we have here. Kind of fun. What's the best? Well, okay. Noth nothing says it really like this team. I'll just sum it up with this. The team of the Duke and Colt Cabana. Well, there you go. On a show that also included uh, Johnny Gargano versus Jimmy Jacobs. Uh, saw the... Super Smash Brothers in action, so fun stuff from our friends at AIW. And then uh, trying to think, was there anything? Oh, I haven't watched it yet because they were having uh, streaming issues from the weather, and I haven't I hadn't checked to see if the VOD was up until now. But there was a new Beyond show this weekend with uh, matches including uh, the Beyond Return of Biff Busick, uh, Oni Lorcan taking on Slade, uh, Lufisto versus Masha Slamovich. Uh, Wheeler Yuta, Rhett Titus, and Tracy Williams versus Kings of the District. Uh, Bear Country and a four-way. Matt Kowski versus Anthony Green. So, various good stuff on uh, IWTV this week. And if you're not already a subscriber, independentwrestling.tv, use code BTSPOD. We will get a referral as long as you remain a paid subscriber. So, check that out. Yeah, and um, since AIW came up... March 26th in Akron, Ohio, Dr. De Dr. D. David Schultz yes. in AIW. 
the doctor is in. That's an amazing, amazing booking right there. So that's going to be interesting to see what happens with Dr. D showing up in AIW. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. He's done signings. I'm not sure if he's ever done a signing at an indie show before, though, in this era. Well, especially not as high profile of an indie as AIW. And especially since AIW generally does get the, you know, legend doing the signing involved in some kind of angle where... Duke or Dr. Dan or whoever gets bumped. We can only hope. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, we will probably be having Dom or Thorne or maybe both before that happens. Let's talk about this. So, uh, yeah, I can't can't wait for this one. That's a very interesting deal there. But there you go. So there's IWTV. All right, Bix, let's talk about our new sponsor. And uh, we talked about them last week. So, uh, the floor is yours to uh, talk about the best of the VPNs. <laughs> yes, private internet access. Uh, you want to check them out and also support us, privateinternetaccess.com slash between the sheets. Today's episode, of course, is brought to you by Private Internet Access, America's number one virtual private networker VPN. Remember, even if you use incognito mode, your internet service provider is storing your browsing data and many times even selling it. But private internet access can help. They encrypt and reroute your internet traffic through their own servers, hiding your data from internet service provider or network admin. And with servers in over 75 countries, you can get unrestricted access to geo-blocked content around the world. And I'm guessing that's probably what interests uh, our listeners the most. And they mm-hmm. have all sorts of easy-to-use apps and browser extensions for a ver- wide variety of de- devices, what they refer to as a rock-solid privacy policy, open-source security, lots of customization settings, and it was just ranked the fastest VPN in the world by PC Mag. That's wow. a big deal. <laughs> it is. Yes, it is. That's what I said. We only do with the best. Yes. So, if you want to check them out, the best deal they have to offer right now is 80 bucks for what they're calling three years plus four months three. So 80 bucks for 40 months... I think it might technically be $79. Let me click to make sure. Uh, yeah, $79 for 40 months. Comes out to a little less than $2 a month. I gotta say, that's absolutely the best deal you can get on a VPN right now. Especially with the price changes that uh, some of their competitors uh, have been having. So, privateinternetaccess.com slash between the sheets and the uh, from there, there's all sorts of stuff you can check out. You can subscribe to AEW Plus. You can get the legacy WWE Network. There's all sorts of different stuff you can do. So, privateinternetaccess.com slash between the sheets. All right. Yes, go there. All right. Uh, next week on Between the Sheets, we go back to 1997, where we got a lot of talk about television, the future tele- in television and wrestling, as uh, WCW is. Uh, TBS wants to add a show on TBS, a WCW show. So we'll talk about that. We'll talk about Ted Turner possibly showing up at Nitro to do an angle with Eric Bischoff. We'll have more on that. Plus, we'll talk about Nitro, another assorted WCW insanity. And we'll have uh, the Indies. We'll have the Michinoku Pro guys making their ECW debut in Massachusetts. We'll have that. We'll have the Truth Commission making their debut on Memphis Television. We'll have all the stuff from Japan, Mexico, and then WWF 
Shawn Michaels loses his smile in Lowell, Massachusetts. So we'll have that and so much more next week on Between the Sheets. Should be quite the show. All right, you can follow, follow me on Twitter at Chris Zellner, K-R-I-S-Z-E-L-N-E-R, show proper at BT Sheets Pod, Bix at David Bix. And uh, Bix, anything going on this week? Uh, yeah, so I had a story go up. Was that technically this past week? I think so. Uh, at uh, fanbite.com with, with you know, the 30th anniversary of the 1992 Royal Rumble. Tried to take a look at kind of the history of the Hulk Hogan character being an asshole, something we've talked about on this show quite a bit in the past, and how it just kind of crept up in 1986, and then basically if someone was turning on him, and I say specifically turning on him, because, you know, with Earthquakes, Sergeant Slaughter, um, who am I forgetting? You know, Kamala, just whoever, you know, those didn't happen there, but, you know, you you know, it was widely thought by people watching Royal Rumble 92 that he had just turned heel. And not that Sid was turning heel. So go over all of that there. Uh, by the time this is out, either about to come out or out should be, got a little delayed, um, but article about the GCW Hammerstein show and how it fits into the history of the Manhattan Center, and particularly the Hammerstein Ballroom, including talking about how, uh, I don't think people realize this, the Hammerstein Ballroom is the former Manhattan Opera House, which means, excuse me, the, the, wait, did I say Manhattan Center or Hammerstein? The Hammerstein is specifically the former Manhattan Opera House, which is why it looks like that, which means that, yes, people like Strangler Lewis and the Masked Marvel wrestled in the same building as your favorite uh, 2000 ECW wrestlers, uh, various ROH wrestlers, and uh, the Game Changer Wrestling All-Stars a few weeks ago. So that should be up there. Some other stuff coming up there soon. And uh, I think that's about it. All right. Well, on that note, let's get back to the rest of the show. All right. Let's go to the indie scene. And John's back with us. And let's begin with everyone's favorite international world-class championship wrestling. They tape. Well, this is a taping. I don't know if there was a taping, but they ran in Hamburg, Pennsylvania, on February the 6th. We have Joel Savodi over Rick Needy. It's a great name for a wrestler, Rick Needy. Jimmy Be Good. I wonder who he's a ripoff of. Over Dark Angel. Not Sarah Stock. Midnight Rocker. Neither Marty Gennetti or Shawn Michaels. Over Vinny Biondi. Okay. Oh, this is a great PWI 500 spotlight match of the early 90s. Jimmy Dio and Morgus the Maniac over Mark Mest and Troy Mest. Now, wait a second. Was Jimmy Dio Maniac Jimmy Dio here, or was he not Maniac Jimmy Dio when teaming with Morgus the Maniac? I don't know. Maybe there's some Maniacs. I don't know. They should have came up to Maniac by Michael Cimbello. It's their theme song. I don't know. Then we had Neil Superior over the Nomad. Don Deluxe over Striker Lewis. You can the Strangler Lewis and Jeff Gripley over Scab. <laughs> so we have Savaldi's, well, the Savaldi's, I should say, running a house show mm-hmm. at what had been their TV taping location for the last year or so. Yes. With n- no names bigger than Neil Superior and Joe Savaldi. Yes. That's interesting. Money may have been tight that day. I'd love the attendance. Yeah, I'd love to know the attendance <laughs> yeah. on that show. Yes, I would too. I'd say less than a hundred. Yeah, that's a. This I'm assuming this is at the Fieldhouse, right? 
I would guess so. Hamburg, I would guess it would be there. Yeah. Um, I mean, look at this lineup. We don't even have Mr. Flex Lavender. No. I'm, I'm, no, sure, you don't. That, I'm sure that a lot of YouTube uh, viewers would be disappointed by that, that he's not on this. Yeah, a lot of the IWCCW names, uh, record names aren't on there, but uh, there you go. Yeah. Well, I mean, Candido's in, is, is in Tennessee at this point, right? He's not working smoky yet. Oh, he's not yet. Okay. No. Oh, too early. So who knows? Yeah, this is this is a weird show. I don't remember ever seeing any other IC, IWCCW type of lineup like this before. This is this could have been a high school show though too. Think, you think of, this could have been like a a you know a paid show. Could have been. But when but they try knows? to get a name for a sold show, I don't know. Okay. But anyway. Let's go, let's go to Maryland in the MEWF. And Wait, are we going to get more from the Mests then? Uh, no. Aww. All right, February, February the 5th in Gaithersburg, Maryland, in front of 200 fans, we have Quinn Nash over Watsumi the Rising Sun, <laughs> Wolfman over Mark Osborne, the Sonic Express over Leather and Lace, Chris Candido hey. over Ricky Lane, uh, Bob... Uh, Playboy Bobby Starr over AJ Fritzoy by disqualification. I thought he's Hollywood Bob Starr. Hollywood Bobby Starr, you correctly. There you go. Lucifer over Max Thrasher to win the MEWF title. And in our main event, Nikolai Volkov over Morgus the Maniac. Oh, that's delicious. <laughs> Morgus was getting work too a couple days ago. Yeah. Yes, this is the this is that northeastern indie scene in the early '90s, John, which we talk about on the on this show when we do this era. You know, you look at what the northeast indie scene would become in the 2000s. People just don't know what it used to be like in the early '90s. <laughs> well, especially if it wasn't like a Corluzo show. Yeah, you know, it, it was quite the quite the uh, hodgepodge of talent. That's for damn sure. Good lord. Yeah, well, Corluzo were also a John McAdams promotion or something like that. Like, yeah, but John mainly just used his local guys. He used the know? locals, yeah. but he was trying to at least have something of like a work rate promotion. Yes, yeah, he was. Oh, yeah. But yeah, but he wasn't bringing you know bringing in the old WWF names. Like, was running all over the Northeast Indies of this era. Although he did like bring Nicolai in Waltman Paul. for at least a show too, didn't he? Yeah, but he wasn't. But yeah, but he was. You know still lightning kid so and plus he knew john anyway so there you know i'm sure there was a brother right involved he knows a lot of our friends named john yes yes he does (laughs) all right nwf and hendersonville north carolina on february 6th we had the carolina heartbreak over ricky rocket the terminators of rick savage and cherokee renegade dc express over paul ray the executioners and tim reed over all american tc jeff husker and jd sullivan what a crew this is. The Patriot, Dell Wilkes over Matt Power. Jimmy Valiant, Casey Thunder, or Playboy Buddy Land- I mean, Playboy Nature Boy Buddy Landell, and Vladimir Koloff in your main event by disqualification. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, okay. Couldn't end that house show with a clean pin, eh? <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, could, Vladimir Koloff couldn't do a job. <laughs> well, he might, he might kill somebody. So, you know, you, you, you probably didn't want to ask him to do that. Because didn't he murder somebody or something like that? Wasn't that what his thing was? I think Dick? so. No, he was the one. That he was, was the no. He's the one who would always set up shop in WalMarts in the Carolinas about how he's nationally famous wrestler Vladimir Koloff. 
There was, I thought I remember him, his name being linked to somebody getting murdered or something. I could be wrong. I, I, I think you're thinking of someone else, Chris. Um, could it be the, the Vladimir Petrov? Could it be that crossover? That sometimes happens. No, because I, 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 yeah, he's drugs. Um, I thought it was Vladimir Kolov. I could be wrong. But anyway, um, Bo James' cousin, Casey Thunder, in the main event here. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, what? Who's promoting this? I don't remember an NWF in the Carolinas. Um, I'm not sure. Oh, okay. I found a Vladimir Koloff thing. Um, he he's a poultry breeder. His real name is Carl Brantley. He's a poultry breeder. Poultry poultry breeder. Excuse me. I thought you were so, going to yeah. say his name was Jason Pugh Senior. No, he was a poultry breeder. All right. Um, let's go to WWOW. That they must be Taylor's. Wide World, right? I guess. They There's ran Taylor's in North Carolina promotion. on February 6th in front of 250. A sellout crowd of 250. For Tommy Gunn over Colt Steele. Jay Eagle over uh, Brian Kendrick's favorite wrestler, the Stormtrooper. Helmet Hessler. No, no, no. It's, uh, he's, he's, Stormtrooper was, Helmet Hessler by disqualification. Okay, Sorry. so I also didn't know that then. So the masked guy with the Nazi outfit stormtrooper from Tennessee is the same guy as Helmet Hessler then? No, they're not. That's what threw me off. Oh, so this is Helmet Hessler working as nicknamed stormtrooper Helmet Hessler. Yes. Okay. Yes. Because Helmet Hessler wasn't enough. <laughs> no. <laughs> we had to add stormtrooper to the mix. Bambi over Piggly Leather. Well, you know blah, what blah, happened blah, after. Blah, blah. Wahoo made Daniel over Great Hammer Valentine by disqualification. Well, that's in North Carolina. Hell, yeah. And then Tommy Gunn went about a royal. That was probably so, your sellout right there. Why? Exactly. Right? Exactly, John. And and that's the thing, you know, in this era, I'm surprised that we, you know, you didn't have a more of that in the Carolinas where you would get these these Crockett feuds from the late seventies, early eighties, if the guys were still able to work, run them in these small towns and draw houses. Cause you I mean, I would I gotta think there would be a group of fans who was loyal to JCP that would want to, you know, come back and see these guys work against each other. Yeah, that would make sense. I mean, back in that era, too, you know, and, and Wahoo was not really bit. I mean, yeah, it makes sense. He wasn't too busy. Greg was just out of tight not too long before that, right? He was in WCW. Oh, that's right. <laughs> Him and Terry Taylor as the U.S. Tag that's right. Champions. So, I mean, this isn't like Bobo and the Sheik, you know, wrestling in Michigan in the 90s, which did happen. Yes. But, uh, I mean, these are still two guys who could still, you know, pretty much go, you know? And, uh, yeah, so... Interesting stuff there. Then Peach State Wrestling, Ben Masters promotion in Cordell, Georgia. Lovely Cordell on February 5th, around 4 and 15 fans. We had T.A. Golden over T.C. Carter. The Jailhouse Rocker and the Liverboy Lee Thomas beat Kenny Arden and Eskini Kenny Arden and Dale Lucas. Mass versus Hair Match, where R.D. Swain defeated the Punisher, who amassed as... Bix's best friend, Glenn Gilbernetti, Gilberti, <laughs> Paul, Disco Inferno, Paul Golden over Mike Golden, Deathmatch, Cowboy Dennis Gale, who uh, is one of the top guys of Russell America here in my hometown, over Steve the Brawl Lawler, and then our main event, Ted Oates over Mr. Hughes by disqualification. So 415, not a bad house, eh? Well, don't they always, Drew? 
That's what they they, they drew. All, they they drew very well in Cordell. They would run stadium shows at the high school football field over there, and then they would draw thousand plus. You know, and bring and that and later on in Peach State. You probably remember this. Peach State was one of the, you know, like a darling promotion in the newsletters because they would bring in, you know, WCW and ECW names working t- on the same shows. You know, they would have, uh, you know, Raven and Cactus and Rob Van Dam and Steiners, Scorpio, uh, working against each other. So you would have these weird WCW versus ECW, you know, interpromotional matches on Peach State wrestling shows. Yeah, mix it up, make some money. Exactly, yeah. All right, let's go to Smoky Mountain Wrestling. Oh, boy. All right, so yes. on TV during our week, this is the same Saturday as Jim Cornette on TBS, Jim Cornette did an interview talking about the Heavenly Bodies and how they are now a corporation, meaning that any two of the three, Bobby Eaton, Dr. Tom Pritchard, and Sweet Stan, can defend the tag team titles. During the interview, Lane and Eaton still acted as though they were getting ready to phase Pritchard out. Well, let's watch this clip and see if that body language is there as uh, we go down and dirty with Dutch, but not Dutch because he's feuding with Cornette. So it's Bob Cottle in his spot talking to Jim Cornette. All right, fans, we're here right now with Jim Cornette and all three of the heavenly bodies, Tom Pritchard, Stan Lane, Bobby Eaton. And I got to tell you, first of all, I'm here because Dutch Mantell refused. He wouldn't come out and talk to him. He's a stinking hairball coward is what Dutch Mantell is. He looks like a big, fat, overgrown chia pet. Now, let me just say this. Before we get started, I want to go back and I want to take a look. Shut up, you redneck hillbillies. Rock and roll ain't going to do nothing for you but rot your brain. I want to go back to the greatest day of my life last week right here on TV. And I want to see how, with the help of my old pal Bob, <laughs> we regained our rightful place as Smoky Mountain Tag Team Champions. Go ahead and show that tape right now. Here's Robert Gibson as he goes to work now on the Heavenly Bodies. Both of them as he slams them together. Not near the center of the ring. And look at Gibson now. Gibson bigger, stronger. We don't Ricky have a referee Moore. in there to count. No. Ricky Moore going covered. to see about the referee. Moore He's now. trying to get yeah. the referee up. The referee. Wait Moore's a minute. Trying to get Robert him up. Gibson here has... comes. It looks to me. Looks oh, like he's got Stan Lane. Kyle. Wait a minute. Here comes Kyle. Oh, what a blackjack! He hit him with a blackjack. Wait a minute. Here comes the first table. They're going into Kyle now. Why are they going after Kyle? Now the referee is trying to. Trying to we got wild get, chaos right wait here. Wait a minute. Over for the what referee. Is, Here's Morton and go. And now Dutch is taking off, fans. Robert Gibson and Jimmy Golden go at it. By heavens, what a wild time. 
complete chaos is broken out. There's no order at all. In the ring, Pritchard. In the ring, Stan Lane, but outside, Morton was being clobbered. The referee is still out. You see Gibson now go over to get Pritchard. We're going to get all four guys back in the ring. The referee is still out. Fans, let's see if we can get some order restored here. Dutch Mantell, wait a minute. Dutch just threw something in. He threw something out of the boot, evidently. And Morton just shrugged Richard with that. Champion. Let me say something. I just want to thank the Lord for bringing Bobby back here because, you know, Tom was in a little bit of trouble as usual. But, Bobby, you pull us out, baby. I knew you'd come back. Bobby, I just want to Notice what Stan just said there? Tom oh, yeah. was in trouble as usual. Oh, yeah. All right. Laying so, the groundwork. In other words, at this point, when this is being taped, when Corny thinks he has a long-term relationship with WCW in the cards, he's planting seeds for Tom to turn face and to do a formal Midnight's reunion. Mm-hmm. Which I did that? not realize was part of this. No, I didn't. I never really noticed it till just just now when we heard it and what you know what Dave was saying about what you know uh, the, the the talk here and then the body language and everything. So, wow, how about that? That's something they get, they get talked about. Yeah, and of course, I mean, of the three guys who has the most history as a babyface in the area, Tom Pritchard. Tom Pritchard, yes. Hmm. Yeah, it right. makes sense if you have group? a long-term deal. All right, so back, back in the stand. Okay. All right, so this is wait, the 2301, so let's go to... Yeah, yeah, good, it's good. For bringing Bobby back here because you know Tom's in a little bit of trouble as usual. But Bobby, you pull us out, baby. I knew you'd come back. Bobby, I, I just want to welcome you to the group. I just want to welcome you to the heavenly bodies. Okay, Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Tom. Let me just say this. 
Dutch Stable, we got six-man tags signed with you. And that's obvious. Stan Lane, Tom Pritchard, and Bobby Eaton against Robert Fuller, Jimmy Golden, Dutch Mantel. That's real obvious. But the question was brought up. We've got tag team title matches signed with the Rock and Roll Express. Who's going to defend the belts? I've got a little answer to that question. You see, the heavenly bodies are a corporation. And that's the way that I filed the papers when we signed our open contract with Smoky Mountain Wrestling. The heavenly bodies incorporated. So that means that any member of the corporation, Bob Connell, can defend the Smoky Mountain tag team title. Rock and roll, rock and roll, they don't ever shut up. Just like a bunch of trained monkeys. So it's like this, Ricky Morton, Robert Gibson, on any given night, when you have a title match with the heavenly bodies, you might face Lane and Pritchard, you might face Stan Lane and Bobby Eaton, you might face Pritchard and Eaton, and you're never gonna know till the match comes about. And I'm gonna say one more thing. You know, there's a lot of things going on in the world these days you can derive some kind of knowledge from. You can derive some kind of strategy to live your life. You see, the United States got some problems with some people over there in another country. Saddam Hussein, Iraq. Well, well, they had Iraq. They had Saddam Hussein in the palm of their hand one time before. And instead of squeezing that palm and crushing them, crushing the life out of them, they let them go scot-free. Well, brother, Stud Stable, Rock and Roll Express, when we take prisoners, when we got you in the palm of our hand, the greatest collection of wrestling talent ever formed, we're not going to let you go scot-free. We're going to close and squeeze and crush the stinking life out of you because nobody, nobody can stand up to Jim Cornette's heavenly bodies now. I don't care who they are. Let me say something. Come here, Bobby. Let me tell you something, Bob Connell. It's a crying shame. It's a sin what the women around these parts will do just to get beautiful Bobby and sweet Stan to notice them. I'm telling you, they will degrade themselves. They will humiliate themselves. They will crawl on their bellies across cut glass just to get beautiful Bobby and sweet Stan. And you can see it all in Stan's photo album. Well, not anymore. But notice again, he's not even mentioning Tom in this. Yeah. Yeah. Also, I don't know why I didn't notice this when we were watching the WCW clip. Stan does not have the wig yet here. No. No, he's still Stan with Stan hair. Yeah. No, but you can tell that he's uh, considering it. Yes. They're away. (laughs) We can't have a ball. All right, fans. Jim Cornette, the Heavenly Bodies Incorporated. Somebody's got to have to get up early in the morning to figure out what to do with these. We'll be back right now. Let's take time out for this. So I just remembered this. I just, cause I just watched this like a couple weeks ago, Bobby won the TV title. And in that time period, they drew names out of the hat to determine who was going to face the TV champion every week on television. And Dr. Tom's name got picked out of the hat. And Cornette and Bobby and Stan were all upset. They were doing that whole deal where we're going to get this change, you know, blah, blah, blah. But Tom wanted the match. And they did this little runaround. But I think that of it, that the match never happened, if I remember right, because the whole the angle got dropped by that time. But, um, yeah, they, it, we used to see here as, as what's going on where – you know, at one point, Stan, like, shoves Dr. Tom away yeah. from his arm. 
You know, I mean, you definitely can see that the seeds are being planted for a heavenly body breakup here. Yeah, it was definitely there. And, and they weren't even subtle. This was multiple times in, in one your interview. face. In your face, yeah. And, um, yeah, I'm looking now, going through the Smoky Mountain results. Um, yeah, they, they, I don't think they, no, they never do the Pritchard match. Never do it. So, so somewhere in that window, things fell apart. Well, no, I think they, I think they had a change. I, I think they just, they changed the okay. match. Yeah, I think they just had the match changed. Okay. Because Bobby's there until May. So he's yeah, there. Yeah, they had a really interesting year when you think about it. Start with WCW and then by the, uh, what, August, July? Well, yeah, with... yeah, like five months later, they're with WWF. <laughs> Heavenly bodies were everywhere. Well, there are, yeah, you know, it's the two different versions of the team, but there are Smoky Mountain Tag yes. Title matches between the Rock and Rolls and the Heavenly Bodies on both WWF and WCW pay-per-views in 1993. <laughs> yes. It, 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 just, yeah, wild, wild. Um, I love all the stuff that's that's uh, callbacks to previous eras. You have the uh, four flat tire angle, uh, where you know, which is of course famous for Austin Idol in Georgia in 1980. That where who's there? Robert Fuller. Then you have the incorporated. The this is a a playoff, not just the Freebirds, but Midnight Express Incorporated in Southeastern ten years earlier where it was Dennis and Randy and Norvell where Midnight Express Incorporated. So any two of the three could defend the tag titles in Southeastern. Who was there in Southeastern? Robert Fuller. Yeah, they pulled it all together. So, and Robert Fuller's here in Smokey. <laughs> Robert yeah, Fuller, a- yeah, Robert Fuller and Jimmy Golden and, and doing their, uh, their running and their sweaters. I thought that was a nice touch. <laughs> yeah, the whole thing was fun. Oh, God, yeah, you know, I love this great. I got to give a call out, too, to Brian Hillebrand on that bump. Oh, yeah, well, yeah, Brian's – Brian was awesome. Oh, yeah, just had his back. He, he took a blind bump. You know, he doesn't know he's going to get hit from behind. He just knows that's coming. And the camera angle really worked well on this, too, because they were zoomed in on him, and he gets hit in such a way where he jumps right off camera. Then they pan it back, and you don't even see him. So it looks like they just knocked him into the next building almost. Just a great bump. Yeah, yeah. This Smokey at this time is is rolling. You know, they're 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 rolling on all cylinders at this point in time, and that that feud right there. Of course, Arn hasn't showed up yet, so you didn't get Arn to the equation. And yeah, just just a great time period for Smoky Mountain Wrestling. Absolutely. All right. Only house shows this past weekend were on February fifth in Asheboro, North Carolina, where they drew four twenty five despite not having television. How about that? They're running the town. We don't even have TV. And then Morristown, Tennessee. On February 6th, where they set their city record, drawing a $4,800 house, nearly 800 fans to Tim Horner's high school alma mater. Of course, he's the promoter. And he's in the opening match, beating Killer Kyle. Then you have Dirty White Boy over Reno Riggins. Brian Lee over Kevin Sullivan falls can anywhere. Then we had a double disqualification, Heavenly Bodies against the Stud Stable. And then Heavenly Bodies, Dr. Tom and Stan Lane, retain the tag titles, beating Rock and Roll Express. We got these more some of these Morristown shows on tape, and they were always hot shows. Picks uh, when we watched the handhelds. Uh, Tim Horner, I mean, he could he could promote his town, absolutely. And uh, he had brought one of the in- initial non Rick Rubin backers into Smokey too, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
So he's intertwined, and we're still a good like year and a half, a little less, I guess. But well, we're still well over a year away from him and Cornette having their falling out too. So he's he's still in the mix. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was a very valuable employee for Smoky Mountain Wrestling. He, yes. he could work, he could promote, he could do you know all kinds of stuff. And isn't it interesting that you know when he leaves, that's when a lot of stuff starts falling apart. You know, weren't there other people who weren't around as much around that time too? Like, when does Sandy Scott stop being as involved, or is he there the whole time? Sandy Scott's there the whole time, basically. Okay, who am I thinking of then? But you know, he gets rid of Casey O'Connor and and all that too. So, which I mean, you know, at worst, it's good to have another warm body around, and I don't think he gets replaced or anything, and. I don't think Horner has any replacements to help around with office type stuff. So, uh, easy to see and how was, Cornette gets and, even more spread thin. But go ahead. And there was a, the, the woman, too. Well, oh, I can't remember her name that they let go. Oh, uh, b- 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 Pam Lawson. Pam Lawson, yes. That's another one. Yeah, I mean, John, I mean, sometimes, you know, we talk about WCW having too many chefs in the kitchen. But still, sometimes you have to have that, you know, a, that proper amount of people involved so that the one person doesn't get burnt out on everything. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because creatively, it's a creative is a strain alone and you can't have to then do all the business stuff, too. I, I know like shows here when we did stuff, obviously not anywhere near as big as this. Um, you still had help. You divided tasks. I didn't do parts of things just because creative. Right. And mm-hmm. then other people were handling other aspects of, you know, buildings, arrangements, paying things, you know, it's, you can't, you can't do too much with, you know, put one in one basket, right. You can't put too many eggs in one basket. And that's what Cornette was dealing with a lot of times there. Yeah, absolutely. The TV you know, title change. I just realized what? something. What? Excuse me. I wonder if, you know, if, I think lately a lot of, like, the GCW wrestlers have been vocal about, you know, how glad, you know, the mainstays, like your Effie, Alley Cat, whoever, about, like, being, how kind of once they became, like, regulars and in the mix that Brett Lauderdale involved them a lot more in being able to book matches they wanted or whatever, and knowing, like, how much of, like, an organized crew they have, I wonder wonder just how much you can chalk up GCW success this last year or so, you know, when things have really blown up for them, to the fact that Brett actually delegates and has other people doing work and stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a big help. Yeah. Especially when you're trying to grow like they are. But you don't want to give away too much power because then that could come back and bite you in the ass because they could do something that could hinder what you're trying to do as well. So you can't, yeah, you, 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 you give them, you give them that, that, that space and that, you know, what they need. But sometimes when you're the boss, you gotta, you know, say, Hey, we're not going to do this. You know what I'm saying? So you just gotta, you gotta, you gotta walk that line too with, uh, trying to deal with talent that's booking their own storylines or booking their own matches. On the other hand, though, you have someone like a, you know, we just talked about Sandy Scott, his brother, George Scott, his biggest strength as a booker, as best as we can tell, was knowing when to delegate which talent can book their own storylines. Yeah. Go ahead, John. I'll just say that can create strain, too, if you have too many people 
you know, booking storylines because you eventually might have to merge things, move in new directions, and you don't want you don't want somebody going too far in one direction away from maybe where you want to go. So you always have to keep an eye on the continuity of it all as a whole. Yeah. All right. The TV title changed hands twice in the February 8th tapings in Jellicoe, Tennessee. First hour to tape in the Night Stalker, Brian Clark, Raph, uh, and a bomb. Winning the title from Tracy Smothers due to outside interference with Dirty White Boy. After the match, White Boy brought a garbage can and took Smothers' Confederate flag and put it in the can and lit it on fire. Later in the third hour, Tim Horner beat Night Stalker to win the title. Also in the show, Dirty White Boy kept the Smoking Man title in a double juice match with Tracy Smothers. They went 15 minutes when Ron Wright finally got out of the wheelchair and interfered. So, yeah, hot TV tapings. I don't know if you watched the tape on that one. Uh, one of my favorite parts is Dutch just didn't see anything because he lost his contact lens. <laughs> yeah, Dutch that was is, his explanation. Yeah, Dutch was really good on commentary in this era with Bob, too. They were a good team. For, right for Smoky Mountain at this time. They were very well together. Very cohesive. But, yes, yeah, Smoky, Smoky's uh, this is some of their best stuff here in 93, so... And all of us online, folks, if you've never seen it, so go check it out. Yeah. I also do think, too, the I think Caudill's best work just in and of himself in Smokey by far is when he's with Dutch. Yes. He's he's good, but he's not as good a fit when he's not with Dutch. I think the thing with Bob is, is that Bob is back in his, in his comfort zone in Smokey. He's back in his neck of the woods only in the, in that territory. You know, he's working high school gyms and stuff like that. You know, places, you know, there were places that Crockett, you know, could tape TV in, in, in that era sometimes. So he's just back in his small town environment and it, it works out better that way for him. So, yeah, good times. All right, let's go across the state to the USWA. Okay, I'm going to go make dinner while you read all this and just I'll set a bot to run the clip. <laughs> no, no, you're not. All right, so it was the Doink the Clown show Saturday morning on Memphis Television. And Doink also wore tag matches on February 6th in Nashville and February 8th in Memphis team with Jeff Gaylord. Something for Brian Christopher, he was billed, but announced having a knee injury. Losing to Jerry Lawler and Jeff Jarrett when Doink did the job for Jarrett in both cities. Howard Finkel... WF also wrestled as a heel, if that's what you call it, in Memphis, going to no contest with downtown Bruno. In addition, Lex Luger will be on TV on the 13th and working against Jerry Lawler for the USWA title in both Nashville and Memphis, which, of course, we did that week when Lex made his debut in the studio, which was a tremendous week of television. Yes. And, of course, with Finkel, which I guess his promo right before this week. Oh, we're playing no, it. Okay. Oh, yes. It's coming. Okay. Oh, I'm happy then. Okay. Very good. All right, so let's go in the order. All right, so TV opened up with Brian Christopher yelling at Jerry Lawler and said he's tired of him and challenges him to come in the ring. At the same time, Doink is laying banana peels on the floor. When Lawler jumps in, Christopher runs avoiding the peels, and Lawler slips on them. When he takes a bump, Doink and Christopher start beating on Lawler until Jeff Jarrett makes a save. All right, well, let's go to that. Let's go watch the King slipping and sliding away here. you run in your mouth about me. I'm ready to shut it today. I'm ready to shut his mouth today. You understand me? I'll get it. Hey, hey, 
Hey! Yeah, one of the Rocky King, Hall Phantoms uh, that uh, they just away. Yeah, that's... Her head for the ring. The King, uh, the King hasn't left, but he's out of the ring. Oh, look out, look out, look out. Look out. Yeah, here comes. Uh, he seems to be in a real good mood, going the clown. Out in uh, the wrestling area, you can just... Yeah, sort of barely saw him there over on the left-hand side of the screen. Don't yeah. Out here. Meanwhile, look at the ring there. Christopher really going at uh, at Lawler. Lawler, uh, Lawler is uh, what? I know he's not scared. I have no doubt about that. Okay, I have a question seeing Doink laying out the banana pills. Mm-hmm. What is the correct way to lay out a banana peel to make someone slip on the floor? On a slick floor, obviously. Do you put the banana peel inside down so the slipperiness is the inside of the peel against the floor? Or do you put it inside up so it's your shoe that is slipping against the inside of the peel because he is doing it inside up and i feel like i'm used to seeing it done the other way i always thought it was like the split where you know you yeah. had the peel split on both sides and then the other thing no. yeah and he's putting a whole banana out there too essentially yeah the <laughs> whole hey, cloud over there. Oh, yeah. i'm not going yeah that's what he's telling it he, he figures it might be a two against one situation with doing the clown out here so uh, brian christopher hey, hey, He's left them all in the same spot. Here. Look, yeah. he's right back on uh, on the challenge. There goes Dunk the Clown. He just went back out. Yeah, he left. Come on, come on, come on, big shot. Come on, King. Boy, Christopher, with that mouth, and, and the King can't resist. He climbs into the ring, headed for Brian Christopher. Christopher dancing around, but backwards. I like how the ring attendant thought he wasn't on camera. <laughs> Grabbing the coat. Well, Ryan's and then jacket. he goes to duck out of the way, but he thinking he wasn't <laughs> already on camera. I can't remember his name, the security guy. They mention him on TV sometimes, but yeah. Yeah, Laura bags him up in the turnbuckle. Hey, God, Christopher! Okay, so to explain, since people can't listen to this, although of course you can find it on YouTube, it's the February 6, 1993 episode, Doink had laid out all of the banana peels close to the ring, so what Christopher did was suddenly veer out away from the ring. Yeah, he was running. Right, because he knew where it was, but Lawler didn't know it was there, so he was able to adjust, and Lawler was not, and Lawler ends up slipping on the peels. Yeah. Hey. On the floor over here, and now Christopher and the clown jump dive by Matt Yeah, Lawler. The, the clown <laughs> put a bunch of banana peels in the corner when he was out here, and Lawler slipped on it coming around, and now it is two against one, Christopher, and doing the clown against Lawler. Yeah, they jump on the king in there. And the Lawler slipped up on those bananas that Donk the Clown was peeling out here. And all the peelings and all, Christopher and the Clown jump on Lawler. Here comes comes. Jeff Jarrett, though. And there goes Christopher and Doink the Clown headed out of here. 
Now Lawler was leery of the whole thing when uh, when Doinkton Cloud came out. Yeah. He, he didn't want to get into it. Yes, can you can you see those uh, those banana peels over there? That's what's lying on the floor. The clown was over here. We he had his back to us. We could see him uh, uh, taunting Lawler too, uh, along with uh, Brian Christopher. But uh, that's he was loading up the corner over here with a bunch of banana peels. Christopher uh, jumped over him, and then when Lawler came roaring around that side of the ring, tripped him up, and they both jumped him. But uh, when Jeff Jarrett got here, it evened it up, and they're gone. So yeah. we'll get all of that cleaned up. And uh, there's a look if, at the banana peel. Yeah, yeah. He just kind of covered that corner over there. Very sneaky move from from Doink the Clown, who uh, who had come out very happy. Well, I was going to take a break, right. but let's not right. <laughs> and there's Bert. Um, <laughs> this is the first time I can remember. I'm sure I'm forgetting something. Watching a Memphis angle where there's a baby face save from the locker room to the interview area, and the baby face is smart enough to realize that the closest distance between two points is a straight line, and goes into the ring and then out of the ring to get there quicker instead of running all the way around. Well, Jeff Jarrett's one of the smartest men in wrestling for a reason, Biggs. One of. <laughs> I do have a complaint about the angle. Yes. Okay. All right. Um, and it's a nitpick thing. Mm -hmm. It drives me kind of crazy that everybody around there would saw what he was doing. Yeah. Throwing the bananas down the ground and just, yes. eh, whatever happens, happens. It's all good. <laughs> yeah. Nobody, yeah. Exactly. You know the what? The but... grabs the robe, but doesn't grab the banana peels right there. <sighs> exactly. Stuff like that. But you're you're know, right. You're exactly but, right. Yeah. But in fairness, I guess because of the side of the ring he was on, the crowd can't see it and they're not telling Lawler. Right, yeah, the crowd. I don't, you know, and, and the crowd's supposed to be out the of, side it anyway. of the ring with no fans. Right, yeah, yeah. And, and the crowds aren't supposed to be in there anyway. But you got Dave Brown, got Corey, um, yeah. you got. Well, they said you know, they couldn't see it because his back was to them. They said it was obscured by and, his position. But the they pointed him out. Yeah, the security guard was right there. Though that's the thing. Mm -hmm. That's the one. Yeah, and they, and they they pointed out, you know, oh, you know, Doink's over there on the left, and you know, doing something with bananas, and they do, they even had the uh, the moving camera zoom in on him to show it too. It's just yeah. a nitpick, a nitpick thing for me, where you know, I would I would be looking to find a way if I wanted to do something like that, to where it's more real time, and that there wouldn't be any obvious point of somebody saying, you know, everybody's just watching it happen. Yeah, I mean, you're right. You're right. But, but but I'm sorry. I, I just said one of those you know, <laughs> creative things. No, but you're right. They yeah, shouldn't yeah. have telegraphed you're it right. so much with how they directed it. No. Exactly. Yes. And then yeah. act surprised that it happened. Yes. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, all of that said, though, yeah. it's too bad that Matt Bourne was a fucking psychopath because he's amazing in this gimmick. <laughs> Oh well, we're we're far from done with him. I here. know, but it's it's <laughs> it's such a stark difference to see him playing Doink and then see anyone else playing Doink. Well, of course, yeah. yeah. All right, so yeah, Miss Texas Bert is out for an interview. Uh, Brian Christopher starts pushing her around, and then Doink shows up. So let's go to Bert and his boxing gloves, and then Miss Texas, and then more Doink. Wait, so am I continuing playing where we were? Or am I going to the next tip? Go to the next tag because I think it's, it's it's different. You did cue it up, okay? Yeah, you skipped ahead a little. Well, here's Miss Texas, uh, yeah. Bert Prentice, out here running his mouth a few minutes ago, but I expect Miss Texas has a word or two for Mister Prentice too. You know, Big Bertha, 
I know I can beat you in a boxing match. But when I get you in the ring, I'm going to... Now, wait, I have to ask a question, though. Has the Bubba Johnson stuff started yet? Yes. Yes. Oh, so yeah. she has taken to call him Big Bertha as a comeback <laughs> yes. to that. Yes. 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 you because you're nothing but a big fake. It doesn't matter who you train with. You can train with the best. It doesn't matter. But you know me. You know I'm a boxer, and I train with the best, too. So when I get you in the ring, I'm going to kick your fat butt up and down all around the ring. Now, look, she didn't come out and interfere in your interview, for yeah. heaven's sake. Oh, is that so? Yes, that's you're, so. You're going to do what? Yes. You're going to expose I'm me? Gonna expose you the whole world knows face. you're nothing but a man in drag. Oh, what are you? What oh, are really? you? What are you? You know, tough lady, you? you're so tough, maybe I'll just do a oh, thick really? one. Yeah. Oh, really? come on, come you're not going to come out here and try to embarrass me. Embarrass you? Yeah. But you coming out here, you embarrass your own self. You slept with half of the wrestling promoters. Will you stop that? <laughs> now, you want to come out here and say you're going to beat me? You know I don't think so. You jealous. You jealous. Like Did he say you slept with half of the wrestling promotions in the world? Yeah, yeah. Yep. <laughs> or, or wrestling promotion. <laughs> well, how about Miss Texas saying you did the same thing? <laughs> Wait, did she say that? Go, re, re, go back. Listen, okay. listen, to what, listen to what she says. Okay. Is this, or should I go a few more seconds? A little, maybe a couple seconds. Okay. All right. All right. This is embarrass good. me. Embarrass you. Yeah. Like you coming out here, you embarrass your own self. You slept with half of the wrestling promotion. Will you stop that? And then you want to come out here and say you're going to beat me? You know, I don't you, think you so. Are, yes, yes. You jealous? You jealous of me? Yes, yes, yes. I wouldn't want to. Be jealous. I'm sorry. Okay. Be jealous. You're jealous of me. <laughs> that's even. That's maybe even funnier. Look at that. You wish you looked as good as oh, me. You trap. You're a two bit trap. Oh really? Oh really? Yes. Oh really? Oh really? Yes. Hey, come on. Why the scoop? This boy's a clown face. out here again. Look at the. <laughs> He and Christopher out here with a pie and threw it in Miss Texas' face. Oh, that's ridiculous. That is just ridiculous. Ridiculous. Get out of here with that stuff. That's horrible, man. Boy, I really didn't die for the Mr. Boys. Oh, Jesus. Fredis just threw her down on the floor. No, he decked her. Oh, that's That is horrible. And, and look at Christopher and the clown over here. Just celebrating the whole thing. Here comes... Lawler, Jared, and that'll get rid of him, I hope. Finally, they get out of here. After Miss Texas being hit with a pie, humiliation there, but, uh, and then to have Prentice jump her like that. Yeah, I tell man, you what, that Prentice. And, and the clown. Yeah. That's getting to be a problem. I mean, you know, when you first see the clown, you know, he was out here laughing and all of that, and and then, I don't know, with the, the bananas. Banana and then the, yeah, then the pie. Now the Texas pie State. here. Well, I tell you, Jeff has got uh, got a match coming up. Here comes Mr. Clyde right here. Lawler is helping Miss Texas out. Mr. Clyde heads for the ring. Jeff Jarrett will be back. Referee All Kevin right. Christian steps up. <laughs> yeah, Bird, uh, Bird put, it, put it on Miss Texas there. <laughs> yes. Wow. Well, anyway, so Jeff Jarrett's going to wrestle Mr. Clyde next. And, uh, of course, Jared beats him, and then Brian Christopher shows back up. And, of course, Doink's with him. So let's go to this. Yeah, I'm reading the description of this. I'm already uh, intrigued. <laughs> they don't get together there. 
And here's uh, Jeff climbs under the ring. What? What is it? Uh, I... <laughs> oh, yes. All right, so Doink has grabbed some Wesson oil and has poured it on the, the studio floor. And there is a visible puddle of cooking oil on the floor now. Now, let me tell you something. I work around cooking oil, and I have been around cooking oil when it has spilt on the floor. It's one of the few things in the grocery business that you have to use cat litter to, to clean it up, to clean it up properly. Really? Uh, okay. Yes. You, 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 uh, cooking oil, syrup, laundry detergent, those are the three big ones that you, you have to put cat litter down, and then you have to wait. You have to wait 10 to 15 minutes. Let the cat, let the cat litter soak up the, the liquid, and then you get a broom and sweep it up, and then you mop over it with a mop. Because if you mopped it with straight water, oh, no. <laughs> you make it more slippery. Oh, it's a nightmare. Total yeah. nightmare, which we've had guys do that in the past. And, oh, so oil is very slick. So keep that in mind as uh, Doink has doused the floor with Wesson oil here. Brian dancing around saying, come on, come on, come on, come on. And there's the, there goes Doink the Clown. Well, he's leaving again, but yeah, he oh. left once before. Oh, yeah. Brian shoves him. That's going to get Jeff into the ring. He comes after him. And Brian Christopher now out of the ring. Here they go. He's running around the ring. Oh, my God. Goodness gracious! Hey, what is that? Oil? Like an oil slick there. That's what. Look at that look under the ring there. Yeah, oh, a boy, bottle of oil. That. that goofy clown when he was out here. We were watching uh, Brian and, and Jeff. Looks like that Valdez was over here spilling oil. Oh, they got it in a corner here. There's a the bottle of right there. Oh, that dog the clown poured all over the floor here in the studio, and Jeff slid right on that oil. Dog the clown, a big chop. And look at the clown work Jeff Jarrett over. Wow, Christopher holds him up. Here comes Lawler. Yeah, the king comes boy, in. And you know, they don't hang around long when it's two against two. No, they don't. It's two against one, and they're tough as they can be. Yes, it's an oil. It's oil. He poured oil all yeah. over the floor, King. That's exactly what happened out here. Oh, let's, uh, well, let's get the cleanup crew going again. We'll be back with more USWA action in a moment. So, so this, this is where Christopher got hurt. Christopher and this clown. All right. All right. Yes. You saw, you could see that happen. Yeah. Cause he went yeah. down in the, he probably went through the oil spill. He did. And that's where he hurt his knee that he ended up having to miss a couple shows for. Exactly. Yeah. So that's the danger you, you take in doing an angle like this, you know, an unintentional injury. Wrong guy got hurt. <laughs> yeah, the wrong guy got hurt. All right. So Lawler's had enough of this shit. So he comes out and... Uh, oh, there it is. Yep. Yep. He's not happy, as you can tell, of all the, the stuff that's been going on. So uh, Lawler's pissed, and it's time to uh, to let everybody know about it. So let's go to the king, finally. Who? The king! Christopher and this clown out here. We've got a lot more action coming up. Moondog still to go. The Harris brothers will be here a little bit later on, but uh, I want you to check out a town for us in a minute, too. Yeah. Here's the king. Let's get a comment or two from him as, uh, as he... We're less than a third of the way into the show, by the way. I know it's action-packed. <laughs> he heads this way, 
and then we'll uh, we'll continue with uh, with the action. King, be very careful. It's very slick over here. Yeah, you don't have to tell me. It's very slick, and it's going to get a little slicker around here because you see, there's a couple of jerks running around here today who think they're real slick. Well, I'm going to tell you some. I got more to say about them a little later, but I, right now I want to talk about probably what is behind all of this. I don't know how many of you people out here or how many people watching are familiar with where this doink the clown came from. Yeah, we know, right? He's from the WWF, the World Wrestling Federation. And he's been wreaking havoc up there for the past few weeks. And now I guess Brian Christopher gets a hold of him and asks him to come down here. Well, let me tell you something. I've just about had it up to here with the World Wrestling Federation. And there's a lot of people that's getting sick of them too. You see, I have for years been telling everybody that right here in the USWA, we had as good or better than any other wrestlers anywhere in the world, any organization, WCW, WWF, bar none. We're just as good, we're just as tough, we're just as mean as any of them right here in Memphis, Tennessee. Is that right? Well, I went up to the WWF to prove it, and I'll tell you something. The minute I walked in the doors up there, a lot of people said, no, you'll never see the king in the WWF. Well, I've been there. I want to tell you, I've been there. And from the minute I walked in the door, not one person considered me a friend. Not one person considered me a good guy. You, know, you, know, you want to know why? It's not just because I'm from the USWA. I'm going to get right down to the bare facts of the matter. It's because I'm from Memphis, Tennessee. It's because I'm from the South. And you just find when you go to New York City, when you go anywhere up north, those people walk around with their noses in the air and they think anybody from south of the Mason-Dixon line are the Beverly Hillbillies. They look at me and they say, hey, you've been wearing shoes very long, King. They look at me and say, what, you come in on, you ride your mule all the way up here to New York City? Well, let me tell you something. I'm proud to be from Tennessee and I wouldn't live... I wouldn't live in New York City if they gave me a penthouse in Trump Plaza. I can tell you that right now. And I'll tell you somebody else that's pretty sick and tired of all of those jerks up there in the WWF. And that's another guy that has been wrestling up there, but he's got his roots from right here in Memphis, Tennessee. And his name, as we know him, is Downtown Bruno. And I want to bring him out here for a minute because he's got a little problem. He's going to straighten out this week with the WWF. Come on out here, Bruno Mania. <laughs> there he is. And you're going to see why I say Bruno Mania in just a minute. Because there is a guy in the World Wrestling Federation that downtown Bruno has had some problems with over the past few weeks. Bruno, I'm going to tell everybody about your problems that you had up there in the World Wrestling Federation with the Fink. The Fink. The Fink, <laughs> that's right. There is a little scrawny, sawed-off ring announcer in the World Wrestling Federation by the name of Howard Finkel. Anybody ever heard of Howard Finkel? He's a little bald-headed ring announcer, thinks he's the greatest thing since sliced bread. The truth of the matter is, he's the biggest nothing since the invention of the zero. Is that right, Bruno? Exactly. <laughs> and let me tell you something. He goes around and calls himself a ring announcer, and he introduces all the wrestlers. But the truth of the matter is, I found out since I've been in the World Wrestling Federation that Howard Finkel is one of the head honchos up there in the WWF, isn't he? Exactly. He's one of the big wheels, and even though he's a little short, scrawny, sawed-off runt, he likes to throw his weight around and try to boss all the wrestlers around. When you want to know where you're going to wrestle next week, you got to call Howard Finkel. And what does he love to do? He's going to put you on hold because he's going to try to make you think he's a big, important big shot. 
Well, downtown Bruno, you had a little run-in with Howard Finkel, and you showed him what was what, didn't you? Exactly. I showed him one thing. I'm from the Memphis area. I live in Wiles, Mississippi. That's I'm right, very baby. proud of it. And some goofy Yankee like Howard Finkel going to try to make me look bad and feel bad up there? Well, I got news for him. He's not going to make me look bad in my hometown, not in Memphis, Tennessee. Because that's where... That's where Bruno Mania runs wild, isn't Bruno it? Bruno Mania's run wild in Memphis, Tennessee. <laughs> and I want Howard Finkel to come on down well, and get in the ring with me. We got a piece of tape to yeah, show you a little run-in. Everybody look at Howard Finkel look here. This, look at this dude. Ladies and gentlemen, my guests at this time are Dr. Harvey Whippleman, Kim Chi, and the Ugandan giant, Kamala. Let me tell you something, little man. I don't need some retarded-looking geek like you to conduct an interview with me. I want you to understand something, and I want you to listen real good. Time after time, I have told you that the doctor does not deal with geeks. But time and time again, you stand here with that smirk on your face and those big ears and that receding hairline that's almost non-existent. And you look at me in the eyes if you're my equal. Well, you're not my equal. You don't come anywhere near Dr. Harvey Whippleman. As a matter of fact, I wish you would take your bald head and just get on out of here and let me conduct this interview myself because you ain't worth it. What do you... So what people can't tell while listening is that I am guessing to... Even though clearly as shot... Uh, Whipple it's insane your show on this, by the way. Well, I was going to say, is the heel... Howard must have done something very overtly, even more overtly babyface that they had to cut that out there. It's insane. Yeah, it it's insane they're showing this. The, but my point I mean, is, what, what I was bringing up is there is a very obvious edit that would not be apparent just from listening. I, why even show this? Because Br Bruno's not working as Bruno. He's working as Harvey Whippleman. He's doing the heel stuff here. Obviously, in, you know, with Finkel. Who's the babyface this whole thing? I mean, you really think your audience is stupid. Why not just when show you, Howard's so, promo? And exactly, well, I, which is about the play. Yeah, why are you showing this? You know, it makes no sense. I I feel like I I'm not sure if I ever saw this before. Because I when I remember reading about it, and my I was under the impression that they had shot something specifically at a WWF taping to use for this, but obviously not. I don't think it ever aired. Outside yeah, this never of this, aired. You, mean. you never hear any commentary. Yeah. So, all right, let's keep it going. Small splash here. They lose him with the stretcher. What fucking assholes. That's J.J. Dillon, too. They dumped JJ him right on his head. Yeah. yeah. Finger slap. Slap. Slap there. It's going to risk it. 
really know what that first game is not working out too good for Bad job on purpose, by the way. He just knocked over the yes. padding on the gun. Ladies, okay. all right, all right. So, and also, this took place at a wrestling challenge taping. Yeah, Finkel didn't announce a wrestling challenge. Yeah, I, I wonder uh, was this really intended for anything, or was this just something to do to screw around with Finkel? At this, it was a Memphis, a yeah, Memphis angle, but that's a rib what they just did there. Yeah, obviously, because Bruce is trying. To, you can, if you watch Bruce, I mean, especially in this last moment, he's trying not to laugh. Yeah. All right, so now we get to the fake promo. Yes, which yeah, it goes straight into that. But I guess this was shot specifically for it, and just Vince didn't want to do anything that would flip the roles in front of a WWF crowd. Yeah, which is again, why even do, why even show this? I do it, yeah. Because they did have like a Lawler King's Court or two where Lawler was more of a baby face that they shot at WWF TV for Memphis, right? They did do that, I, I think. I don't know. Anyway. Well, the, and this was months earlier too, I think. Wasn't it months earlier? Because Kamala, well, Kamala and... Yeah, Kamala yeah. split from him too. Yeah. yeah, wait a second. If people are watching TV, then when do they... Okay. Yeah, Kamala's already a babyface. I mean, he's almost at the point where he's not even feuding with Harvey anymore, and he's feuding with uh, with Kim Chi. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, allow me to introduce myself. Some of you may know me, and some of you may not. My name is Howard Finkel. I'm also known as The Fink, and I am the premier ring announcer in the World Wrestling Federation, the very best in wrestling today. Okay. Since people can't see this, I have to say what he just did. He turns around towards the green screen and points at where one of the WWF logos is when he says that. Mm -hmm. Tremendous. As of late, I've been having a problem with a man I know as Whippleman, but apparently you people here in Memphis know as Downtown Bruno. My goodness, that has to be the stupidest name that I've ever heard. Who could walk around the streets of Memphis and call himself Downtown? Give the man a roadmap, he wouldn't know downtown from uptown. That's how dumb he is. I've had some problems over the past few months with him concerning things that he has put the blame on me for. Don't buy it for a second, folks. I'm the one that's in the right. I've been in the World Wrestling Federation doing ring announcing for a long, long time, and never have I ever faced a more stupider, idiotic, excuse for a human being like downtown oh, downtown bruno what a name well nevertheless it is going to all come to a head this monday night at the mid-south coliseum finally the opportunity is going to be there for your so-called hero to become even more of a hero when he steps into the ring and goes one-on-one -on -one with me and this is going to be something that I perhaps shouldn't be looking forward to if you want to believe downtown Bruno. I don't believe that idiot for a second. I know that I'm going to have to come down from the Big Apple and fly down to Memphis, Tennessee this Monday night at the Mid-South Coliseum and step into the ring with downtown Bruno. Give me a break. 
Let me tell you something, Dave Brown. Look here. First of all, Howard Finkel, I'm proud to be a redneck. But see, one thing, a redneck... Bruno's from Pittsburgh, by the way. Yes, uh, he is. God, and he used to say that every interview numerous times. But yes. he's he's adopted now. Yes, so. yes. It is a Walsh, Mississippi. Redneck is a man. You're not a redneck. You are white trash. And when I get you in that ring in Memphis, Tennessee, everybody from Memphis, everybody from the Mid-South area, everybody from Wiles, Mississippi is going to come down and see this redneck show you, Yankee white trash, what you are, a piece of garbage. And I got one more thing to say, Dave. You might think you're bad. You will be bad when downtown Bruno gets through with you. That means beaten, annihilated, and destroyed. And you know why? Because it's like Mama says. It feeds that way sometimes. Oh, yeah. Pythons, baby. I'll tell you what. I'm going to get a hold of you right here. I may not have pythons, but I got me a couple earthworms here. They're going to wring the life out of your Yankee neck, Daddy. Believe me, I'll be there. Just like somebody said, Howard Finkel, the last guy that came down here and talked like that was Andy Kaufman. And you know what happened to him. Is that right? <laughs> He's that way, maybe. That's Bruno. Bruno Mania running wild here. Speaking of running wild, USWA. You hear All that, right. Howard? You're going to get lung cancer and die. <laughs> well, Lawler got blamed for that because the pile driver gave Andy Kaufman cancer. Well, of course. So. <laughs> it, uh, imagine. Having someone who works for you as multi-talented as Howard Finkel, ring announcing, commentary, in-house historian, travel booking, calls every hotline every day and takes detailed notes and submits a report to you. First promo of his life as a heel. He's fantastic. And because he actually likes his fucking job, you make a habit to bully and try to to torture him every day. That's what they do. Yeah. All right, let's, let, me, let me read what Dave says, and then we'll talk about this. It, they aired the angle from some months back that never aired on WWE television, where Whippleman and Finkel were arguing, and Kamala Big Splash Finkel, who did a stretcher job, and they showed Finkel being carried out. This made all the sense in the world, since, one, anyone who watches WWF knows Kamala and Bruno split up. Two, Finkel was a total babyface in that angle. And then Fingal does a taped interview with doing Andy Kaufman. She's about he's from New York, and they're from Memphis. When the tape was over, Lawler said, last game you read like that, and Memphis Kaufman's no longer with us. But he didn't say that indirectly, but it's what he implied. But, yeah, so Dave calls it out, too, you know, about, you know, this This did not make any sense. What we talked about, John, quality control earlier? If nothing that here. None of that's here. I mean, this is not quality control in any way. It's kind of like we have something in a can we can just give you and run with it. Yeah. So, yeah, they could have done better with that. But the yeah, the fake promo was good, though. Yeah, and the only thing they did, yeah, was the the Fink promo, right? That was the only catered real thing that they did, and he 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 did a bang up job on it. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, Moondog Splat, who now teams with Spot, is definitely Mighty Goliath from Pittsburgh, who's something like six foot ten, three hundred eighty pounds. That would be uh, one Robert Bubba White. Who was managed by Downtown Bruno when Bruno first came to Memphis in yes. 1986. And also has his World Wrestling Federation connection because, as no one knew at the time, but as we learned when, I guess it was the first WWF encyclopedia came out, he was there long enough to be photographed as a new member of the Hillbilly family. And yeah, with Jim. Yeah, with Elmer Jim. and Jim. 
And then it, but it never made TV and no one knows what name he was using or what's going on here. But that also means that two of the moon, two of the moon dogs in this run were part of the hillbilly family in the WWF too. Yeah. Cousin, yeah. Cousin, well, cousin junior, Lanny King, me a moon dog. was Cujo, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So now we get the payoff for that, da- for doink being in the studio. Doink's raising havoc again, and, uh, well, it's time for the announcers to get involved, so to speak, so I'm not going to spoil it, so let's go to the clip. Yeah, you think it's better? Oh, let me tell you, I'm about to jack it off. I'll come over and give you the... Hey, come on. Hey, wait a minute. Look, sneak it up behind oh, us, yeah. Richard Lee. Hey. Clown. Doink the clown. Come on, Sam. Wait just quick. a minute. If there's nothing you can do... Hey. He can't hear Dave saying he's sneaking up behind you. <laughs> and Richard Lee and Mike Samples are arguing and Doink sneaking behind Richard Lee Corey has left his announced position to go to Richard Lee and warn him okay right. also someone needs to unplug Richard Lee's cap <laughs> he loved that pink cap in this time hey 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 we're not gonna All have right. this out here they Watch have it, Corey. that stuff and we're not going to have that. We'd have enough of that pie throwing and stuff. This is ridiculous, and we're not going to have it out here. Now, this, no, don't do it. Now, hey, none of that stuff. Don't do it. Don't. All right, Sam. What? What are you doing? He pie for Go. Go to break, please. Hey, uh, yeah, hang on just a second. We're still trying to clean up here. Let me plug in and see if we can figure out where we have got an incredible mess around here. The chairs are destroyed. Corey is going. He's okay. He's going to get cleaned up, and uh, and he'll be back in uh, in just a minute. Let's see where where are we right here? Got uh, okay. Let's let's check the uh, action coming up Monday night at the Mid South Coliseum. There's still 30 minutes plus left in the 40 minutes plus left in this. Uh, 30 minutes plus left in the show. It's about 35 <laughs> minutes in the non in the version with the commercials removed. So, yeah. So but it's this is the like, last clip. I know. Yeah, that's the funny part. Yeah, I don't think there's any more. I don't think I'm trying to remember. See if Corey comes back out because I don't remember him doing really doing anything. So just just flash forward here. All right, so we got the lead here. All right, it's Jerry and Jeff doing their promo for the Coliseum. Uh-oh. All right, all right, it's cool. Okay. Well, wait, all right. There's the re- right. Okay, there we go. Okay. All right. We got a match coming up with the Harris brothers. Want to get them in the ring here in just a moment. And uh, Corey? Yeah. Uh, sorry about all that. I did. Cleaned up uh, pretty well. The main thing, you're all right. And uh, with a little luck, that clown won't show up again. All right. Here comes Mike Samples and uh, the Harris brothers. Oh, Brian Kendrick's good friends. That's a good way to fall from <laughs> Batman man getting pie faces with the Harris twins. <laughs> Do they have the tattoos here? I feel like I see something, or maybe not. Yeah, there, there's something going on. But yeah, so, yeah. Half this Memphis Oh, there it is, is on his left arm. That was definitely... <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. half this show is just complete Memphis insanity. And the other half is, you know, just a normal television show. But, man... Is, okay, here's the thing, John. Was there too much doink on this show? Is, is, is there too much of something, a one act? Well, I mean, they were trying to draw off of them, right? So, I mean, that was yeah. the big thing. They're trying to get them over. You know, maybe they put too much front-loaded 
it's yeah, you, where do you it think they like should have spaced big. it out? Yeah, you think they should have spaced it out a little bit more during the well, show? Because he hasn't even wrestled yet. Yeah, <laughs> he wrestles on the show too. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's a lot of doink. And it's a fairly <laughs> long match too. <laughs> yeah, you might have went overboard on that. Maybe the Corey Macklin thing they didn't need to do or something. Because yeah, it's just a lot of doink. It looks like he's in at least the last third of the show. So yeah, should we play this? Yeah, let's let's, let's listen. Or at least play the doink half, I guess. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. Okay. All right. Okay, there we go. Tell him about a doink. <laughs> I came to Tennessee <laughs> thinking that everybody had a sense of humor down here, and I find the only people laughing is Brian and myself. <laughs> I, I thought all the hillbillies were funny. <laughs> I used to watch the hillbillies when I was a kid, and I used to laugh. <laughs> oh, I used to laugh. And oh, and oh, uh, Jerry Lord, no, let's call him Jed Clampett. And oh, oh, Jeff Jared, let's call, let's call him. Him, uh, Jeff, Jeff Rowe? No, Ellie no. Ellie May, Ellie May. You got the blood out? <laughs> <laughs> it does resemble Ellie May a lot. <laughs> it doesn't appear that they find things too funny. Just trying to have a good time. So in the Mid-South Coliseum this Monday night, boys, you don't know what lurks behind this face. You think I'm all fun and games? Well, I want you to know, I may be laughing on the outside. My smile is only skin deep. If you could see inside, I'm crying. And you might join me for a weep. <laughs> Monday night in the Mid-South Coliseum. You're not messing with the little boys you've been in here wrestling with. You're wrestling me. And the brains of the Mid-South right here. Oh, Brian, my buddy. So you come prepared, and you will by the end of the night. And I want you to laugh real loud, if you can. <laughs> you know, Doik, I have got to apologize to you, because I know you came down here to Memphis, Tennessee. You came from the Big Apple. You came from New York City, Ooh, yeah. where everybody running around there has a little bit of brains, at least. But see, I have to apologize, because when you came down here, I know you had to look over here and see all these lame brains. All these people that did not go to school. I see you it. know, I, see I am ashamed. I am ashamed to be from the south, you understand me? You can move up with me anytime. <laughs> I am so ashamed. So, Doik, after this week, after we dispose of Jerry Lawler and Jeff Jarrett, please, please let me come on up there to New York City where I can be around some people that have some brains. Yeah, well, I tell you, as far as we're concerned, you can leave today. We'll be back in just a moment. <laughs> Dwight was putting double horns behind Dave's head at one point in that. So, and, and by the way, just for context, uh, Brian Christopher, he had just turned 21 years old a couple weeks earlier. Yes. Wow. 
he's that awesome. And yes. So, yeah, and how Grace born there, you know, turning it on and off with his face and then his voice inflection. Oh, yeah, know. he was totally into it. Oh. God, he was awesome. I, I do and find that, it funny, though, that we hear his natural voice here a lot more than we do when he's Matt Bourne. Yes. <laughs> because when he's Matt Bourne, he's doing Piper so much of the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just awesome. They probably couldn't have used a different format on that, like like you brought up with the too much doink. Maybe not have a match, spread out the angles, or make the match shorter. Something to where you don't feel like you've already seen all you need to see. Yeah, I wouldn't have had him wrestle on TV. Yeah, spread I the mean, angles out. No match, you know. Yeah, I would. I wouldn't have had him wrestle on TV and attack. No, absolutely not. I, I get why they did it, but I wouldn't have done it. Made it make it where the fans got to pay to see him wrestle. Yeah. Well, speaking of February eighth at Missile Coliseum with Doink and Howard Finkel, they drew eleven hundred fans, which is roughly what they've been drawing without outside help. So didn't do much much more business. Finkel's match with Downtown Bruno saw Finkel work wearing his ring announcer tuxedo, end up with Jerry Lawler pulling off his pants. The results. Master of Terror number one over Chris Michaels. Rock and Roll Phantom over Danny Davis. Boxing match, Burt Prentice over Miss Texas. Downtown Bruno and Harold Finkel went to no contest. Mike Samples and the Bruise Brothers over the Moon Dogs and Richard Lee. And then our main event, Jerry Lawler and Jeff Jarrett over Doink the Clown and Jeff Gaylord, subbing for the injured Brian Christopher. And actually, since we were talking about Moondog Splat earlier, he is not in this match, at least per the results. It says it's spot and spike. Yeah. And 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 how about Brian? You talk about him injuring his knee in that oil spot. He came back and wrestled in that match on TV. Yep. He must have had the opinion of, you know, I'll, I'll power through it and it wouldn't get worse, maybe. And then, you know, you know, yeah. where sometimes that next day is when you get it. It's possible. Yeah. He may have not been feeling it. Oh, and uh the Rock and Roll Phantom is Don Bass, by the way, Pig. So there's that. That's right. Uh, new tag team coming in. It's called PG-13. One of whom is named Jamie Dundee. So there you go. As PG-13 is on their way to Memphis to uh, change up the tag team division. All right. Austin Idol. Yeah, Austin Idol's office in Alabama is scheduled to start running six shows per week on March the 5th, which seems like an awfully ambitious undertaking this soon into the game. The idea is to run towns weekly with Birmingham every Monday, Mobile every Tuesday, Montgomery every Thursday, Spot Show every Friday, Dothan every Saturday, with an afternoon television taping and a house show that evening. Thus far, they've been running tapings every Saturday afternoon. Top programs seem to be Scott Armstrong, who's working as Smokey as Dixie Dynamite, against Joseph Bagliato, Joy Mags and WCW for the junior title, Simply Divine, Ritz King and Steve Dahl as a heel tag team, feuding with the Young Bucks. Hey. Not Matt Nick Jackson, Steve Armstrong and Wendell Cooley. Well, that's a mistake. I've seen the TV. They're the Bama Bucks. Bama Bucks, you're right. So, yeah. Uh, the Bullet, you know, Mr. Tennessee, Larry Santo, who was sent in by Jim Cornette, and Junkyard Dog and Austin Idol against Iron Sheik and Boris Zukov. I don't think <laughs> Sheiky Baby shows up, or does he? I don't think I he think does because they have the. I just remembered. Yeah, they, they do the Iranian clubs with JYD. I think. Yeah, he's there. He comes or maybe in. it's Idol, but no, it's Zukov injures JYD. I believe. 
So you look at the schedule. I mean, basically, this is the old southeastern schedule that they're running. The Alabama side, yes. Yes. And um, I really have not seen this. I, oh, you I saw it? I saw it when it aired once or twice and originally, but I haven't seen it since. Did it show up in Atlanta? Or did it? Yeah, it aired. It aired. It aired on the Pettis, you know, for, block on Channel Fourteen. And it was. Uh, it was. He called it USA Championship Wrestling, right? Yeah. So, yeah. So I read how about. They, yeah. How long did they last? Because I, Not, you know, I never saw any of this. About three, four, five months. No, okay. le- based on what TV is available, I think it's less. I think it's like nine weeks. The TV. Yeah, but, but yeah, nine weeks is you know two two and a half months or so. So yeah, it didn't last very very long. No. But it's fun yeah, TV. Yeah, it sounded great from what you know from what I read about it. I mean, I remember seeing it, but I don't remember remember it. I just remember being on. But yeah, it sounded fun. You know, try to things. Yeah, revive that territory again, but they just couldn't do it. Well, you know? also it's Austin Idol and his promotional endeavors. Uh, yeah, the way of not going well. There's that too. Big time wrestling. Bobby Fulton running in Wintersville, Ohio, the high school, February 6th. We have Ivan Koloff over Bobby Fulton in your opening match. Kyle Bung and the Ninja Turtle, which is Mark Curtis, Brian Hildebrand over Bad Street. Don't think that's Brad Armstrong. He's in Japan. Junkyard Dog over the Grim Reaper. Big time tag titles. Bobby Fulton and T.C. Carter over Ivan Koloff and the Wild One, number one. And then a seven-man blindfold Russell Royal, which is won by Bobby Fulton, <laughs> who eliminates Ivan Koloff to win the match. So there you go. Hmm. Oh, so meanwhile, I was curious. I didn't check the other sites yet, but I, I was trying to see if I could find anything about Idol's promotion on the newspaper sites or anything. The only hit from 1993 on newspapers.com for Austin Idol is not till July from the Pensacola News Journal when there's some story asking local kids about role models and who, what celebrities they think are role models or athletes or, oh no, it's not just, it's anyone because one of them names a teacher. And uh, Zach Walker, five years old, answers, Austin Idol because he's a good wrestler. And see, I, I go to, I'm, I'm just with the Genealogy Bank, which has all the Mobile stuff, and there's nothing for Austin Idol in 1993. So there you go. Hmm. Anything so, for USA Championship was... Wrestling, or just or did you well, try Idol? I mean, I mean you would tried. think it would his name would be there too. Yes. Yeah, but yeah, there's nothing there. So obviously the newspapers weren't covering them, which it's the 90s that that happened. Right, and also right, and um. There's an angle they shoot on these TVs, and based at least on the stuff I had, and I've never seen any further episodes, so I don't know if there were more, um, they appeared to be teasing an angle with Terry Funk coming in to feud with Idol. Because he starts getting these threatening letters from TF Collections, or whatever it was called. Yeah. Which is, that's one of the more notable things happening there, but it's, yeah, fun promotion. But anyway, back to where we were now. All right, let's go to Global. We're going to the Metroplex popper because there's a lot of stuff going on in the Metroplex during our week. Oh, should I pull up the Shenanamaki post then, too? <laughs> oh, no. Nah. All right, so Global's negotiating with Channel 39 in Dallas, so we'll at least have local television. The February 5th Dallas Sportatorium show saw Rod Price defend North American title against Mike Davis. 
Sebastian started beating on Brandon Baxter, and Davis ran him off. As Davis was chasing him away, Price went to Baxter. Price got off the top rope, but Davis covered Baxter to protect him. Price started beating up the referee and put the referee on top of Davis, and Baxter counted him his own pin on all three. It was suspended, which gets him on toward Japan. Kerry Von Erich no showed his main event match against Angel of Death. So Bobby Duckham Jr. subbed in, and Angel clawed him to win. February the 12th, Kerry and Chris Adams are scheduled to team up against Black Bart and Angel of Death. And Booker T against Killer Tim Brooks in a death match. Apparently, the death match will lead to a February 19th toe jam match in which the winner must, the loser must kiss the winner's foot. Yeah. Toe jam match. That's a gr- that's a just horrible title yeah. for that. Yeah. That's- All right. Let's read the results of this TV taping here. Mike Davis and Calvin Knapp. You mean hard body Calvin Knapp, well known for his, his ass. Yeah. <laughs> over Bad Breed, Axel and Ian Rotten. King Kong over John Hawk. That John would be, Bradshaw. Uh, and Pressure Kong would be King Kong, yes. Yes. North American title. Stevie Ray beat Rob Price to win the title. And then he beat John Tatum by disqualification to retain said title. Yes. Also, and wait, my... I just realized it, it, King Kong, Crusher Kong is the one also who was Terminator Haas, right? I think so. Then Mike Davis over Rob Price by DQ. Booker T over Killer Brooks by DQ. <laughs> the Colossal Kongs. Went to a double DQ with John Hogg and Bobby Duncan Jr. Chris Adams over Black Barton to take this match. And then Angel of Death over Bobby Duncan Jr. in your main event. Well, I can tell John didn't book the show. <laughs> Lots of DQs. <laughs> yeah. And Carrie, uh, of course, dies two two weeks later. February 18th. Yeah. February 18th. So. And, uh, for, I mean, people who want to hear us talk about that, we did do a show uh, last year. Yeah, we did that week last year. But, uh, yeesh, global on uh, some horror times here, John. Yeah, it's how much longer do they keep going? Uh, they, the 94 is one. Yeah. You know, and, and the talent was, you know, you had the, some pieces there that were going to go on to do some, do some things. But I don't know. This is the towards the end. I mean, territories are kind of starting to really wrap. You know, you're not seeing this kind of stuff anymore. TV was getting harder to get to. It's just uh, unfortunate. Yeah, and Global Global was like, I mean, the newsletter fan promotion, you know, in, in 1991, you know? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was the darling of, of the newsletter fans because of all the, you know, connections to, to that game. And then you just watch it as it goes along. And once Pedicino leaves and then Eddie leaves and. You know, the talent leads like Waltman, Jerry Lynn, so forth, so on. It's just, it gets to where we're getting now with this. Man, just not good. Oh, it's a spiral. No. Yep. And meanwhile, on ESPN, the occasional weekdays they're on, it's usually just the same show with a Doyle King intro showing Patriot matches from 1991. Pretty much. Yeah, I remember stumbling onto things like that in that window. Yeah. Like there's an issue of the Shenanamaki post around this time where they joke about like, is it like setting up a wrestling network? I don't know. But there's some bit where each time they go back to checking in on Global Wrestling Federation on ESPN, it's always, hi, this is Doyle King. And you're with with the Global Wrestling Federation. This week, we're going to check out some matches with the Patriot. (laughs) Well, that's what I mean. They're repeating a lot of shit. So they weren't doing nothing else. 
So I had to repeat. All right, let's go to the TWA. They're at Fort Worth on the second for the 90 fans. We have Johnny Angel over Animal. Jimmy James over Chuck West. John Hawk over Ray Evans. Colossal Collins over Iceman, King Parson, and Action Jackson. And Chris Adams going to a double count over Rob Price. The Scoot the Mesquite for MCW on February 3rd. We had Mad Madeline over Dynamite D. Die. Yeah. Hardbody Calvin Knapp over the Pug Alex Porto. Ass. And Bobby Douglas Jr. and John Hawk going to WDQ with Bad Breed. Oh, I'm sure that was violent. And then double count out in the main event where the Colossal Collins went to double count with the new Blackbirds, Action Jackson, Ice Man, Parsons. We're not done. Chris Adams promoted a world-class show on February 6th in Paris, Texas, where they drew 900 pay, which is the largest paid crowd for a non-WFWCW show in the area in a long time. Well, Kevin worked the show. Kevin Von Erich. Team with Chris Adams beating Iceman Action Jackson. And Von Erich juiced the bucket. Next show is on March 6th in Ezel, Texas. We have a one-night tournament for the world-class tag titles featuring Duncan and John Hawk, Bad Breed, the Klaus Collins, and Adams and Kevin. All right, we don't have the results to show. We do have a lineup. Alex Storm against Hans Christian Germany. It's Chris Germany. Germany. <laughs> yeah. The Arabian Sultan against Samson. Bubba Fangman and Tasha Simone. Uh, uh, going against Ed Robinson and Little Animal. Skandar at bar against Steve Simpson. And, of course, Blackbirds against Kevin and Chris. And to close out our Metroplex, and then we'll talk about all the Metroplex, Big D. Big fan of Big D. Uh, we're going to Rocket Fiesta Palace on February 7th for 108 fans, where we have the Colossal Kongs over Dino Hernandez <laughs> and Pat Kialoa. And what are they going for there? <laughs> yeah. Chris Adams over Jimmy James. Bobby Duncan Jr. over Bill Wobbler on by Countout. John Tatum over John Hawk. And now I quit Steel Cage match. Yes. All right. So we have I quit Steel Cage match, which ends in a no contest <laughs> between the Black the Blackbirds and Bad Breed. And they wonder why they got a hundred people. Um, one thing to one thing about this, you know, that you notice, and this is missing today. You know, we don't have you know without territories and things. Is that how many shows there was John Hawk working? Oh well, look at all these talents. Yeah. I mean, the Blackbirds, uh, Duncan Jr., John Hawk, um, Bad, Bad Breed, Rob Price. Rob Price. I mean, all Duncan. the same guys are working everywhere. Yeah. Right. Yes, there's no more heat between everyone. Really, the only exception is Adams filling out most of his undercard with his students. Yeah, but that's the thing. I mean, that's the question, John, is is you put yourself when you're one of these you know, indie promotions, but you're using all the same guys everybody else is using. You're not differentiating yourself from anybody. Well, right. except for Adams, and he's the one that drew. Yes, there you go. Yeah, that's true. You know, and, and then, you know, it, it all looks the same. Then they're all running TQs or just junk finishes. And it's it's just a bad mess. You know, it looks like it's the same thing over and over again. Like you said, and who's going to keep coming to shows like that? You can't run like that all the time. No, no. I mean, and why are we doing all these DQ finishes on these, on these shows, for God's sake? Who are these guys? Yeah, are we protecting people from, you know, with 100 people in a building, you're going to protect people? Yeah, I mean, what good is that? You're protecting yourself from drawing. That's what you're doing. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. But it, it is good for the wrestlers, though, that they have all this work. Yes. There That's is the that. Best thing. 
Yes, there is that. You're absolutely right. Now, were any of these besides Big D and Global running weekly, though? Or did we just happen to get I to a busy it. week, you think? We, uh, yeah, it's possible that we just hit the right week for, for all of you. But these these groups are running shows. I mean, but I don't think they're weekly. So, anyway. All right, let's go to the Pacific Northwest and Championship Wrestling USA, Portland on February 6th. We have Mike Winter over Buddy Wayne, father of Nick. Dane Rush over John Rambo by disqualification. Billy Two Eagles and Max Steele defeated Jesse Barr and Lou Andrews. Chancellor Wrestling USA TV title. Bart Gunn, Bart Gunn, Bart Sawyer and Colonel DeBeers went to no contest. So there's DeBeers retaining his title. And then a penalty box match. C.W. Bersham and Larry Oliver over the Samoan Demon and the Polynesian Prince. I'm assuming one of those two guys is Sumito, and maybe the other is... Well, no, they wouldn't rename Coco Samoa, so I don't know. No, no, who knows. We have Sandy Bar's promotion, not not doing so great here with names. No, as a wrestling promotion, it's a heck of a flea market, though. (laughs) Exactly. All right, then we got a couple of other notes here. Terry Fox's part in the upcoming Sylvester Stallone movie Cliffhanger was cut at the last minute. That sucks. An update on Andre the Giant. Andre's body was flown to the United States from France this past week because they couldn't find a crematory that could handle a body so large. On Monday, his body was in Atlanta and was going to be transported to Ellery, North Carolina and was expected to be cremated as per his wishes on February 9th. There'll be a memorial service held for Andre on February 24th at his Tour Acre Ranch on Highway 73 in Ellerby, North Carolina. Andre, you know, he he was the first high-profile wrestling death that was covered by all the wrestling promotions on television. Because nobody really had done that before like that with him. You know, WCW talked about it, WF talked about it. Memphis, I just watched the TV the other day from the, you know, the, from I think it was January 31st or something like that. It was the week before our week. That he that Dave Brown at the end of the show said we oh, we just got an update from from France that Andre the Giant had passed away. Hmm. So so I mean even they acknowledged it. So that shows you how big of a personality Andre was in wrestling. Is that you know, they never did this for people that died like him before, and he's acknowledged by all all the you know top wrestling promotions basically on television. That says a lot, yeah. Absolutely. Oh, yep, and. I actually have something I can add to this. So I had never brought this up before because I didn't have a good place to use it. Um, this is something I got from Phil Mushnick when I was going through his his stuff for research a couple of years ago. And well, it's more than a couple of years ago now, I guess, but still. Um, and it's a letter. I won't say who because... They asked him not to use the name if he used any of it, but he had otherwise told me that I'm free to use anything I found that I want. Um, this is from two years later, February 16, 1995. This is a former WWF office person uh, writing a letter to him stemming from what he wrote about the death of Jerry Blackwell. And you'll see how this becomes relevant. Your column in yesterday's edition... Well, let me start from the top. Dear Mr. Mushnick, your column in yesterday's edition concerning Jerry Blackwell was very provocative. Pursuant to your rhetorical challenge, try topping this one, I should like to offer the following. Not long after Andre the Giant's death, a WWF truck was dispatched to fetch his casket. Whether in fact it was truly Andre's casket is a secret shared 
only by the mortician and God or Vince McMahon. The temporary repository was to be 1241 East Main Street, Stamford, before being shipped to its final destination, a yet-to-be-built WWF Hall of Fame somewhere in Orlando, Florida, where presumably hmm. families seeking entertainment at other attractions would be induced to pay admission to admire, among other items, Andre Rusimov's last wrestling place. Unfortunately, the room that was being used to house memorabilia for the Hall of Fame was very small and certainly not capable of accommodating a casket, let alone a very large one. In addition, the casket would not fit into the elevator, so it was consigned to the concrete room at the end of parking level C, which had been used for smoking. The smokers were displaced and shunned, excuse me, the smokers were displaced and shunned all suggestions to lift the lid and examine the contents. In the meantime, interest in the Hall of Fame waned, seemingly in direct proportion to the heat being generated by the Justice Department. Mm. Yeah, about that, huh? Yeah. Yeah, so they were already thinking of a Hall of Fame years earlier. Not just a Hall of Fame, but in in Orlando. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. And we'll have more from Phil Mushnick later in the show. And now let's close out with the World Wrestling Federation. From almost all accounts, Hulk Hogan will be returning to the ring after one year absence at WrestleMania, teaming with Brutus Beefcake against Ted DiBiase and IRS. Jimmy Hart, whose babyface turn will air on February 15th, will manage Hogan and Beefcake. Where we get is that Hart, who specializes in PR work well beyond the call of duty, has won the switch to babyface so he can fit into the PR end of the things better. Traditionally, the role of babyface manager has been the kiss of death long term. Since Hogan and Beefcake are obviously going over, since Hogan isn't coming back to lose, sure. then this match will be non-title or DBIC and IRS will lose the titles for WrestleMania. Hogan's expecting to make a few TV appearances before the show, starting perhaps as early as February 22nd Monday Night Raw, or the TV tape as the previous week in California. Most believe now that whatever negotiations Hogan was doing with Turner Broadcasting was just leverage to strike a better deal with Tight. Part of the reason for Hogan's return could be to re-solidify his wrestling following before the release of his movie, Mr. Nanny, in June. Because if that movie doesn't do business, and its release being held for six months wasn't a good sign of the studio's confidence in it, it will dim whatever star Hogan may have in Hollywood. It's also never good when you do a lot of promotion for a movie, and then you change the name before delaying its release as well. <laughs> yeah, because not good. I... I mean, you remember, I'm sure both of you do, like, there was a lot of publicity for Hulk Hogan in a tutu, you know, like, we're on the set of his new movie, blah, blah, blah. And all of that promotion was for it being called Rough Stuff. I remember. I tried to forget. (laughs) But have you ever seen the actual movie, either of you? No. No, I didn't. The only the only movie of Hulk Hogan's I've ever watched was No Holds Bar. Okay. Yep. You have not but seen he was Three a star Ninjas, uh, High Noon at Mega Mountain, or Santa with uh, Muscles, oh. or... Uh... No, no, no. What about no, one of the ones pass. that aired on TNT, though, like Assault on Devil's Island? No, no. Pass. No. I did watch... <laughs> what, what, what was the Leslie Nielsen movie he did a, co- a cameo in? Oh, uh... Fly Hard. Hard. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, him and Dr. Joyce Brothers. Yeah, I, I, I saw him in that, but it's 30 second cameo. But yeah, I mean, no, I, no, no. John, 
if this is Hulk Hogan coming back, do you think it was like this was the proper use of bringing back Hulk Hogan to work a tag match at WrestleMania, or should he been in a high profile singles match? I never would have brought him back. <laughs> honest. Yeah, I mean I'm, that's that the, honest. Yeah, they they had divorced themselves from Hogan. They had you know basically washed themselves of him. I mean, there's no Hulk Hogan. You know, mentions or anything, and you still see him in like the show opens. Yeah, but you, but you don't, you know, he's not mentioned. He's out of sight, out of mind, and it seems like that they, you know, built, you know, building Brett up and getting him going. They're building us some new guys, and here comes Hogan, and of course he's going with the title. Yeah, and, and, and that's the problem right there. Is is that if you think about it from a direction of your product. Okay, you're starting to move in a new direction and you're starting to, you know, even if it even if it's not necessarily a full um, heading heavy work rate direction or anything like that. But, you know, Bret Hart, definitely a different type of guy than Hogan. You know, you had Flair at least for a little while longer. He was on his way out. But you, you had Michaels on a rise. Um, you had Hennig, you had all these guys and you're yeah, heading and in a perfect, new direction. Perfect, perfect as a baby face, you know, you know, doing that. He's behind Brett basically his number two baby face. Yeah. So you're heading in the right direction if you're going to move away from him. And then you're it's like you're bringing it back into the house. And like you said, giving him the title, you're setting yourself back. All the work you had done to get where you were to that point, you're throwing it away. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, it just didn't make sense. I mean, it's like why uh, uh, we, we you know, we, we talk about here why Jimmy Hart is wanting to turn baby face. But I mean, it just it there was no build up to that, you know. It's just Jimmy Hart, you know, didn't want Beefcake you know, getting injured or whatever. And then you know, did they do the big promo to explain stuff? And it's like, oh, he's been wanting to you know be a Hulkamaniac for a while and all this other stuff. And it just it did yeah. it, it, it 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 was like it was like when you try to do something as a you know a nostalgia deal and it's out of place, right. You know, if you if you're going to do it, you do it only in the tag concept or only in a situation where it's like, OK, if you're coming back, I'm keeping you away from the title. Should have never had to put the title. Absolutely. Tag, the tag thing is fine. The tag thing is fine. But he I mean, he should have been there to put somebody over. That's what in the long run, which he, yes. I mean, he does the job for Yokozuna. But we all you know what happened there with the, the camera and all that shit. But, oh, yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It, it was not a good move. No, not at all. And, and if you read that, what you just read through too, you almost see the signs, you know, because he's he's going to be gone after King of the Ring, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this was all about whatever Hogan wanted. The, the promote his movie. Yeah, it was all about Hogan, and then he give into that, and that's like rule number one. You don't do that unless you have no other choice. You don't just do everything that somebody else is telling you. You have to take care of your your whole promotion and where you're going. That's number one, not what might work for Hogan or maybe help you with a, one WrestleMania or something, then it's like, okay, sure. Yeah. Do your tag team thing. But we've been heading in this new direction and I'm not going to like handicap people or cripple them on, on the direction we're going to try to build the future. And and the thing is, is that, I mean, we have Dave talk about Hogan negotiating with Turner broadcasting Bix. This wasn't for a wrestling thing. Or was it for some, another TV thing? I think so. That sounds right. Yeah, I don't think it was for wrestling. Because you never hear about Hogan negotiating with WCW. It's no. about Turner Broadcasting. So, 
that could have been part of it too. Like, like Dave's saying here, John, is that they said, so, "Oh, Hogan's talking to to Turner." Uh oh, you know. Yeah, Vince is reactionary to those kind of things, and I mean, you know, he was still worried, and he was right, right to be worried because look what happened when Hogan did go. Um, but I, I don't think that you hurt your future. You you have to protect your future and stick towards your direction. If you're, Absolutely. you know, it's just yeah. that simple. Yeah. All right, so let's go to the big controversy. KTTV, Channel 13 Los Angeles, and their Chicago affiliate that aired Superstars refused to air the Yokozuna-Jim Duggan match on February the 6th because of heavy protests from the Association of Asia-Pacific American Artists, the AAPAA, Japanese American Citizens League, and the Media Action Network for Asian Americans. A KTTV spokesman said the station refused to air the match because... Quote, we're not in the business of perpetuating stereotypes, unquote. How self-righteous. Because if that were the case, how could they even run WF in the first place? So stereotypical characters are what the company's always been built around, Dave said. Mm-hmm. He's got there. Uh, when contacted, Steve Planamena of Titan Sports claimed to have not seen the Duncan Yokozuna match, but said that it wasn't the company's intention to offend anyone. Wendy Fujihara Anderson the AAPAA saw a tape of the match and said the scenes and commentary promoted very negative images of Asians and promoted Japan bashing. They made it to an East-West type of thing, Anderson said in an article in the Japanese newspaper in Los Angeles. She complained about the comments about Fuji and Yokozuna being sneaky and underhanded. It just perpetuates the hate. The general American population is being educated wrong on who we are. Planet Menace said Yokozuna had been very well received by fans because he was brought in and defended his company, saying that WF has another Japanese wrestler, Tenru. He's a good guy. Ugh. KTTV said the future manager Yokozuna will be monitored and decisions made as to whether to air them will be made on a case-by-case basis. When the show aired Saturday, it was interrupted by Lord Alfred Hayes who said because of the graphic nature of the match, as opposed to the real reason, it couldn't air, and they put the Flair hitting Lose Town match in its place. Uh-huh. Doug and Juice out in that match. It was heavily pushing is the U.S. versus Japan, and they're pushing that theme for the WrestleMania event with Bret Hart, which is ironic because Yokozuna and Fuji are more American than Bret Hart. No, well, they're all three of them are American, but they're more. They're, American. They are more. They were. They are, They were born in America. He was not. That's, that's what. Yeah, that's what Dave's getting at, Bex. They were they were more American. They were born in America. Yeah. But... Um, before we get to the clip or the discussion, though, I found something to add to this. Uh, oh. Checked on ProQuest. We have an article. It's from a few weeks later in Asian Week, based out of San Francisco, but it's talking about all this and nothing that goes further. So from the February 26th issue of Asian Week, I'm not going to read the whole thing, But we have some direct quotes from one Steve Planamenta. We're certainly not trying to offend anybody, said Steve Planamenta, a spokesman for Titan Television Connecticut, which produces WWF broadcasts. Los Angeles was the only city in the nation to have pulled the broadcast, said Planamenta, due to what they believe was an effort on KTTV's part to be more, quote, sensitive to elements of their audience. We certainly respect what KTTV did, end quote. Los Angeles Station, a subsidiary of Fox Television, plans on monitoring further matches involving Yokozuna on a case-by-case basis. Uh, ironically, another TV station in Chicago preempted the match and had a complaint of a different nature. According to Planamenta, 
Station officials took umbrage at the fact that Hacksaw was bleeding from his mouth after suffering Yokozuna's staged attack. Planamenta understood the Japanese-American community leaders were mostly offended by the nature of Yokozuna's attack. Quote, There's a hypersensitivity to that word, sneaky, but other characters in the circuit are sneaky too, he said. The amount of sneakiness a character employs often determines if he is champion as a villain or a hero. I'm going to stop real quick. Um, was there anyone that was routinely referred to as sneaky or devious, though, other than Fuji and his guys? In WF? Yeah. Um, I don't think so, John. Yeah I, don't, yeah, I don't think so. I think a lot of it was centered around whatever Fuji was doing. Yeah. Devious one. Yes. And then it ends with, Yokozuna, who was actually born in Polynesia and announced as a native of the Pacific Islands during matches, I guess they mean was there for when he's Kikina, uh, is nevertheless accepted as a Japanese wrestler. Another Japanese wrestler, Tenru Ganishiro, also works as the circuit as a heroic figure. Tenru is from Japan. Tenru, who is only working European TV exclusive squashes at this time. Yes, exactly. And Rumble. Well, and the yeah, Rumble. Rumble. <laughs> but they make it sound like he's out there as a good role model for everybody to see. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Technically, I think uh, the matches that are out there are Swedish TV exclusives, if I remember right. Well, let's uh, go to the clip. Yeah. And let's, let's watch this. Yes. And after this, we'll also talk about how it became even more controversial the next week, if I remember right. right? Stop it, right? Ooh. No, so you watch the whole six minutes here? Okay, and we should also set the table real quick because this doesn't have intros or anything. Um, this is not a standard rules pro wrestling match. It's first person to knock the opponent off his Not down winning. challenge. Yeah. Not down challenge is what it's called. Yeah. Are you ready? It's the United States versus Japan! Japan! That's why we got to watch the whole thing, Bix. Yes. <laughs> oh, and it gets, it gets worse. Yeah. The crowd is reacting, but boy, are they overdoing the uh, canteed here. Oh, they would never do such a thing. Come on. (laughs) God, I need enough seagulls to feel like I'm in the beach. Jim Duggan. This is Yokozuna's revenge right here. 
Campbell and what's happened to Duggan. It was a glorious victory for Hacksaw Jim Duggan and for his country. Whoa, wait a minute. Yokozuna has he sets that three that suplex by Yokozuna. The victory of Duggan. His victory desecrated. The very flag desecrated. Look, look at this. Look what Yokozuna is doing to Hacksaw Jim Duggan now. This is reminiscent of 1941. It's exactly reminiscent of all over again. Hacksaw Jim Duggan is the victor. You can't take that away from him. But that's exactly what Yokozuna and Fuji are trying to do. What a great competitor. Hacksaw Jim Duggan gave it everything he had for himself, for his family, and for his country. appears to be a crowd shot of a woman spitting at someone from a different show. <laughs> yeah. Am I off base that that looked like it was with the lighting and everything like that was not from this? It's possible. Let me see. They can't rule it out. Yeah. Okay, I'm curious. Victory and the desecration of the red, white, and blue. And Fuji has the audacity to lead this exactly. You bet. Yeah, the lighting doesn't match if she's spitting on him. It's possible. I don't know. Anyway. This mammoth individual. Mammoth individual. Back to the dressing room, waving the, the Japanese 
He's flagged before all. In fact, back to Duggan. I like how he doesn't know the term rising sun. His ribs could be crushed. His ribs have got to be broken. Ribs have got to be broken. Oh, no. There appears to be some internal bleeding. Who knows what kind of the extent of the injuries of, of, of Jim Duggan. And how can you go from, from triumph to, to this? The hush has fallen over this capacity crowd. I can't believe, no one can believe what we've seen. Is that Phil Apollo as the doctor? Doctor <laughs> Playboy Vince Apollo. Where was this tape? How about, how about Vince's voice here? That is a different inflection of Vince's voice. That he's Dude. not doing yeah. his '93 Vince voice. No, he's not even talking like. No, he's not even talking like Vince. He brought it down a notch. He brought it way. I mean, yeah. I mean, he he's he. It's his voice that he would use normally, but he doesn't use normally because he's he's always Vince. You gotta wonder if they uh, cut it and because maybe they said some other stuff. This was taped to San Antonio okay. on January the fifth, a month before it aired. There you go. So probably not uh, Phil Apollo. And that's pro- and that's probably hey, and that's probably how these ple- people saw the match because it was probably some people got a hold of tape or something. It may have hit the satellite. <sighs> Okay, well, you okay, know? I want to get to this. I guess we don't need to play the very end of this, but it ends with a shot of the flag on the crumpled yeah, up. Yes. Yeah. But, okay. I was wondering that, though, because, like, the show goes up on the satellite Wednesday or Thursday. And it already been taken a month ahead of time. But, so what, when do, do the stations, especially the L.A. one, reach out to Titan because the LA one needed a recut show. Like, did they rush this? Possible. Now, on top of everything else, and I guess we covered this in the show from the follow- that we did for the following week, I think, they did not learn their lesson because this gets even more controversial the following week as they play segments that are su- as part of, like, recaps there are supposed to be news broadcasts from Japan where the country of Japan as a whole, the nation and its people, are celebrating the great triumph of the mighty Yokozuna over that dirty American hacksaw Jim Duggan. Yeah. Just all kinds of wrong in the angle. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's when, when, when you do this type of thing, even in this era, in, even in the 90s before, you know, we... Are where we are now as far as tolerance and consideration of other people's feelings, but even this is over the edge, you know. For well, Japan bashing has completely gone out of style by then. Yeah, it it was unnecessary too. If if you look at it, if you remove, you know, the stereotypical uh, stereotypical pieces and and just some of the flag stuff and if you remove that and just use the angle itself of yes. Yokozuna squashing him four times with this and him doing a structure job with the blood, it still works as an angle. You didn't have to take it to this other level. But yeah, they exactly. Did. Well, especially too, since you know we didn't have the whole thing here, but I would think the version with the whole match is online. 
Yeah, yeah, it is. And he, the interview where he did, Ray Rougeau interviewed him as he was going, leaving the dressing room. I mean, right. there's a lot of heavy handed stuff going on. Yes. I was going to say that. And, Duggan, too, and the- Duggan did the challenge the previous week that was, you know, heavy handed as well. But on top of everything else, this is one of the best matches to air on WWF syndication in quite a long time. Even though it's not really a match. Yeah. But it's just a knockdown challenge. But you know, Yokozuna is excellent as always for this era, and Duggan kicks off what ends up being a really good 1993 for him with this match. Yeah, with this performance the, here. Uh, Michaels, the Michaels series coming up and everything. But yeah, I mean, John's absolutely right. As an angle, you, you take away all the you know the nationalistic stuff. It's a very very well done angle. Yeah, it would have worked on its own. And, and your commentary is your voice, okay, as a promotion. So the message you're sending comes through there. So you yeah. you can control that and be responsible with it. And, and they still would have had a good angle. And and notice too is Yokozuna is wearing the red black color scheme here. When he had been, you know, in that time period, he was wearing a lot of the white black color scheme. So they yeah. definitely went with the red and black to really accentuate. Well, this is when yeah. this is around when it becomes his standardized gear. Yes, yes, yeah. But uh, yeah, they were definitely playing with fire with this one, and they found their way out of it. <laughs> <laughs> but because uh, they dropped, they basically just dropped the angle. Yeah, and didn't Duggan? I mean, what like four months he was gone or something like that? Three, four months? Uh, not, not quite. Not back. quite, because the Sean stuff is after Mania and the but er, before in the, the Genetti stuff. Uh, no, after Genetti. Genetti's gone by now. No, 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 no. I mean the Genetti re- before the Genetti return. Which Genetti return? May May seventeenth. <laughs> yeah, because there's a lot of Genetti departures and returns. The one, the one on the one on the same show is Kid Razor. I mean, it's before that because. I think I think Michael's actually no 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 Michael yeah Michael's were I think it's the previous two weeks actually it's the, I think it's uh yeah May May third and May tenth for the Duggan matches yeah um okay so looking at wrestling data three matches in January off February three matches in March back to a mostly regular schedule in April with fourteen. 24 in May, 22 in June, and then starts winding down in the next few months until he leaves the company. Okay. Yeah. All right, well, there's other news during our week. Mr. Perfect blew out his knee on February 6th in Boston during a match of Razor Ramon. Perfect was hospitalized that night and was on crutches all day Sunday when he appeared in the building for his scheduled matches in Hershey and Philadelphia. It was announced as injured. Tatanka took his place against Razor, and as his WS standard operating procedure, when there is a late sub in the main events, he put the baby, they put the baby face over clean. Perfect will appear at all the cities, but won't be wrestling for about three weeks. Nowhere from Titan, but suspended in the West Coast shows this coming weekend. Tatanka will replace him and headline against Shawn Michaels. American crowds will slightly below average in most cities, and events for this coming weekend in the West Coast are weak as well. However, where we get Zona Tokyo Zuna match to start on February 19th at the strongest advance of any house show feud in about 10 months. Hmm. Well, I mean, it's Undertaker against Yokozuna. That's a, that's a, you know, a big time match there, and they hadn't been with each other, so this is a fresh matchup. It's you know, Undertaker against Yokozuna. I mean, yeah, that that's an appealing matchup for fans. Am I remembering wrong, or when they 
do the more pushed feud later in the year, or does it also do above average business? It did. We've said this before. I'm kind of curious to hear what John thinks. It's a shame that all the booking around that feud is so stupid. Because those two guys actually had excellent chemistry in the ring. Yeah, well, you know, they got into that Undertaker stuff where they're trying to do weird things with him and and, and things like that. And and it would have worked. You know, it would have worked. You, you, you know, he still had his aura, you know. And, well, that was 90. That was WWE or WWF, though, right? Their booking yeah, was just. But, but they hadn't really done any of the magical stuff until Rumble 94. That's really yeah, that, I mean, like, that's the beginning. Yeah, yeah. that's the beginning. Yeah. Because basically this feud is Undertaker shows that, you know, is in Survivor Series on Luger's team, you know, revealing the American flag jacket and all this other stuff. So that that's what sets this that, that runoff, you know, so. Yeah, this is pretty much just a cold feud with Undertaker being the baby face, you know, I guess trying to get revenge for Duggan, but not in any overt yeah, way, you know, so. And they were heating Yoko up, so you know you, you've got one of the the baby faces against the the heel that's getting heated up. So that made sense, and it hadn't been done yet. Yeah. All right, Terry Taylor did a job for Jim Powers on February sixth in Springfield, Massachusetts. Awesome. You look good, Jim. <laughs> Bob Backlund beat Shawn Michaels by count on every city this past week. Backlund got no reaction coming to the ring in most cities, but eventually got over as it was seventeen minutes plus. That wasn't the case in Philadelphia, though, where Backlund, who got a big bay face ovation in his Philly return, was booed out of the building, and Michaels received 90% cheers. Shocking. Also, they ran Yokozuna and Randy Savage every night, ranged from three to five minutes for Yokozuna winning when Fuji tripped Savage, he was on the top rope. Savage made his own save after the match, though. All right, here's some house shows, the U.S. version. Tampa, Sundome, 3,000 fans. Not good. On February 5th, to talk over Damien Demento, Kamala over Kim Chi, the Predator, Mike, 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 Mike Horace Boulder, Mike, over Mike Balea, over Frankie the Thumper Lancaster. Yeah. Yokozuna, Randy Savage, Backlund over Michael Vicana, Steiners over the Belly Brothers, Typhoon over Skinner, and Perfect over, over Razor. Then in Boston, the Boston Garden, 4,000 fans on February 6th. Not good. Tito Santana over Skinner. Jim Brunzel over the Predator. Terry Taylor over Jim Powers, where both men came up to Jimmy Hart's Crank It Up <laughs> fix. How about that? To talk over Damian Demento. Razor Ramon over Mr. Perfect by Countout. Steiners over Beverly's. Come all over Kim Chi. Yokozuna over Savage. And back over Michaels by Countout. Then uh, the next day, we had the matinee at Philly at the Spectrum. 57-25. Not good. Skinner over Jim Powers. Jim Brunzo, something for Tito over the Predator. Tito, something for Tatanka over Damian Demento. Terry Taylor over Glenn Roof. Then we have the Steiners over the Beverly's. Kamala over Kim Chi. Yoko over Randy Savage. Back on Marcus McKenna. And Tatanka, something for Perfect over Razor. And then there's this one. Baltimore. Baltimore Arena. 1,800 fans. Oof. On February 8th. Tito going to draw with Damian Demento. Skinner over Jim Powers. Kamala over Kim Chi. Back on Marcus McKenna out. Brunzo over Predator, Steiners over Beverly's, Yoko over Randy, and Tatanka over Racer. So, John, here they are in some, you know, some of their old stalwart cities, Baltimore, Philly, Boston, you know, Tampa, they've been running for a a while. Terrible houses. Well, Chris, I should jump in here to note, I was curious, because it's Baltimore. 
how okay so wait what's the date here on the wwf baltimore show february 8th okay so two weeks earlier january 24th show headlined by vader sting orndorff cactus and wyndham austin and pillman versus dustin steamboat and douglas yeah. Same building, same city. How much do you think that's your... About uh, 4000 Ding, ding, ding. Nice. So, yeah, so so what do you think about John? I mean, like I said, stalwart cities, places they rent forever, and they're not drawing. Well, you know, and they're not running with the full crew. So, you know, you don't have... You're trying to run a big city, and you don't have, you know, Undertaker. You don't have Hart there. You don't have Flair. Yeah. So... And and they're on their, you know, the product was not doing too well overall. And then you don't have your full crew. Yep. As we're in the split tour and they're in Europe. The other crew's in Europe. Real quick, though. They come back real quick with WCW on February 25th. Doesn't do nearly as well, but it still does better than that WWF show. 2300. Mm. Yeah. Still not. What was the headliner? It was, that one was... Vader Sting, no DQ, Steamboat Douglas versus Bonds, uh, Dustin Windham. So they came back with rematches. Cactus Warndorf. And, and it drew ha- almost half a house. <laughs> not, that's not good. Yeah, it's up to 2,500 in April with uh, Sting Vader strap match, Windham Simmons, Orndorff and Rude versus Dustin and Cactus. Steamboat, yeah. Pillman, and an Iron Man match as a replacement for a tag title match that couldn't happen. So. Yeah, yeah. So, all right, let's go to Europe. Much of the crew is currently touring Europe, and the business continues to flourish. Yeah, business is great there. First three shows in Germany, February 5th in Beirut, February 6th in Mannheim, and February 7th in Hamburg were all sellouts and did about 700000 total in, in gate. Manchester on the 2nd, Manchester, England, GMEX Center, 5,000 fans, sellout. Virgil over Repo Man, Rip Martell over Max Moon, so from Marty Gennetti. Bam Bam over Boss Man, Nasty is over the Beverly Brothers, so from Money Inc. So about Beverly Brothers are on the early part of the European tour and have to come back to the U.S. for the U.S. tour. Uh, Headstringers over Bushwhackers, Undertaker over Papa Shango, and Brett over Flair by submission in 30 minutes and 30 seconds. Earl's Court in London on the floor, Virgil Repo Man. March over Moon, Bam Bam over Bossman, Nash over Money Inc., who, who have made it by DQ. Hedgehogs over Bushwhackers, Hedgehogs over Papa Shango, Brett over Flair. And then you basically get the this, this same type of car. They've got a little different car here in, in Beirut at, in February 5th, Sellout House. Max Moon over Repo Man, Papa Shango over Virgil, Flair over Bossman. Uh, Money Inc. retain the tag titles over Bushwhackers, Nasties over Hedgehogs, Undertaker over Bam Bam, and Brett versus Martel. So Germany got a little different. Uh, yeah. Yes. There, but... I'm disappointed though that I didn't get to hear you say uh, Oberfrankenhall. Oberfrankenhall. But but yeah, so here here it is, John. I mean, they ha- they haven't been to Europe in a long time. Brett and Undertaker have gotten hot in Europe. They're here and they're drawing big business. Yeah, it it, it makes sense. I mean, you know, you're you're. Your demand's going to be up because they haven't been around as much, and they're at least getting the title. You know, they're getting the main guys, so makes sense. And and they usually, I think, in that window of time, it was kind of like that. Whenever they go to Europe, they'd they'd get the houses. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you know, it makes sense, and and it they paid for it in the U.S. side, but it made sense. 
Well, yeah, made WCW up is strong. Well, there too. Yeah, when they start running England, yep, absolutely. All right, Mike Ortman, who worked for Titan a few years back, was rehired and named vice president of syndicated television. So there's that. Uh, Wayne noted in the torch that for those asking, Raw really is an acronym for really awesome wrestling. I wonder how many people knew that. Is it, though? That's what Wade said, Vix. Uh, you think Wade's lying to the public? I don't think he's lying, but he's still a child at this point, basically. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is 1993, Vix. Hmm. He's not, you know... Well, okay, let me, let me refresh my memory. Okay, so Wade would be at this time okay so he was born may 22nd 71 he's still only 21 yeah not a child yeah in a manner of speaking yeah i met wade later that year there you go uh he came to he came to detroit for i think SummerSlam. that's right yes i mean it was zavisa and Grun. um i i don't no, it's a visa one. I know I hung out with Wade when he was in town for the SummerSlam for uh, the night before the the event. Yeah. Did Gideon Wainwright appear in Zaviza's place? <laughs> uh, no, he did not. Um, <laughs> oh, Gideon Wainwright, yes. <laughs> All right, Torch also said, is Jimmy Hart's now babyface? That opens up a song the Hill manager side, possibly for Paulie Dangerously? Possibly? Can can we campaign here for him to get a job? <laughs> <laughs> also, it's a good How reminder, about... by the way, that it, he does a torch talk. Heyman does a torch talk in like 93. No, not 93, 89. I said 93 because we're 93. Where Wade is asking him if he thinks he would be able to adjust. It's either 89 or 90. But ask him if he thinks he'd be able to adjust to having got scripted promos in the World Wrestling Federation. <laughs> I mean, John, what what are your thoughts on how the newsletters treated Paulie and Eddie Gilbert in this era? I mean, do you think it was like, you know, they were too close that, that it obstructed the, you know, the journalistic uh, partisanship with these two guys in particular? It's hard to tell. I didn't, you know, I, I didn't have those. I wasn't quite ingrained yet in terms of talking. I mean, I talked to Dave a little bit, talked to Wade a little bit. Like I said, I just met him that year. Um, I, I couldn't tell if it was a journalistic thing or just that they were the favorites of, you know, like the future, the upper comer, you know, up and coming people that people identified with and thought were going to, you know, take the business forward. I, I never thought about it that deeply. The time. Yeah, it's it just when we go back and look at this stuff now, we see it. It just it hits us in his face. Steve Beverly and Chris Cruz, another one. I mean, it just hits us in his face. You have the guys in the newsletters who are openly, you know, campaigning or, you know, treating so-and-so with kid gloves or, you know, something like that. I mean, it just it just sticks out. And it's like, okay, okay. I mean, we, we know you're friends, but still you're kind of supposed to be – um, bias, so to speak. You know, I guess maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But it's just interesting to go to see to see who who's taking care of who, and uh, and PR and these things. Toronto Star ran a story which was syndicated throughout Canada on Earthquake John Tenta's comments about Chad Rowan, Akabono, being named the first foreign sumo grand champion. In the article, Tenta, who was a big name sumo wrestler in Japan, although never came near the top level since he didn't stick around long enough before quitting to become pro wrestler, said he was planning on taking a one-year hiatus from WF and wrestling only in Japan. And he does that. 
Yeah. But here we go. Yes, and this is Akabono, folks. <laughs> the same Akabono that would wrestle in Japan 10 years later. Yes, the one uh, that was uh, spawned by the great Muda blowing the green mist at the groin of the erotic terrorist Yinling, giving birth to Monster Bono. But what was funny, though, was and I remember back in, in the early days of the internet and stuff, people actually thought that Yokozuna was Chad Rowan. Oh, there were kids at school that thought he was Chad Rowan. <laughs> now Meltzer would say I don't know if he says it around this time but he would say later that Yokozuna was, even though they bill him as Japanese he's supposed to be inspired by who's the other uh, notable uh, Pacific Islander uh, sumo in this era um, remember his name Ko- Ko- uh, Koji Kitao uh, no Koshiniki no. or something no no no, no Koshiniki Koshiniki, I think, yes. Yeah. Something like that. Let me see. What was yeah. his real name? No, Koshiniki is a Japanese sumo. So I... But I, I knew him, yeah. But I, oh, I can never remember the name. But Day said he was inspired in like in like the obits and stuff and maybe like the WWF history features later says that, which I always thought was weird because if he's going to be inspired by one, it's going to be Akibono because he's much more well-known in America. Yeah. Yeah. And let's close out with Bix's friend, Phil Mushnick. Phil Mushnick in his New York Post column on February 8th had another item regarding Titan Sports, which read as follows. Jim Helwig, recent-day WF superstars who performed as a 6'3", 300-pound Ultimate Warrior, is about to file a multi-million dollar lawsuit versus Vincent Mann in the scandal soap World Wrestling Federation, according to sources of the up-close-and-personal kind. Hellwig, we're told, will claim breach of contract and other nastier things with the help of Manhattan lawyer Michael Kennedy. Kennedy's client list includes Ivana Trump and Gene Harris. Both Hellwig lives in Arizona, and Kennedy declined comment. The suit is expected to be filed before the end of the month. Meanwhile, a federal probe into the WF apparently has intensified. At least one New York-based investigator was in the Deep South last week to interview ex-WF headliners. Feds don't spend airfare on witch hunts. Word is that the initial focus of the probe, their systematic involvement with steroids, has grown to include tax evasion, violation of child labor laws, pedophilia, the exchange of sex for employment, and the legal drug in, in use of distribution beyond steroids. In the fifth column, Mushnick had a short regarding New York State Athletic Commissioner Randy Gordon, which read, To listen to New York State Athletic Commissioner and invertebrate braggart, Randy Gordon Crow, to WABC Radio's Mike K, yes, Michael K, of Yank, New York Yankees fame, about his stringent drug test for boxers in his jurisdiction, you'd think Gordon was McGruff the crime dog. If Gordon was such a force in the war on drugs, how is it the World Wrestling Federation's performers pumped up on steroids to outrageous proportions, wrestled with impunity, impurity in New York, impunity, I was right, not only under Gordon's jurisdiction, but under Gordon's very own eyes? All right, Bix, here's your boy, Phil, going off, as usual, on WF. Yeah. <laughs> it was a weekly thing. In the uh, this area, like, yes. What, yeah, what was Phil going to say, you know? Yeah, and and then the week later is when he tackles, you know, Duggan and Yokozuna after our week. Yep. And then on the 17th, they file the lawsuit against him. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, on the the 15th, he he does a column on Yokozuna and Duggan where he says that, uh, what was he said? 
he said that uh, it's critical of the local New York station and USA Network for even airing it. And Dave did note that the anti-Japanese rhetoric, rhetoric was toned down on the weekend television. So the next weekend, after the column or whatever. So yeah, yeah. I do have this one from the eighth. Let me see. Is there any? I don't think there's anything of note that Dave didn't cover. But um... yeah, Dave probably hit all the all the high notes here. But yeah, I mean, this is what Phil Mushnick was doing. I mean, he was he had his target on the WF and he was firing away. And you know, as we've discussed many times, under the circumstances, understandably so. You know, the he does not get the same reputation among wrestling fans. I mean, A, you know, WWE had a big part in that anyway, especially in 97, but if, because look, I, I've seen the settlement, so I know he was not legally bound to do anything like this, but it's very obvious that someone at the Post told him he could never write about the Ring Boy stuff or anything like that again. Because it never comes up again, and if you're introduced to him and what he, how he feels about WWF later, then you just think that he's just this fuddy-duddy crowing, I mean, aside from the death stuff. But, like, since so much of it is also the content stuff, like, he comes off like this guy with a weird beef, as opposed to someone who, you know, for all of his faults, was more than 90% of the time in the right in his issues with WWF. Yes. He has uh, a lot of valid arguments for sure absolutely I mean, again we should just say this straight up too like you know basically a year ago this week it might even might even be at least the day we're recording this it's very early february um is when he has those phone calls with vince mcmahon or at first he thinks vince is coming to him from a you know legitimate place of concern and all that and then realizes after he sees him lie on Larry King that he was full of shit, but that's where, and you know, around the same time that week, Vince says the same thing to Dave Meltzer. That's where Vince says that in uh, early 1988, that he had fired uh, Mel Phillips because he thought Phillips's behavior around children was, I believe the term uh, much accused the most, including the first column where he talked about it was peculiar and unnatural. And then fire, and then excuse me, rehired him a few weeks later. As long as he agreed to stay away from children. So, like, remember, he told, like, he told him this on the phone on the record. Like, and it's only been a year. Like, of course he had, like, of course he thinks they're scum. Like, what do you expect? Yeah. You know. So, you know, look, he would do himself no favors in a lot of other areas, especially as the years go on. You know, I haven't seen much of the non-wrestling stuff from before, you know, the era where stuff's online. But, like, you know, you can't excuse uh, him doing stuff like writing that New York N-Words column, as it's come to be known, where it was, it was what, it was when Jay-Z started getting more involved in his ownership role with the Nets, I believe. Yeah. And it just had various, like, hip-hop-related, like, theme nights and stuff, and... One of the things he says in the column where he's he thinks this is overlined for some reason is he says something to the effect of what's next? We we they rename them the New York N words, only actually types it out. Like, uh, like what Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mushnick is a very questionable guy, you know. So 
Yeah, I mean, but that's the thing. I mean, yeah, he's a questionable dude, but I mean, specific to the WWF stuff, he's in the right. Well, he has valid arguments. Yes, which you know that happens. You know, just because just because you may not be the best person in the world doesn't mean that you can't be right on some things. So, well, it's the it's the it's the Onion article that everyone uses as a meme this these days. You know, worst person you know made a great point. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, that is it for us this week, John. Man, I mean, it was awesome having you on the show. And so glad to get you finally on. And uh, is there anything that you want to uh, plug or anything that you got to mention? Uh, nope. I got nothing to plug. Thank you for having me, though. This has been fun. Uh, I like doing the research again to remind, you know, you after how many decades you kind of forget some things here and there and you, you get, re, you know, get a chance to go back and look at it and it brings back good memories and some bad ones, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> and some, you get reminded sometimes of, you know what, that was really bad, but I had forgotten about it. Yeah, um, exactly. stuff like that comes up, but you uh, know what though, on these shows too, John, that, I mean, sometimes you look at the man, that was, that was bad, but man, that's so much better than what's going on in a lot of stuff these days. <laughs> yeah, you do wonder sometimes, right? Some things are like, oh, that was bad, but you know what? Okay, better than this that went on. But yeah, yeah, I hear you on that one. And and it, but it was it was really fun doing some of the research, and I really appreciate uh, you and Bix inviting me and and giving me a chance to come on and talk. Absolutely. Next week on Between the Sheets, there will be no guests next week. I tried, but I tried with two different people, but it just didn't work out. So I decided to just go guestless next week. And we got a show next week, folks, as we'll go back to 1997, where we'll talk about in WCW. We got news on Turner Broadcasting adding another weekly live primetime show. So we'll have that to talk about. Plus, will Ted Turner show up on Nitro? to fire at Bischoff and uh, we'll have Nitro to talk about a very interesting Nitro show to talk about and we got Ric Flair showing up on ESPN at a college basketball game we'll talk about that and all kinds of other WCW nonsense from 1997 we'll have um, USWA we'll have uh, the Truth Commission showing up in the USWA we'll talk about that and uh and some other things. So we may have clips from that. I haven't really checked yet to see what's going on there. ECW, they had a pretty big week during our week as they ran Webster, Massachusetts, and Revere, Massachusetts, and the Michinoku Pro crew came in and tore the house down. So we'll have that. Plus, we'll have uh, a little MMA stuff. We got some Puerto Rico to talk about. Dutch Mantel returning to WC. We got a. Uh, all the Japanese indies talk about New Japan has got a couple big shows during our week. Plus, news on uh, Naoya Gawa and uh, Antonio Noki Satoru Sayama uh, and doing some things in New Japan. And what great Ken Shamrock falls into that. But we have the World Wrestling Federation, and that's where our big, big news is during our week. As one, USA Network. Officially confirms that they're going to be running Raw on two hours now from now on. And there's no there's a dog show. So there's no Monday Night Raw. But. Oh, yeah, we did. Also, we didn't mention earlier that that's why there's no Raw we're talking about this week. Yeah, <laughs> 93. Did. Are you sure? I don't well, know. We, we, did, we, didn't, we didn't on the show. We did off the air. Yeah, we did off so the that's air. Why, yeah, that's why there's no Raw. Dog show. But Thursday, Raw, Thursday. And yes, folks. 
Shawn Michaels loses his smile in Lowell, Massachusetts. All that and more next week on Between the Sheets. That's we never be did a- that? We have never done that week. No. I kind of so, want to have a guest. I need to think about who would be the best person for it. Well, you can you can wreck your brain because I didn't try. Yeah. But anyway, um, also I John- realized as I, I opened up the notes, I realized there are. Uh, oh no! Oh no! Wait a second! I read it wrong. The the thing I was thinking of is actually the day after our week. The the booking that the Mishinoku Pro guys were in the U.S. for in the first place, which is we did that week. We've done that. We've done so, okay. We've done the Century Wrestling Alliance. So okay, yeah. So yes, we've done that. But anyway, John, again, thank you for being on. You killed it. Thanks so, for having me. Yeah, thank you. Get back on in the future, Bix. Thank you as always. You're the rock of the show, and this is Chris saying so long from the Peach State of Georgia. Patreon special edition number 64. I'm Hesh Zona, joined as always by my co-host David Bix and Spin and Bix. It's not a Patreon show, basically, in, in these recent days without us talking about a Philadelphia independent wrestling promotion. <laughs> you know? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. Heyman's cursed us. But he's not involved in this. No, he's not. Well, Todd is. Todd Gordon is, but Paul Heyman is not. So uh, this is a Heyman-free Patreon show. But not an Andy Gilbert-free Patreon show, although oh, no. we don't get in the weeds with him, but he's there. Yeah, well, he's a prominent person in, in this uh, promotion we're going to talk about. So we're talking about Joel Goodhart's TWA, the original Super Indie. And uh, we're going to talk about how it came to fruition and... Talk about you know what happened with what they did, the shows, and everything else that's going on, including the end, which was uh, quite sudden in the end. As they had a big show planned, and they couldn't do it because money ran out. Yep. And we're, I mean, but we're covering, based on all the clippings and stuff I could get, the whole, uh, pretty much the whole Joel Goodhart story, at least as we could find it. Well, so... This is going to be interesting because that's part of his story, just as we give the introduction here. So he was a fairly well-to-do Philadelphia fan. And, you know, not going to get too into the weeds because he's profiled in the Philly Inquirer and some other papers a few times. And he started his radio show, The Fan Club, bus trips all over the place, 
travel packages to major shows in places that you couldn't do a bus trip to. Wrestling stores, we'll get to in a sec. And then finally, this big super indie, Tri-State Wrestling Alliance, where he basically ran quarterly spectaculars at Pennsylvania Hall, smaller building connected to the Philly Civic Center, Center, excuse me, and would run a regular indie schedule of smaller shows that were less loaded but still had names on top in between. And also ring announce at Spectrum and uh, Civic Center shows. (laughs) As Joel Goodhart of the Squared Circle radio show, yes. Yes, WWF. I'm telling you, him. And also ends up ring announcing for Dennis Corluzo and Larry Sharp's WWA and doing some business with them before they split up, which we'll be talking about in detail later, although not not as much when it happens as later when we get a post-mortem from Corluzo and Sharp. But, yeah, I mean, is there anything else we should do as far as preamble? Like, t- or not really, because we're going to get these details. Uh, Joel, in Joel, Joel Goodhart is like the, you know, he's like the trendsetter for what we've had in recent years in the indie scene. A guy who is just a fan, you know, who had money and decided to open up his own promotion. Yeah. You know? And... You know, super indie, because so much of those major shows, at least, are just filled with flying names. You know? Yeah. he He's booking the best available unsigned wrestlers. Easily. Most, yeah, yeah. All right, well, let's get started. 1989, the week of April the 3rd. Philadelphia Daily News, April the 3rd. He puts up Matt Welcome. Wrestling has a hold on Talk Philadelphia Fan by Dan Geringer. Sure, Joel Goodhart's Philadelphia's Mr. Wrestling. Sure, since debuting his wrestling radio call-in show Saturday mornings on WIP AM 610 last September, Goodhart's life has been in an ending series of great moments with large individuals you don't want to aggravate. Sure, as Mega Maven of the 800-member Squared Circle Fan Club, Goodhart spends his days and nights arranging celebrity luncheons with the likes of 400-pound Bam Bam Bigelow and booking club trips on buses that show wrestling videos continuously while motoring towards matches in far-off lands like Tennessee. Observing the hostilities, Goodhart was pleased his party was going well, thus preoccupied somewhat with the upcoming Ric Flair banquet. He cares two proposed menus in his briefcase at all times, worrying about those vital culinary details, the freshness of the ingredients, the sprightness of the presentation. They can make the for a banquet to remember in Gristlemania. He pulled out the proposals and weighed the chicken Brazilian with tomatoes and broccoli against the beef jardinier with potatoes and chef's vegetable. What the hell is a chef's be- vegetable, he asked, suspiciously. Sounds like whatever they got left over from the last banquet. Most fans aren't into this fancy stuff. I think we'll go with a simple Roy Rogers-type salad and the beef. <laughs> Three and a half years after he became obsessed... Early on, the radio show started in now defunct WDVT. Goodhart's company cleared just enough on the banquet to finally put the squared circle on a positive cash flow basis, even after he deducts major expenses like the food and the $1,200 gold plate at Wrestling Year, Wrestle the Decade Championship belt. I'm going to honor Flair, Goodhart said, and hopefully meet my name at the same time. It's my bar mitzvah. It's my wedding. It's my big thing. I'll let it come out with this with national radio syndication. I'll let it become the Dr. Roof of Wrestling. She makes a couple million a year talking about what she knows best. Hey, also for a couple hundred grand. Okay. The Dr. Roof of Wrestling. 
so at first it says a hundred grand over the last few years in lost compensation. That implies that his main loss in these four years was just spending time on wrestling that he could have spent on selling more insurance policies and getting. That's what I. That's 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 what I got for the hundred grand. However, with the scale he's got and the parts that shouldn't cost that much. How the hell would this be the thing that finally makes them cash flow positive? You have 800 members of a fan club. You should be able to scale your fan club so that it's at least that it's profitable. At least just that you have enough cash coming in just from memberships and stuff. Like how? What? How bad a businessman is this guy? You know, outside of selling insurance. Maybe let's see if we're cheap. Very weird. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what I make of this yet. Um, but also it broke up his marriage. Yeah, that's never good. No. Um, it's been a while since I don't even know when the last time I've heard the term would be that I've had anything that was called chef's vegetable. But I think it's usually like like an oven. Like, well, it's but usually I don't think it's usually chef's vegetable on its own. It's potato and chef's vegetable. It's like roasted potato and then like what is it usually like roasted cauliflower carrots and like one other thing i think your chef's vegetable. yeah depends on the chef but yeah um also like you, you're doing this banquet you don't need to get rick flair a 1200 dollar belt <laughs> well of course not but they're marcia rick flair so they're gonna do something to impress rick flair to get him to come to their banquet well, is it even they at this point? Isn't it just Joel? Probably. I don't know who. I don't know. I don't know what the when the, when the Panthers got out of it. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I'm not sure. Either. I think they were on the radio show for a while longer, but I'm not sure about the rest. All right. Um. Let's go a few months into 1989, October 23rd, Philadelphia Day News, October 25th. Excerpt from "The Gods Are Good to Good Heart" by Dan Geringer. Good art started small, doing a one-hour radio call-in show and now the fun WDBT AM. Then moved his wrestling radio hour to WIP Saturdays at 8 AM. His Square Circle Fan Club grew from a couple hundred to a thousand members. He promoted weekly lunches with wrestling stars in Northeast sports bars. One night in the middle of the night, he sat bolt upright in the bed and envisioned promoting a wrestling decade banquet at the Civic Center for Nature Boy Ric Flair. A six-time world champion in National Wrestling Alliance, Superstar Fonda throwing his peroxide blonde head back and howling woo in an eerie wail when he's around, whenever he's around the ring. Goodhart and his wrestling radio faithful are fierce National Wrestling Alliance fans who believe the Ron World Wrestling Federation starring Hulk Hogan's a giant cow pie in the pro wrestling pasture. Funny, because he worked for them. Uh, he took their money. <laughs> Too much bluster, not enough black and blue. So Flair won the wrestling radio poll by a margin of, I guess, 15 to 1? It's IS the one here, or IS to I, I don't know, and agreed to come to the April 30th. Yeah, it's band. 15 to 1. That's a, It's a uh, newspapers.com OCR that I make, missed. I got most of them, but it happens. Overjoyed, Goodhart rented the Civic Center's Plaza Ballroom. Price tickets to the stiff $75 a head. And after days of careful consideration, chose, chose the beef jardinier. Well, I'm glad we got that settled. He wanted to do something that would endear Philadelphia and the Square Circle fan club to flare forever, so he spent $1,200 on a championship-style wrestler of the decade belt. One of those huge gold-plated jobs that like armor. Wrestling insiders told him he was nuts to think he'd break even. 
They were wrong. 138 paid. Goodhart had the moment videotape for posterity and for sale. The other day he stopped by with a master tape. We watched together as Goodhart told the crowd, I cannot believe this thing actually came off. When the Bijardin era was history and the moment the truth was at hand, Flair was clearly stunned by the magnificence of his record of the decade belt. I'm speechless, he said, to know that you think so highly of me. And then his eyes teared up and his voice failed him. That's not Ric Flair the wrestler, Goodhart said. That's Ric Flair the man. This guy has integrity. Word has got out that Goodhart has integrity too. This Saturday, for the first time ever, the National Wrestling Alliance is presenting a major review live telecast for Philadelphia. Halloween Havoc 89 at Civic Center, which will feature Ric Flair and company beating each other senseless in a 30-foot by 30-foot electrified steel cage. Bruno and San Martino, living legend, will be the special referee. And who did the NWA manager come to for San Martino's home phone number so they can ask him the referee? Joel Goodhart. I remember Bruno feuding with George Animal still back in the 60s at the old arena, 46th and Market, Goodhart says. They feuded through the concession stands, out the doors, into Market Street and back. I grew up with Bruno. Bruno was wrestling to me. And now here I am, getting my first god, Bruno, together with my second god, Ric Flair. Goodhart shakes his head in awe. You look at these guys, he says. You realize the wars they've been through. Yesterday, Goodhart met with syndication guys about going East Coast Regional and wrestling radio. If that happens, he figures his exclusive rights to distribute Caribbean wrestling tapes will pay off. If you're in the gore, he explains, there's more gore than in North America. You see heads busted wide open and stitched up on TV, tables flying, forks being used. Forks? Forks, Goodhart happily says. Forks! <laughs> this is such a, 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 a interesting time in the smart wrestling fan universe because mm-hmm. you have the, you, I mean, you read the old observers. I mean, you have these viewing parties and tape all the parties. tape drinks, tape parties, tape trading, you know. I mean, it is a, it's like the Wild West in ways. And it's just really interesting to look at how, how things were back then. Yeah. Compared Resi's to, I mean, now. A few months in, too. Yeah. Compared to how it is now, where everybody can watch everything at, 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 at any time and you could have, you know, Twitter watch parties or whatever. Everybody's, you know, watching live streams and stuff and commenting. But back then it was totally different, you know, and how the hell it was done. Yeah. And so also real quick before I forget, does this mean the English clamshell double, double C videos were all from Goodhart? It was very possible. I didn't know that. Did you? No, I, I don't see what else they could even be talking about. Plus, Timeline 89? I mean, that's when a lot of those came out. Yeah. You know? So, hmm. Interesting. It also makes me wonder then, too, remember when just a ton of them hit eBay, like, God, 20 years ago? Along with, see, like, brand new, too. Like, I wonder if that was someone, I think they had a lot of Coliseum videos as well, but I wonder if that person bought out stuff he had. That's possible. Yes. Now, all of that said, what a fucking mark. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's Ric Flair. He has integrity. <laughs> okay, so let's also do the math here. So 138 times 75 means he grossed $10,350. So I don't know how much it costs to rent the room. 
um, with this type of thing, I'm assuming the food cost is taken out of each admission. Um, I, I mean, I, if it's a success, I guess it's a success. I don't know if it made a profit or if it's just breaking even, but, and good for him, I guess. Doing it, you know, doing it the weekend of a Civic Center show makes sense, too. Um, one thing I had not realized as well, those lunch things were weekly? They weren't just around Civic Center shows and stuff? What it sounds like. That's not something I realized. It may be the week-to-week ones are locals and stuff, but... And it's just weird to me... Oh. Okay. Alright, so this... All right. So I'm looking at uh, the Philadelphia Daily News right now from the Friday, the two days four, the Flair thing, and yeah, Flair is not announced. I mean, so I mean, Flair is not booked on that show. He's not announced at all. Huh. But right up, right up under it is the rest of the '80s award banquet. Sunday afternoon, 4:30 p.m. at the Civic Center. So it was at the Civic Center where the show was held, and it was three and a half hours before the show started. Sponsored by Wrestling Radio Fan Club. Um, open to the public, $85 per person. Oh. Fan, fan, fan club member, $75. Okay. So we should probably do multiply it by $80 then, right? Includes, yeah. full, course, inc- includes full course dinner, autographs, posing for pictures, and more. Reservations and proper dress requ- required. Which we always know goes great with wrestling fans they they always respect the dress codes at fancy events well you know maybe back then they that this group did well also in a like in a ballroom type setting with a dinner well, it, different like well it just said the civic center and they say where in the civic center well no it was a ballroom thing but, i know but it just said the oh civic the ad center. only says civic center. yeah okay yeah mm. um Cause I, the fans at the WWE Hall of Fame generally did at least wear collared shirts and stuff before the Hall of Fame became an arena event, right? Yes, yes, yes. It was the switch to the arena event that really changed things. Yes, absolutely. Um, hmm. So, but yeah. interesting. Weird, though. I, I still can't wrap my head around Flair not being on that show. Yeah, I know. Maybe he figured he was going to have such a good time at this banquet that he was going to be, not going to be in condition to perform. Hmm. You know what I'm saying? Perhaps. All right. Uh, week of January 15th, 1990. Philadelphia Daily News, January 17th. Excerpt from Going to the Mat for a Dream by Dan Geringer. Yes. If you haven't already figured it out, everyone, he sure seems to have this fellow wrapped around his finger. Oh, yeah. Opinion among Joel Goodhart's peers was evenly divided. Some thought he was crazy. Others thought he was nuts. But the Flair dinner sold out. Why are we still talking about the Flair dinner in January 1990, Bix? That's weird to me. To hear this entire show, support Between the Sheets on Patreon for just $5 per month. Go to patreon.com slash between the sheets.